Chapter 6 Monetary and Banking Thought 2 The Bullion Report and the Return to Gold 1. Ricardo Enters the Fray The bullionist controversy sank into oblivion for five years after 1804, largely because a cautious policy on the part of the banks of England and Ireland temporarily abated the monetary inflation and its unwelcome consequences. Then, during 1809, the heating up of the war with Napoleon rekindled the inflation, banknote circulation increasing from 17.5 million pounds in November 1808 to 19.8 million pounds the following August. Consequently, the pound rapidly depreciated by the summer to a discount of 20% on foreign exchange at Hamburg, and to a 20% rise in the market price of gold, at 93 shillings per ounce, over the official mint par of 77 shillings, 10.5 pence per ounce. It was time for the bullionist controversy to heat up again. David Ricardo was first and foremost a monetary economist, and, as Professor Peake has reminded us, his focus on money remained a key to the entire body of his economic thought. Ricardo had come upon the wealth of nations in 1799 and had steeped himself in political economy ever since, his practical life as a wealthy young stock and bond broker naturally leading him to emphasize monetary affairs. The rapidly growing depreciation of the pound in 1809 led Ricardo to his first published works on economics, beginning with a letter on the price of gold in the Morning Chronicle, 29 August. Ricardo's letter made a great impact, particularly by his unique blend of hardcore theorizing and impressive command of the empirical and institutional facts of the monetary scene. His first letter to the Morning Chronicle was followed by two more, with the letters being shortly expanded into a renowned and highly influential work, Ricardo's first book, The High Price of Bullion, a proof of the depreciation of banknotes. The point is summarized in the title, published at the beginning of 1810. The high price went into no less than four editions by the following year. The various positions in the bullionist controversy had been set during the first phase of the debate, 1800 to 1804. It was Ricardo's intention to revive and establish the bullionist position not only against the anti-bullionists, but more importantly against the more respected and influential moderate anti-bullionist doctrine of Henry Thornton. Thornton was the most important theoretical opponent of bullionism, and so Ricardo set out to take up the cudgels for Lord King, although, in doing so, he unfortunately, as we shall see, reverted to and elaborated the rigid and mechanistic approach of John Wheatley. It was Thornton, however, who was his leading opponent, and Ricardo set out to convert him. As he wrote in high price, Mr. Thornton must, therefore, according to his own principles, attribute it, the premium on gold bullion, to some more permanent cause than an unfavorable balance of trade, 
and will, I doubt not, whatever his opinion may formerly have been, now agree that it is to be accounted for only by the depreciation of the circulating medium. In the course of the high price, Ricardo set forth clearly the important point that there is no such thing as a shortage of specie, or a great need for more of it, that, in effect, any level of the money supply is optimal. If the quantity of gold or silver in the world employed as money were exceedingly small or abundantly great, the variation in their quantity would have produced no other effect than to make the commodities for which they were exchanged comparatively dear or cheap. The smaller quantity of money would perform the functions of circulating medium as well as the larger. As soon as the high price was published in January 1810, Ricardo, hitting on the right tactic to spread his views, sent a copy to that leading moderate and influential member of Parliament on monetary questions, Francis Horner. The effect on Horner was electric, and he was moved the following month to introduce and get passed a resolution in the House of Commons setting up a select committee to inquire into the cause of the high price of bullion. The justly famed Bullion Committee of twenty-two illustrious members of Parliament, chaired by Horner, issued its report in June 1810, recommending the bullionist policy of a return to the gold standard in two years' time. The Bullion Committee report touched off an intense controversy within Parliament and in the general pamphlet literature over the following year. David Ricardo had partially accomplished his objective of converting Henry Thornton, who was perhaps the most influential member of the Bullion Committee, and who co-wrote its report, along with Horner and William Huskisson. Characteristically, it was not Ricardo's bullionist theory that had swayed Thornton, but the impressive marshalling of evidence that convinced him at long last that this particular inflation and depreciation were being caused by over-issue of Bank of England notes. Thornton, in short, had joined his disciple Horner before him in remaining a moderate, but in being converted from anti-bullionist to bullionist on empirical grounds. In the parliamentary debate on the bullion report in May 1811, Thornton conceded that the idea of poor harvests and subsidies to foreigners being the cause of the depreciation was an error to which he himself had once inclined, but he stood corrected after a fuller consideration of the subject. Thornton's conversion was all the more remarkable because his own bank was financially tied to the fiat expansion of bank credit, and the mere issuance of the report, even though it did not carry the day in Parliament, was enough to cause a minor run on Thornton's bank. Furthermore, a period of difficulties that were never fully overcome now set in for the bank, until it finally failed in 1825, ten years after Thornton's death. Thornton's conversion, however, was only empirical. 
Thus, in the course of the debates on the Bullion Report, he still brought up the bogey of deflation, and suggested that the pound be devalued to its existing market levels in order to ward off a deflation when resumption finally arrived. Since Ricardo's main focus was combating the views of Henry Thornton, it is not surprising that he overreacted, and instead of adopting the complete, sophisticated bullionism of Lord King, went on to the rigid and mechanistic doctrines of John Wheatley. In particular, in order to rebut Thornton completely, Ricardo believed that the dispute had to be elevated totally to the theoretical plane so that he felt forced to maintain that only monetary factors, even in the short run, could ever have any influence whatever on prices or exchange rates. Money, Ricardo felt obliged to maintain, is ever and always, even in the short run, totally neutral to the rest of the economy, to everything, that is, except overall prices. As Professor Peake puts it, in large part Ricardo's early works represented a reaction to Henry Thornton's non-neutral monetary economics, and in challenging Thornton's views, Ricardo committed himself to an explanation of output, value, and distribution in real terms consistent with neutral money. To accomplish his impressive, if unbalanced, task, David Ricardo had to concentrate exclusively on long-run equilibrium states, and to ignore the market processes towards them. In that way, Ricardo set the stage for his later approach to all economic questions. Ricardo summarized his methodology in the course of his famous correspondence with Thomas Robert Malthus on monetary questions from 1811 to 1813. You always have in mind the immediate and temporary effects. I fix my whole attention on the permanent state of things which will result from them. For money to be strictly neutral to everything except a general level of prices, Ricardo had to assert a strict, radical dichotomization between the monetary and the real worlds, with values, relative prices, production, and incomes determined only in the real sphere, while overall prices were set exclusively in the monetary sphere. And never the two spheres could meet. And here began the fateful and all-pervasive modern fallacy of a severe split between two hermetically sealed worlds, the micro and the macro, each with its own determinants and laws. Furthermore, as Salerno writes, it was Ricardo's strong affirmation of the neutral money doctrine in his bullionist writings that was to serve as the source of the classical conception of money as merely a veil, hiding the real phenomena and processes of the economy. In particular, if money is neutral, then value or relative prices had to have only real determinants, which Ricardo discovered in embodied quantities of labor.
In the macro area, in contrast, Ricardo set forth a mechanistic, strictly proportional causal relation between the quantity of money and the level of prices, a strictly proportionate quantity theory of money. Again, Peake summed it up very well. Theoretically, Ricardo challenged Thornton by developing a strict quantity theory neutral money analysis, which resulted in his well-known dichotomization of the economy into goods and money sectors, with no role for money other than to determine the general level of prices. Analytically, this required him to convert Thornton's model into a dichotomized model by demonstrating real market equilibrium independent of the money market. A fundamental theme linking all of Ricardo's later works is the continuing search for neutral money. Thus, Ricardo writes that, the value of the circulating medium of every country bears some proportion to the value of the commodities which it circulates. No increase or decrease of its quantity, whether consisting of gold, silver, or paper money, can increase or decrease its value above or below this proportion. If the mines cease to supply the annual consumption of the precious metals, money will become more valuable, and a smaller quantity will be employed as a circulating medium. The diminution in the quantity will be proportioned to the increase of its value. The value of inconvertible paper money, declared Ricardo, becomes determined in the same way. Hence, under any restriction of specie payment, any excess of bank notes would depreciate the value of the circulating medium in proportion to the excess. If twenty millions had been the circulation of England before the restriction, and if the bank were successively to increase it to fifty or a hundred millions, the increased quantity would be all absorbed in the circulation of England, but would be in all cases depreciated to the value of the twenty millions. Under inconvertible currency, furthermore, strict proportionality then gets carried over to the determination of exchange rates. Like Wheatley, Ricardo concluded that only monetary factors ever determine the exchange rate, and hence that the depreciation of the exchange rate must precisely measure the extent of monetary inflation and of the overissue of paper money. In the same way, and to the same precise proportion, the rise in the price of bullion and the rise in prices of commodities will also reflect the self-same over-issue and depreciation. David Ricardo's arrival on the monetary scene brought him into the first rank of bullionist champions, not because of anything original he had to say, but because of his empirical knowledge of money his grasp of the literature, and his willingness to refute in detail the arguments of the numerous distinguished men of the anti-bullionist establishment ranks. 
Thus, in the course of the storm over the bullion report, Charles Bosenket, 1769-1850, a London merchant governor of the South Seas Company, as well as a son of a former governor of the Bank of England, wrote a pamphlet attacking the report, sneering at it from the point of view of a practical man, scoffing at wild and irrelevant theorists. In his Practical Observations on the Report of the Bullion Committee, two editions in 1810. Bosanket's pamphlet drew a famous reply to Mr. Bosanket's Practical Observations, 1811, by Ricardo the following year. Ricardo's pamphlet was a brilliant and effective polemic, in which he marshaled an impressive array of empirical data in the course of a lofty defense of high and mechanistic theory as against the dim-wittedness of self-proclaimed practical men. The reply was particularly effective because Ricardo could match Bosanket in realistic practical knowledge, a ploy which led many people to overlook the strident unrealism of his theoretical apparatus. In sum, Jacob Hollander rightly explained Ricardo's influence on behalf of bullionism not as the result of any original contributions, but because, not content with restating a positive theory, Ricardo set up in succession and demolished in turn, sometimes completely, always plausibly, every opposed argument in a written criticism or current opinion. A theory which had a dignified parentage was refurbished, defended from doctrinal attacks, justified by contemporary events, vitalized by urgent timeliness, and vindicated against current criticism. A standard was planted, the field cleared, and an alert and resourceful champion held the lists. But even at this early date, the hard-money champion was beginning to buckle, and if not abandon, at least to flounder in the cause. For in his reply to Malthus' review of The High Price in the Edinburgh Review, reprinted as an appendix to the fourth edition, Ricardo advanced a plan for ending the restriction that abandoned the heart of the gold standard. Specifically, he proposed that the pound sterling be redeemable in gold bullion rather than in coin. But a gold bullion standard means that the average person cannot redeem paper money in a commodity medium of payment, and that gold redemption is confined to a handful of wealthy international financiers. Ricardo's desertion of the gold coin standard was motivated first by a Smithian desire to economize on the gold metal, and more prominently by a fear of deflation that was conspicuously inconsistent with his dismissal of all non-price-level effects of changes in the supply of money. In this phobia about deflation, and in this inconsistency, Ricardo followed his mentor in mechanistic bullionism, John Wheatley. In addition to Francis Horner, another person inspired by Ricardo's reawakening of the bullion controversy was Robert Mushet, 1782-1818. 
A Scotsman born near Edinburgh, young Mushet had entered the service of the Royal Mint in 1804, and by the time of the new controversy had risen to the post of first clerk to the master of the Mint. Mushet's An Inquiry into the Effects Produced on the National Currency and Rates of Exchange by the Bank Restriction Bill came out early in 1810, before the appointment of the Bullion Committee, and went quickly into three editions. Mushet was able to add his expertise at the Royal Mint to the hardcore bullionist cause. 2. THE STORM OVER THE BULLION REPORT Although Francis Horner, who formed and chaired the famed Bullion Committee, was a Whig, the committee itself was scarcely stacked against the Tory government. On the contrary, the committee's twenty-two members included seven Whigs, seven clear-cut Tories, including even the Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer, Spencer Percival, and eight including Thornton and Alexander Baring of the renowned banking family, who were independents, friendly to the Tory administration. Of the co-authors of the report, Thornton was still considered at the time of appointment of the committee perhaps the leading defender of bank restriction, and William Huskisson, 1770-1830, was a leading Tory member of Parliament of the canning wing of the party who had been a member of the Tory government for several years until 1809. The modal committee member may be summed up as a thoughtful Tory, a supporter of the restriction now troubled by the developing inflation and depreciation of the pound. While David Ricardo was acquainted with Thornton, both had been co-founders of the London Institution and its library in 1805, his only close friend on the Bullion Committee was another London Institution co-founder, Richard Sharp, 1759-1835, a Whig and West Indies merchant. The only member of the committee who shared Ricardo's bullionist hostility to the Bank of England was Henry Brooke Parnell. Indeed, Thornton's presence on the committee and support for the report in Parliament shocked the anti-bullionists and led his wife to offer embarrassed explanations to their friends. Frank W. Fetter summed it up clearly when he wrote that the position of Thornton and Huskisson in the Bullion Committee and in their subsequent defense of its report was taken more in sorrow than in partisanship. It was the outgrowth of their increasing concern over the apathy of the government and the bank about the condition of the foreign exchanges and the bullion market, and over the support by the bank and the government spokesman for the real bills doctrine in its most extreme form. That is, that as long as the bank's advances were made only on sound commercial assets, the amount of the advances could have no effect on prices or the foreign exchanges. Most important, the bullion report itself was neither Kingian nor Ricardian, but squarely in the Thornton-Horner-Moderate bullionist camp. Its support for bullionism, in short, was empirical rather than theoretical, 
concluding reluctantly but firmly that the facts were such that the bank restriction and the bank's monetary inflation had played a large role in the existing inflation and depreciation of the pound sterling. Thornton himself only supported the committee's call for resumption of specie payment in protest at the failure of the bank and the government to be chastised and to agree to restricting further issuance of money. As for Ricardo, he only became the leading champion of the committee after the policy conclusions of its report supported his call for resumption of payment in specie. Indeed, Malthus, in his defense of the report, hailed the committee for taking his own moderate stance rather than adopting the Ricardian error of holding a solely monetary explanation of the depreciation. The report was approved in the full bullion committee by a vote of 13 to 6 and was submitted to Parliament on 8 June 1810. While Prime Minister Percival was one of the six voting nay, along with his paymaster-general and deputy governor of the bank, there was at first no indication of deep hostility on the part of the administration. Indeed, the Tory press commented favorably upon the report when it was first issued. In a few months, however, the administration reversed its course, the best evidence suggests that a command decision was made by the government and the Bank of England in late August or early September to launch an all-out assault upon the bullion report. Leading the battle in Parliament for the government was Nicholas Van Sittert, 1766-1851, many times Secretary to the Treasury and soon to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. In the 1809 debate on resumption of specie payment, Van Sittert had coined the patriotic, if irrelevant and absurd, argument that the national resources of the country sufficed for backing the currency, so that there was no need for gold. In the Bullion Report debate, Van Sittert pushed a spectrum of anti-bullionist arguments. First, that immediate resumption was, as usual, inexpedient. Second, that the restriction had nothing whatsoever to do with the depreciation of the pound. And third, that Bank of England notes were esteemed every bit as highly as gold coin, an assertion so preposterous and so out of tune with the facts as to bring down upon him open ridicule by George Canning, the leader of a Tory faction out of power. Masterminding and orchestrating the campaign against the Bullion Report for Percival and Van Sittert were four shadowy aides and advisers. One was John Charles Harries, 1778-1855, son of a London merchant and longtime treasury official, at this time private secretary to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and a past and future top financial advisor of Tory leaders. He was himself to be a Chancellor of the Exchequer in later years. A second figure was Henry Beek, Professor of Modern History at Oxford, friend of Van Sittert, and prominent advisor of Tory politicians. 
A particularly mysterious but influential colleague was Jasper Atkinson, 1761-1844, about whom little is known, except that he was, for a quarter century, an official advisor to the government and to the bank, and wrote thirteen pamphlets from 1802 to the late 1820s in support of government and bank policy. It seems that he was a country banker and active in trade with Holland. He, of course, published a pamphlet in opposition to the Bullion Report. Atkinson prepared the pamphlet at the instigation of Harry's and was assisted by his old friend and adviser, Henry Beek. Perhaps even more curious was the leading role of a Genevan refugee, Sir Francis de Vernois, friend of Van Sittert, who had been a British secret agent in Europe and had been a confidential adviser to the British government on relations with France. It was de Vernois who first waved the bloody shirt against the bullion report by dragging into the debate the palpably false charge that the report had given aid and comfort to the Napoleonic enemy had stimulated Napoleon to strengthen his embargo measures against Great Britain, and had emboldened the United States to take a nasty turn toward England. This effective, if mendacious, red herring was taken up in Parliament by Van Sittert, and by a leader of the Anglo-Irish establishment, Robert Stuart, Viscount Castlereagh, the Marquess of Londonderry, 1769-1822. Indeed, the major parliamentary motif of the critics of the report was that the restriction was vital for pursuing the war effort against France. Prime Minister Percival charged that adopting the report would be tantamount to a declaration that they would no longer continue those foreign exertions which they had hitherto considered indispensable to the security of the country. If Parliament should adopt the report and its policies, Percival thundered, they would disgrace themselves forever by becoming the voluntary instruments of their country's ruin. Ringing changes on this wartime necessity stab-in-the-back theme were Viscount Castlereagh, the high Tory Foreign Secretary and War Secretary Robert Banks Jenkinson, the Earl of Liverpool, 1770-1828, and the treasurer of the Navy and former secretary to the Treasury, George Rose, 1744-1818, who also contributed two pamphlets to the controversy. Rose was the highest of high Tories, a friend of King George III, an opponent of parliamentary reform, an extreme pro-war advocate, a supporter of the Corn Laws, and an adversary of the abolition of slavery. In late 1810 and early 1811, a host of pamphlets were published, attacking the Bullion Report, and many of them, both signed and anonymous, were products of the behind-the-scenes campaign of the governmental and bank circles. In addition to Atkinson's pamphlet, Harry's weighed in with an anonymous tract, a review of the controversy respecting the high price of bullion and the state of our currency. Charles Bosenkett's Practical Observations, rebutted by Ricardo, was another product of this campaign. 
Particularly important in this effort was the publication of a speech by a prominent attorney, Randall Jackson, 1757-1837, which purported to be the views of a concerned bank stockholder. In reality, Jackson was apparently hired by the bank to present its case, sub rosa, against the report. Jackson presented the state-of-the-art critiques by the government. The report had greatly injured commercial credit, the committee was dominated by chronic oppositionists to the government, and it is impossible for banknotes ever to be excessive or to have higher prices than par because they were issued only against value received, a non-sequitur if there ever was one. Indeed, the main economic arguments of bank spokesmen before the Bullion Committee and in the parliamentary debates by men such as Governor John Whitmore and Deputy Governor John Pierce were an extreme, almost absurd version of the real bill's doctrine, namely that if bank loans were issued on short-term bills of real value representing real transactions, then banknote issue can never be excessive and never have any inflationary or depreciating effect on the pound. Walter Badgett was later to call these arguments almost classical by their nonsense. Perhaps the acme of this nonsense was the pamphlet of the Tory Commissioner of Audit, Francis Percival Elliot, circa 1756 to 1818, who went so far as to maintain that the problem with Huskisson's argument was that he considered the gold guinea to be the standard of value, whereas it is actually the pound sterling. According to Elliot, the pound precisely because it is fiat money, is the ideal money of account, because it is, by definition, invariable in value. On the other hand, Elliot opined, gold or silver, being made of a substantial commodity, must be variable in value. Meanwhile, a different kind of critic of the report appeared prominently in the pamphlet literature and in Parliament. The eccentric Sir John Sinclair, 1754-1835, first and also current president of the Board of Agriculture, was born to a Scottish noble family and was educated at the universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, graduating from Trinity College, Oxford, in 1775. A member of Parliament from 1780 until 1811, Sinclair was a man of great energy and enthusiasm, and a prolific writer in the causes he held dear. In his lifetime, Sinclair published no less than 367 tracts and pamphlets. An advocate of parliamentary reform, Sinclair championed the cause of peace and wrote several pamphlets attacking Pitt's war policy and calling for peace with England's enemies. He even went so far as to publish a booklet calling for Britain's surrender of Gibraltar to Spain during the American Revolutionary War. Sinclair's prime enthusiasm was for agriculture, an art he learned from managing his Scottish estates. Not only was he the first president of the Board of Agriculture, but he also founded the British Wool Society. Sinclair was also engrossed in statistical and monetary and fiscal questions. 
an indefatigable collector of statistics, Sinclair actually introduced the words statistics and statistical into the English language, and during the decade of the 1790s he collected and published in twenty-one volumes a statistical account of Scotland. More relevant to our concerns, Sinclair had published from 1785 to 1790 a three-volume History of the Public Revenues of the British Empire. In this work, Sinclair had displayed a determined and all-out zeal for monetary inflation and government spending. As soon as the bullion report was issued, Sinclair wrote to Prime Minister Percival asking help for reprinting his work as part of the task of rebutting the bullion committee. You know my sentiments regarding the importance of paper circulation, he wrote to Percival, which is, in fact, the basis of our prosperity. In fact, Sinclair's Observations on the Report of the Bullion Committee, published in September 1810, was the very first of many pamphlet attacks on the Bullion Report. A storm of pamphlets raged over the Bullion Report, hoping to influence the parliamentary decision as well as the tides of public opinion. David Ricardo was a host unto himself, in the month of September 1810 alone, Ricardo, in the Morning Chronicle, defended the conclusions of the report, taking, of course, the hardcore Ricardian line, attacked the pamphlet of Sir John Sinclair, and also denounced the speech of Randall Jackson, which Ricardo, as a bank stockholder, had heard delivered in person. Malthus wrote two effective articles in the Edinburgh Review the following year, taking the Thornton-Horner-Moderate bullionist position. Particularly effective defending the report was the Canning-Huskisson faction of Tories, centered in their journal, The Quarterly Review. As firm Tories, the support of this faction shielded the bullion committee from charges of Whig partisanship. The most widely circulated and one of the most influential pamphlets supporting the report was written by its eminent co-author, William Huskisson. Huskisson's The Question Concerning the Depreciation of Our Currency, Stated and Examined, was published in late October 1810, and went into no less than eight editions in rapid succession, the ninth appearing in 1819. The Quarterly Review carried on a coordinated campaign on behalf of the report, with contributions by High Tory George Ellis, 1753-1815, Huskisson, and even the great George Canning himself. It is not without charm that William Huskisson contributed some passages to Ellis's laudatory review of Huskisson's own pamphlet in the Quarterly Review. All in all, about ninety pamphlets were published in a short period on both sides of the great bullion controversy. The climax came in May 1811, when Parliament finally got around to debating the report. After four days of debate, all Francis Horner's resolutions incorporating the essence of the report went down to a ringing defeat. The most important resolutions were his first and his last— the first outlined the responsibility of the bank's over-issue for the price inflation and the depreciation of the pound. 
This resolution was defeated by a vote of 151 to 75. Horner's final resolution, providing for resumption of the gold standard in two years, lost by a far wider margin, 180 to 45. Nicholas Van Sittert then rubbed it in for the government, getting Parliament to pass resolutions defending the government's and the bank's view of the controversy. Most characteristic was Van Sittert's third resolution, restating the classic nonsense in a declaration almost as fatuous as King Canute's command to the tides, or a state legislature's redefinition of pie. Parliament declared that the promissory notes of the said company, the Bank of England, have hitherto been and are at this time held in public estimation to be equivalent to the legal coin of the realm, and generally accepted as such in all pecuniary transactions. Even though the inflation and the depreciation proceeded apace, the monetary controversy died out for the duration of the Napoleonic Wars. In despair, and perhaps to reveal the absurdity of Van Sittert's case, the great Peter Lord King now decided to take direct personal action in protest against the depreciating paper pound. While the pound was not officially legal tender, it was treated as such by government and public alike. To dramatize the true situation, Lord King, in 1811, proclaimed that henceforth he would only accept rent from his tenants, either in gold coin or in banknotes at their market discount. In short, he would insist on the gold equivalent in pounds. King's heroic action forced the government to impose legal tender for payment of rent at the official par of twenty-one shillings to the gold guinea, and the following year Parliament completed the coup by extending legal tender coercion to all payments of every type. 3. Deflation and the Return to Gold Needless to say, the self-same establishment politicians who had used war as their supreme excuse for continuing the restriction failed to jump with alacrity to go back to the gold standard when the war finally ended in 1815. And yet, conditions were certainly ripe. In a pattern that would set the tone for over a century, the inflationary credit boom of wartime was quickly succeeded by a post-war deflation of money, credit, and prices. The wartime inflation was succeeded by a post-war deflationary recession. There is no evidence whatever that the Bank of England deliberately contracted the money supply to pave the way for a return to gold at the pre-war par. It was simply the beginning of the classic pattern of fractional reserve banking powered by a central bank, the creation of boom and bust. Total Bank of England credit fell from 44.9 million pounds on 31 August 1815 to 34.4 million pounds a year later, a drop of 24%. Bank deposits fell by about 15% in the same period, while bank notes fell by 11%. The bank contraction exerted a powerful leverage effect on the country banks, 
Many country banks failed from 1814 to 1816, and country banknote circulation fell from 22.7 million pounds in 1814 to 19 million pounds in 1815, and then to 15.1 million pounds in 1816. In short, country banknotes outstanding fell by 33.5% over the two-year period, and by 20.5% from 1815 to 1816. We may now arrive at a rough estimate of the total contraction of the money supply from August 1815 to August 1816. Total money supply, banknotes plus bank deposits plus country banknotes, amounted to approximately 60.7 million pounds in 1815. It fell to 50.4 million pounds the following year, a drop of 17% in one year. The monetary contraction, combined with general public expectations of a return to gold, drove the market gold premium over the official par down nearly to the par price. The monetary inflation had driven the market gold price up to 5.1 pounds at the end of 1813, which was 145% of the old official pre-restriction par of 3 pounds, 17 shillings, 10.5 pence. After Napoleon's retirement to Elba, the gold price fell to 4 pounds, 5 shillings, a premium of only 8%. Then, on Napoleon's return to France, the gold price of the pound shot up nearly to its 1813 peak. After Waterloo, once again, the gold price fell sharply and steadily, reaching three pounds, eighteen shillings, six pence in October 1816, a premium of less than one percent. Similarly, the market price of silver fell from a peak premium of 38% in 1813 to a premium of only a little over 2% in the first post-war year of 1816. And the price of foreign exchange at Hamburg fell from a premium of 44% in 1813 down to par in 1816. Price deflation accompanied the monetary contraction, British prices falling from a peak of 198 in 1814, 1790 being equal to 100, to 135 in 1816. Conditions were now perfect to return to gold, and immediate resumption could have been achieved with no further transition problems. But the British establishment dithered, its only constructive step in 1816 being Parliament's dropping of the formal bimetallic standard, which had only resulted in a de facto gold standard in the 18th century and the adoption of a formal gold standard. Silver, from then on, would only be subsidiary coin. But apart from stating that when Britain did go back to a specie standard, it would be going back to gold, nothing else was done.
The problem was a pervasive desire in the establishment to resume cheap credit and inflation, as well as an even more widespread phobia about deflation that marred the analysis and policy conclusions of even the most influential champions of a return to gold payments. The bulk of anti-bullionists displayed their hypocrisy and intellectual bankruptcy by reversing their supposed analytical stance. In short, those who stoutly denied all during the era of inflation that over-issue of banknotes had any impact on domestic prices or foreign exchange rates now reversed their course and blamed the fall in prices, as well as the post-war depression, squarely on the contraction of the money supply and the eventual resumption of specie payments. What they wanted, therefore, was easy money and inflation, and they were willing to use any arguments at hand, however inconsistent, to achieve their goal. What they seemed unwilling to realize is that any inflationary boom, especially that of a lengthy and major war, will collapse at war's end into depression and deflation. Much of the deflation was the result of the post-war depression and bankruptcies, for the initial post-war deflation occurred years before the actual return to gold, or even the passage of the Resumption Act. The post-war depression was the market's way of readjusting the economy to the enormous distortions of production and investment brought about by the skewed demands of wartime and the inflationary credit boom. In short, the post-war depression was the painful but necessary process of liquidating the distortions of the wartime inflation and of returning to a healthy peacetime economy efficiently serving the consumers. Another cause of the deflation was industrial and economic progress. The end of the war liberated England to launch one of the greatest periods of economic growth in its history. The Industrial Revolution could at last develop freely and raise the standard of living of the mass of Englishmen, something it could not do when the industrial engine had been diverted to the unproductive waste of war. As a result of the great increase of production, prices kept falling in Britain throughout the 1820s, long past the time when this welcome drop in the cost of living, this deflation, could plausibly be blamed on the return to gold in 1821. The anti-deflation hysteria and the desire to keep inflating delayed the return to gold for five years after 1816. When it became clear that there would be no immediate resumption, the pound began to depreciate again, the price of silver bullion rising from 2% above par in 1816 to 12% premium on 1818. Similarly, the foreign exchange rate at Hamburg rose from par to 5% above, and domestic prices rose from 135 in 1816 to 150 two years later. The weakening of the pound by disappointed expectations of immediate resumption was also greatly compounded by an expansion of bank advances and note issues. 
When the restriction came up for one of its periodic renewals in the spring of 1816, Chancellor of the Exchequer Van Sittert pleaded for two more years of renewal, so that business could acquire more needed cheap credit. Van Sittert was easily able to defeat Francis Horner's resolution for resumption of specie payment in two years. Agriculturists, as usual, had overexpanded and went heavily into debt during the wartime inflation, and then complained heavily when the bubble burst and turned to the government to inflate or expand spending on their behalf. The quarterly review, reflecting Tory devotion to the interests of aristocratic large landlords, shifted gears from favoring the bullion report to bitterly denouncing deflation. The most extreme of the inflationists now emerged in the form of two banker brothers from Birmingham, Thomas, 1783 to 1856, and Matthias Atwood, 1779 to 1851, who also served as the spokesman for the iron and brass industry of the city. Birmingham, as the center of armaments manufacture, had been a major beneficiary of the war boom. Thomas Robert Malthus, as we have seen, for a few years urged the government to increase deficits to cure the alleged ills of underconsumption, but abandoned this line of thought as soon as the post-war agricultural and economic depression was over. But the prolific Atwoods were able to make inflation and permanent inconvertible fiat paper money a lifelong crusade. Nothing, for example, could be more starkly opposed to Say's crucial law of markets than the unabashed assertion of Thomas Atwood in an 1817 open letter to Van Sittert, that it is the chief purpose of this letter to show that the issue of money will create markets, and that it is upon the abundance or scarcity of money that the extent of all markets principally depends. Along with fiat money and monetary inflation, the Atwoods and their counterparts in the northern industrial city of Liverpool were able to persuade the government to embark on a large-scale program of deficits, relief, and public works to try to generate another inflationary boom. James Mill warned Ricardo in the autumn of 1816 that some villainous schemes of finance were afoot, and sure enough, the government proposed a deficit bond issue to finance public works, and also loaned out three-quarters of a million pounds during 1817. The temporary resurgence of inflation and prosperity in 1818 was the result, according to the fiery, erratic, hard-money radical journalist William Cobbett, of the prodding by Matthias Atwood upon Van Sittert, who caused bales of paper money to be poured out via Bank of England loans to the government. Indeed, it was undoubtedly the weakening of the pound in 1817 and 1818 that tipped the scales and led to Parliament's passing the act of resuming payments in gold in May 1819. Resumption in gold coin was supposed to begin four years hence, but actually gold coin payments were launched on the banner day of 8 May 1821. 
even though the resultant gold coin standard served as the cornerstone of Britain's economic growth and prosperity for nearly a century, the fierce opposition, confusion, and vacillating of the government made arriving at the proper result seem almost a miracle. The bank opposed resumption down to the very passage of the law in 1819, and it was the government's temporarily cooling relations with the bank that allowed room for the resumption law. Yet, even though a determined effort was launched by men such as Alexander Baring, 1774-1848, the Atwoods, and the Birmingham manufacturing interests, and the landed aristocrats to overturn resumption, the gold standard held, and was even resumed earlier than scheduled, in 1821. Thus the Earl of Carnarvon in mid-1821, denouncing the Resumption Act for lowering agricultural prices and calling for monetary expansion and greater government expenditures, openly raised the standard of the landed aristocracy as against the cosmopolitan money men and financiers. He called upon the House to consider the consequences of destroying by its means the aristocracy of the country, the gentlemen and the yeomanry of England, on whose existence our institutions alone could rest. The moneyed interest had been formed by the calls of our finances. They could be removed. They were inhabitants of this or of any other country." but the stability of our institutions and the safety of the throne itself depended on our agricultural population. And yet the gold coin standard held. It held even though two of the most influential champions of resumption were weak reeds when it came to resisting the anti-deflation hysteria. At the end of the war, Ricardo, in his Proposals for an Economical and Secure Currency, 1816, reverted to his 1811 gold bullion proposal, in which resumption would take place not in coin, but in large ingots or gold bars, thereby limiting the gold standard to a few wealthy traders. Gold would not then be the true standard currency of the realm, and would be but a flimsy check against the propensity of government and the banking system to inflate money and credit. After the publication of his Principles of Political Economy in 1817, David Ricardo was the most celebrated economist in England, and his views on currency, as well as other economic problems, carried great weight. At the urging of his mentor, James Mill, Ricardo then entered Parliament in 1819 to battle for his economic views until his death in 1823. He particularly lent his great prestige to urging resumption of gold payments, and somehow his bullion plan lost out rapidly to the more consistent and more thoroughgoing gold coin standard. The most important single politician responsible for the return to gold was the remarkable Tory statesman Robert Peel the Younger, 1788-1859, who gave his name, Peel's Act, to the Resumption Law. 
Peel was later, as Prime Minister, to be responsible during the mid-1840s for the repeal of the notorious Corn Laws, as well as the attempt to establish the currency principle into law in Peel's Act of 1844. Peel's accomplishments were particularly remarkable for being bred to the political purple by his distinguished High Tory father, Peel was the eldest son of Sir Robert Peel the Elder, a leading Lancashire cotton manufacturer whose own father had established the first calico cotton factory in Lancashire. Sir Robert was a dyed-in-the-wool Tory statist, a fervent supporter of William Pitt, who had written a pamphlet in 1780 praising the national debt productive of national prosperity. As a member of Parliament, the elder Peel had ardently backed the war against France, had put through the first Factory Act, and had opposed the Bullion Report in 1811. When young Robert was born, Sir Robert dedicated his firstborn son to the world of politics. The brilliant youth went to Harrow, where he was a friend and classmate of Lord Byron, and entered Christ Church College in Oxford in 1805. In 1808, Peel graduated with high honors, and his doting father promptly purchased him a seat in Parliament the following year. The precocious 21-year-old member of Parliament soon became Undersecretary for War and the Colonies, whose ministry conducted the war against France, and in 1812 he became for six years the Chief Secretary for Ireland. There he followed his father's high Tory principles by fiercely repressing the Irish and taking the lead in opposing the emancipation of Catholics in Great Britain. In 1811, young Peel joined his father in bitter opposition to the Bullion Report. In 1819, when the House of Commons named a committee to study the resumption of specie payments, young Robert Peel was chosen chairman over far more experienced members, such as Huckesson, Canning, and the ardent bullionist and member of the Bullion Committee, the Whig, George Tierney. Yet Robert Peel orchestrated the report favorable to resumption, and it was Peel who shepherded the resumption law through Parliament. Peel thereby displayed the beginning of his memorable lifelong series of shifts away from high Tory statism and towards classical liberalism. Towards, in short, hard money, free trade, and emancipation of the Roman Catholics of Britain. George Canning was in awe at Peel's achievement in attaining the gold coin standard, calling this feat the greatest wonder he had witnessed in the political world. It was particularly piquant that, in effecting this notable change of heart, the younger Peel had to break with his father, who not only opposed resumption, but also signed the petition of several hundred merchants, bankers, traders, and others of the City of London, warning of great distress should the committee's recommendation ever become law. A crucial question, then, is how Robert Peel came to change his mind. Professor Rashid has performed the service of unearthing as the likely instrument of Peel's conversion his former tutor at Oriel College, Oxford, the Reverend Edward Copleston, 1776-1849. 
Copleston was the son of a rector in Devonshire, and was descended from an ancient landed Devon family. Graduating from Corpus Christi College, Oxford, in 1795, Copleston became a fellow at Oriel College, getting his M.A. from there in 1797, and becoming a tutor at Oriel and professor of poetry at Oxford. Copleston later became dean at Oriel, and by 1814 had risen to provost of Oriel College. He was highly influential at Oxford, and one of the main persons responsible for the raising of academic standards and the subsequent rise of Oxford to its once high estate. Although a staunch Tory and an influential clerical counselor to the Tory leadership, Copleston was a moderate liberal in the Anglican Church and an advocate of Catholic emancipation. As early as 1811, Copleston had become a determined opponent of inflation and depreciation, especially criticizing its destructive effect on creditors and holders of fixed incomes. In 1819, he decided to intervene in the new bullionist struggle by publishing two pamphlets directed to his former pupil. The first, Letter to the Right Honorable Robert Peel on the Pernicious Effects of a Variable Standard of Value, was published on 19 January 1819, and it was quickly recommended on the floor of the House of Commons by the fiery Whig and proponent of immediate resumption, George Tierney. The pamphlet was also praised in an editorial in the Times. The first edition of the letter was sold out immediately, and within a month three editions had been printed. In March, Copleston published a second letter, elaborating on the arguments of the first, particularly on the ill effects that inflation and a depreciating pound had on the poor. The large printing of the second letter was quickly sold out, and a second edition was issued in May. Evidence of Copleston's influence on Peel comes from the latter's correspondence with his favorite tutor at Oxford, his close friend, the Reverend Charles Lloyd. Lloyd, who was indeed a rival Anglo-Catholic force to Copleston at Oxford, wrote to Peel recommending Copleston's letter at the same time that Peel was recommending it to him. Peel notes that the pamphlet has made a great impression in Parliament, including among its admirers Canning and Huckesson. In fact, it seems likely from Peel's remarks that Copleston's clear-cut restatement of bullionist principle was the first pamphlet he had ever read on the subject. Matthias Atwood, indeed, went so far as to claim that Peel and Huskisson were followers of Copleston's ideas. If Copleston was crucially influential, then his violent attack in the pamphlet on what Peel referred to as the imbecility of Nicholas Van Sittert might have played a large role in reducing Van Sittert's influence and getting government policy on resumption changed. Yet, in the post-resumption debate, even Copleston floundered, claiming in the Quarterly Review in 1821 that while he had upheld the principle of specie payments, he had been opposed to immediate resumption. Complaining about the agricultural distress, he blamed the immediate resumption on the influence of Ricardo, ignoring the latter's own phobia about deflation.
Thus, the two most influential writers pushing Parliament into resumption, Ricardo and Edward Copleston, each was uncertain about the gold coin standard in the face of deflation. Robert Peel's achievement appears, then, all the more miraculous. Of particular interest is Copleston's brilliance and possible originality in his challenge to Ricardo by reviving, perhaps unwittingly, the complete bullionist or pre-Austrian monetary tradition of Catillon and Lord King. Copleston, in the first place, attacked Ricardo's mechanistic assertion that exchange rates measure the degree of depreciation, this doctrine resting on the equally mechanistic view that a variation in price caused by an altered value of money is common at once to all commodities. Copleston countered that it was precisely because prices do not adjust smoothly, instantly, and uniformly to inflation that the inflation process is so painful and destructive. The fact undoubtedly is that the altered value of money does not affect all prices at the same time, but that wide intervals occur, during which one class is compelled to buy dear while they sell cheap, and others have no prospect whatever of indemnity or of regaining the relative position they once occupied. In short, Copleston pointed out the profound truth that in a transition period to a new monetary equilibrium, there are always gains by those whose selling prices rise faster than their buying prices, and losses by those whose costs rise faster than selling prices, and who are late in receiving the new money. But even further, Copleston points out that some of these changes in relative income and wealth will be permanent. In short, changes in the money supply are never neutral to the economy, and their effects are never confined to the level of prices. Taking issue with David Hume's famous assertion that an increase of the quantity of money in a country generates prosperity, Copleston pointed to the impoverishment of the Spanish and English peasantry from the monetary and price inflation of the 16th century. He noted shrewdly in a lesson that could well be heeded today that while pure theory inculcates the neutral and necessary tendency towards an equitable adjustment, it also leaves the intermediate difficulties and delays out of the question as frictions in a mechanical problem. On the other hand, Copleston was perceptive enough to point out that the path toward equilibrium is faster in monetary than in real matters. In monetary affairs, he noted, the level is found almost immediately. Other commodities require some time to produce them, and the fortunate holder of large quantities may make great profits before an adequate competition can grow up. But in these, money, the time and labor required for the production count for nothing. The commodity is always afloat, waiting only the impulse of profit to determine its direction to the best market. 4. Questioning Fractional Reserve Banking Britain and the United States 
Great Britain had now experienced the pain and deprivation of what would become a classic business cycle, that is, the expansion of money, the rise in prices, the euphoric boom, all fueled by the monetary inflation of a fractional reserve banking system, succeeded by a monetary contraction with attendant depression, fall in prices, bankruptcies, unemployment, and dislocations. And behind this boom and bust, guiding, organizing, centralizing, and directing the monetary expansion and contraction was the powerful central bank, created and privileged by the central government. In short, it was forcefully impressed upon the public that fractional reserve banks, especially when organized under a central bank, can and do create and then destroy money, distorting and impoverishing the public and the economy in their wake. It is no wonder that severe critics of fractional reserve banking quickly arose, indicting the bank's actions and the system itself, and noting their responsibility for the boom-bust cycle. Professor Frank W. Fetter notes the groundswell of criticism of all banks, but he describes the invective against banks as exploiters of the common people with an air of bemusement at the public's irrationality. But surely this populist invective was well justified. The banks were indeed privileged by the government, enabled to inflate, and thus to set in motion a twofold great injury upon the public an inflationary boom dislocating production and investment and wiping out the savings of the thrifty, followed by a painful contractionary bust necessary to correcting the distortions of the boom. All of this could properly be laid to the door of the privileged central bank-run fractional reserve banking system. Looked at in that light, the radical denunciations of banks without benefit of economic analysis look more like a deeper level of analysis than Fetter realizes. Fetter describes these opponents of banking as follows. The idea appeared increasingly that banks deprived the public of its natural metallic money and had created paper money as an instrument of oppression. Men who were far apart on most points were in agreement that somebody was making too much money from the paper money system. The restrained criticism of Ricardo under James Mill's urgings of the bank's profits, the strictures of obscure pamphleteers that bankers appear to be infinitely more mischievous than the coiners of base money, that is, counterfeiters of coin, and that both the Bank of England and the country banks had made unfair gains from the restriction measure. The wholesale invective of Cobbett against bankers as a class, and the denunciations in Jonathan Wooler's Black Dwarf, in Lee Hunt's Examiner, and in Sherwin's Political Register, where, without benefit of economic analysis, these radical journals reiterated that the paper-money system was one of the oppressors of the people. In 1819, when Parliament was considering resumption, Sherwin's Political Register offered this advice. Let our tyrants turn their infamous paper into coin of the same weight and fineness as that of which the people have been deprived. 
Fetter indicts the radical hard-money journalist William Cobbett for alleged inconsistency in bitterly denouncing the restriction and the bank's inflation, and then attacking the bank for deflating after the war and causing further distress. Yet there is no real inconsistency in attacking the central bank and the fractional reserve banks for first inflating and then contracting, for that is precisely what they had done, and the entire distress of the boom-bust cycle can thus be laid at their doors. Knowingly or not, these radical critics of fractional reserve banking were simply revising and applying the great tradition of hostility to fractional reserve banking and devotion to 100% reserve in 18th century Britain, for example, Hume, Harris, Vanderlint, a tradition that had been unfortunately derailed by Adam Smith's apologetics for bank paper. In France, the 100% reserve anti-bank tradition had already been revived, as we have seen, by J.B. Say and Destut de Tracy. In the United States, meanwhile, similar conditions were bringing about similar results. The United States, too, had entered the Napoleonic Wars in 1812 and subsequently experienced wartime boom, inconvertible banknotes, and comparable grievous inflation. The difference was that the United States had managed to get rid of its central bank, the first bank of the United States, in 1811, so it achieved inflationary results by the federal governments permitting the private banks to suspend specie payments in August 1814, allowing them to continue in operation and expand credit without having to redeem their notes or deposits. This intolerable situation was allowed to continue for two years after the end of the war, until February 1817, at which point the Madison administration made an inflationary compact with the nation's banks. The compact provided that the United States would re-establish a privileged second bank of the United States, which would then proceed to inflate credit by at least an agreed-upon amount, in return for the banks graciously consenting to resume meeting their contractual obligations to pay their debts in specie. An inflationary boom, fueled by an expanding second bank, ensued, to be followed by the catastrophic panic of 1819, in which the second bank was forced to contract suddenly in order to save itself. The Panic of 1819 confirmed Thomas Jefferson's hostility to fractional reserve banking, and we have seen how he and his friend and old opponent, John Adams, both declared their enthusiasm for Destut de Tracy's ultra-hard-money treatise on economics. Jefferson was moved by the panic to draw up a remedial plan for reducing the circulating medium, which he asked his friend William Cabell Reeves to introduce into the Virginia legislature without disclosing his authorship. The goal of the plan was bluntly stated as the eternal suppression of bank paper. 
The method was to reduce the circulating medium to the level of specie proportionately over a five-year period, until paper money was withdrawn completely and totally redeemed in specie. After that, the money in circulation would consist solely of specie. John Adams agreed wholeheartedly. In a letter to his old opponent, the great libertarian Jeffersonian anti-bank and anti-tariff theoretician John Taylor of Caroline, Adams blamed the banks for the 1819-1820 depression. He attacked any issue of paper money beyond specie in the bank as theft, a position he had elaborated years earlier. Every dollar of a bank bill that is issued beyond the quantity of gold and silver in the vaults represents nothing and is therefore a cheat upon somebody. Jefferson's close friend and son-in-law, Governor Thomas Randolph of Virginia, summed up in his inaugural address of December 1820 the predominant Virginia attitude toward banks. Randolph pointed out that specie, in universal demand, had a relatively stable value, whereas banks caused great fluctuations in the supply and value of paper money, with attendant distress. Randolph endorsed not only the collection of all taxes in specie, which later on the federal level became the Independent Treasury Plan, but also envisioned a currency backed 100% in specie. But the most important impact of the Panic of 1819 on American thought was not simply to reconfirm the hard money advocates of the older generation. It was to generate and stimulate a new, mighty, ultra-hard money movement, which would later become the Jacksonian movement of the 1830s and 1840s. The goal of the great Jacksonian movement was a monetary system consisting wholly of gold, or of 100% gold-backed notes or deposits. Its first goal, achieved after great struggle in the 1830s, was to eliminate the second bank of the United States. Its second, largely achieved a decade later, was to separate the federal government totally from the banking system by confining its receipts and monetary transactions solely to specie, the independent treasury. Its final goal, only partially achieved, was to outlaw fractional reserve banking altogether, a goal that might well have succeeded if the Democratic Party had not been fatally sundered by the slavery issue. A remarkably large number of future Jacksonian leaders learned their anti-bank, hard-money views from experiencing the Panic of 1819. General Andrew Jackson, 1767 to 1845, himself, a wealthy Nashville, Tennessee cotton planter, adopted his lifelong anti-bank views as a result of the panic. Indeed, he quickly became the fervent leader of the opposition to inconvertible state paper in Tennessee, as well as to laws for relief of debtors. Top Jacksonian Senator Thomas Hart Benton, 1782-1858, of Missouri, affectionately termed Old Bullion for his devotion to gold and hard money, and who was slated to be Martin Van Buren's Jacksonian successor in the presidency, 
was converted from his previous inflationist views by the Panic of 1819. And young future Jacksonian and eventual president James K. Polk, 1795-1849, a wealthy cotton planter, began his political career in the Tennessee legislature in 1820 by advocating a speedy return to specie payments. Historians have had great difficulty interpreting the essential nature of the Jacksonian movement, or, for that matter, the economic views of Thomas Jefferson and the Jeffersonians. Jefferson, for example, has been generally perceived as a devoted agrarian, opposed to commerce and manufacturing, and Jeffersonian John Taylor of Caroline has been labeled in the same way. In reality, it is hard to see how any agrarian can be opposed to a commerce essential to exporting farm products as well as importing manufactured and other goods to the farmers. It is true that Jefferson, Taylor, and others were devoted farmers and personally disliked cities, but they were not opposed to either commerce or industry. What they were opposed to was governmental subsidy and artificial force-feeding of industrial or urban growth. The Jeffersonians favored laissez-faire, private property rights, and the free market, and were therefore opposed to governmental subsidies, protective tariffs, and cheap inflationary bank credit. The Jacksonians, too, had strict laissez-faire views, except that there were naturally proportionately more who lived in cities or worked in industry. Jacksonians have been variously and even chaotically interpreted by historians as being a. wild-eyed agrarian hillbillies opposed to commerce and capitalism, historians at the turn of the twentieth century, b. pre-New Dealers interested in forging a worker-farmer uprising against national Republican Whig capitalism, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., and c. Spokesmen for rising entrepreneurs and private state-chartered banks trying to throw off central bank shackles upon state bank inflation, Bray Hammond. The wild inconsistencies of these interpretations stem from most historians conflating the free market and state capitalism. The Jeffersonians and Jacksonians were not anti-capitalist, but ardently in favor, but to them, in contrast to their enemies, the Federalists and Whigs, genuine capitalism occurs only when commerce and manufacturing are free free of both subsidies and constricting controls. Whereas Federalists and Whigs were mercantilists who favored state capitalism, cheap credit, protective tariff, a national debt, and big government, the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians were free market or laissez-faire capitalists who wanted capitalism and economic growth to develop only under freedom and free markets that is, under a system of free trade, free enterprise, ultra-minimal government, and ultra-hard money. Neither was Jefferson or Jacksonian leadership in any way ignorant or hillbilly. Jefferson himself, as well as most of the other leaders, was thoroughly familiar with the literature of the bullionist controversy, as well as the economic classics. 
and most of the younger generation of bright economic thinkers and writers were in the Jacksonian camp. Thus Amos Kendall, influential editor of the Frankfurt, Kentucky Argus, and later to be one of the leading brain-trusters in President Jackson's kitchen cabinet, and his main advisor in the bank war, became a bitter opponent of the banking system as a result of the Panic of 1819. The very thought of banks he now found disgusting. The best method of rendering them harmless, he concluded, was simply to prohibit them by constitutional amendment. If this were not feasible, then the banks should be required to post security with the courts, enabling them to redeem all their paper. One of America's first economists, Condi Raguet, 1784-1842, found his economic outlook totally transformed by the Panic of 1819. A Philadelphia merchant and attorney of French descent, Raguet had published in 1815 an inflationist and protectionist tract, an inquiry into the causes of the present state of the circulating medium. But in the midst of the panic, Raguet, as state senator from Philadelphia, headed a committee in 1820 and 1821 that looked closely into the causes of and possible remedies for the unprecedented economic depression. Raguet concluded that the depression had been caused by bank credit expansion in the boom, followed by a subsequent contraction when the boom caused specie to drain out of the bank vaults. As a result, Raguet emerged from the depression a dedicated opponent of fractional reserve banking and a convinced partisan of free trade. He was impressed that out of the leading citizens and legislators of nineteen counties to whom the Raguet Committee sent a questionnaire, sixteen counties replied flatly that the advantages of the banking system did not outweigh its evils. From then on, Raguet favored one hundred percent reserve banking to specie, and while not a Jacksonian politically, staunchly supported the Jacksonian independent treasury plan that divorced the treasury from banks or bank paper. Raguet later expanded his views in his Of the Principles of Banking, 1830, a treatise on currency and banking, 1839 and 1840, Principles of Free Trade, 1835, and in a series of journals which he launched in the late 1830s, which included a documentary history of the current commercial crisis, as well as reprints of Ricardo and other monetary theorists, and of the Bullion Report. Raguet explained in his Treatise on Money and Banking how expansion of bank credit brought about a boom, higher prices, a demand to export specie, and a consequent call upon the banks for specie contraction and crisis. Remarkably, he also anticipated James Wilson of The Economist by almost a decade in demonstrating, in a pre-Austrian treatment of the business cycle, how the boom brought about over-investment in fixed capital goods. Thus Raguet wrote, At the winding up of the catastrophe, it is discovered that during the whole of this operation, consumption has been increasing faster than production 
that the community is poorer in the end than when it began, that instead of food and clothing it has railroads and canals adequate for the transportation of double the quantity of produce and merchandise than there is to be transported, and that the whole of the appearance of prosperity which was exhibited while the currency was gradually increasing in quantity was like the appearance of wealth and affluence which the spendthrift exhibits while running through his estate, and, like it, destined to be followed by a period of distress and inactivity. The difference is that the more celebrated Wilson, a leader of the so-called banking school of Britain, never realized that the overinvestment was caused by monetary and credit expansion. In short, he never caught up with Raguet and the Jacksonians in the United States. The Panic of 1819 also inspired the publication of the first systematic treatise on political economy in the United States, Thoughts on Political Economy, 1820, by the Baltimore lawyer Daniel Raymond, 1786-1849. Raymond was born into a conservative Connecticut Federalist family, and his book was a paean to protective tariffs and to the nationalist Alexander Hamilton, whom Raymond considered the only truly sound political economist. But even Hamilton nodded, according to Raymond, on the bank question, and Raymond, too, came out in opposition to bank credit expansion and in favor of 100% specie banking. Criticizing Hamilton's and Adam Smith's assertion that banknotes add to the national capital by economizing on specie, Raymond cited David Hume's statement that, in proportion as money is increased in quantity, it must be depreciated in value. Bank credit also promotes extravagant speculation, raises prices of domestic goods in export markets, and brings about a deficit in the balance of trade. To Raymond, the issuing of any banknotes beyond specie was, quite simply, a stupendous fraud. Ideally, he believed that the federal government should eliminate bank paper entirely and supply the country with a national paper backed 100% by specie. As can be seen from the case of Raymond, it was not only the Jacksonians who came to staunch anti-fractional reserve bank position during the 1819-1821 Depression. Young frontier state representative from western Tennessee, Davy Crockett, 1786-1836, future Whig leader and enemy of the Jacksonians, stated that he considered the whole banking system a species of swindling on a large scale. Protectionist and future Whig president, General William Henry Harrison, 1773-1841, ran successfully for the Ohio State Senate in the autumn of 1819. When attacked at a local pre-election citizens' meeting for being a director of a local branch of the Bank of the United States, Harrison, in a lengthy reply, insisted that he was a sworn enemy of all banks, and especially of the Bank of the United States, and that he was unalterably opposed to its establishment and continuation. 
And finally, at least at this time, Secretary of State and future President John Quincy Adams fully shared his father's hostility to all fractional reserve banking. To a Frenchman who had sent him a plan for federal government paper money, Adams commended the famous Bank of Amsterdam, where paper was always a representative and nothing more of specie in its vaults. 5. Monetary and Banking Thought on the Continent Monetary thought on the European continent often paralleled the richer and more developed controversy in Great Britain. In Sweden, notably enough, a bullionist controversy developed a half-century before the more famous one in Great Britain. Since few Britons were versed in the Swedish language, the controversy and its significance went unremarked outside Sweden. In the mid-18th century, Sweden experienced four decades, specifically 1739 through 1772, of roughly democratic government, with political power in the hands of the Parliament, or Riksdag, and with representatives chosen from four estates, nobility, clergy, middle class, and peasants. Two political parties battling for power in this era, in the nomenclature reminiscent of Gulliver's travels, were the Hats and the Caps. The Hats, who were in power from the beginning of the grandiloquently named Age of Freedom until 1765, were mercantilists, who believed in using inflation for economic development. Export subsidies, direct subsidies, cheap loans, and high protective tariffs were all used to build internal improvements and to foster favored industries, especially textile manufacturing. A favorite motto of the hats was, Swedish men in Swedish clothing. The choice method of financing these lavish expenditures was inflationary credit expansion by the Central Bank of Sweden. The convenient proto-Keynesian hat theory was that an increased money supply would all go into increased development and output, rather than higher prices. As for the nagging thought that deficits might ensue in the balance of payments, there was no need to worry, since imports would be held down by direct government controls, while increased national income would, in some odd way, promote increased exports. After several years of inflationary bank credit expansion, the Swedish government went off the silver standard in 1745, and from then on was free to inflate ad libitum. Thus, total inconvertible banknotes in circulation in 1745 were $6.9 million, doubling until 1754, when total circulation was $13.7 million. Monetary inflation accelerated after that, more than doubling in the next four years, reaching $33.1 million in 1758. Finally, the supply of banknotes reached a peak in 1762 at $44.5 million, a 545% increase over 1745, or an average of 32.1% per year.
In response to the monetary expansion, prices remained stable for a few years, and then rose from 1749 to 1756, the general price index rising 23% in the seven years. After that, as usually happens, the price rise accelerated, doubling in the next eight years and reaching a peak in 1764. The biggest concern was the foreign exchange rate, which rose even more precipitately. Thus, after remaining only five or six percent above par from 1752 to 1755, the rate of Hamburg Mark Bancos, in terms of dollars, rose to 247 percent above par in 1765. The fall in the foreign exchange value of the dollar led the Hatt government to attempt direct control of foreign exchange rates. A foreign exchange office was established in 1747 to try to push rates down, using massive French government subsidies to prop up dollars in the foreign exchange market. The exchange office succeeded for a few years, bringing the price of Hamburg Mark Bancos down, for example, from 24% above par in 1748 to 5 or 6% above par from 1752 to 1755. But an artificially falling foreign exchange rate, combined with rising domestic prices, amounted to an enormous subsidy of imports into Sweden. The resulting huge deficit in the balance of payments raised the increasing problem of how a country on inconvertible paper is going to finance the deficits. Finally, loans and subsidies from abroad ceased. The house of cards collapsed, and foreign exchange rates spiraled upward. It is interesting to see how the hat theoreticians, led by one Edward Runeberg, explained the mounting crisis. Like the anti-bullionists and the later banking school theorists in Britain, they, even more starkly, reversed the causal chain. The problem, the hats declared, originated in the deficit in the balance of payments. Where the deficit came from was far more murky. Presumably it was a willful act of greedy consumers and importers. The deficit then caused the price of foreign exchange to rise, which in turn raised the prices of domestic goods in export markets, which in turn pulled up all the prices of domestic goods. Hence the entire domestic inflation was really due to the mysterious deficit in the balance of payments. The policy conclusion was clear to the hats, restrict imports by coercion. Not once did the hat theoreticians admit that there could be a causal chain running from increased banknote issue to prices and exchange rates. On the contrary, the hats advocated further issues in bank money to raise domestic production, which would in turn somehow increase exports and thereby increase foreign exchange earnings and, along with a coerced restriction of imports, cure the deficit.
In addition to massive private credits, the inflation of money and credit by the Bank of Sweden financed government deficits, many of which were used for heavy Swedish military expenses to fight in the multinational Seven Years' War, 1756-1763. As the inflation began to accelerate in 1756, cap political strength grew steadily, in reaction not only to the inflationary spiral, but also to participation in a widely unpopular war. The caps, who found their constituency among small merchants and civil servants injured by inflation, were in favor of free trade and laissez-faire, and opposed to mercantilism and government controls. As the inflation proceeded, the caps were able to show how the government-engineered inflation aided privileged manufacturers with cheap bank loans. They also demonstrated how hat privileges and subsidies aided certain privileged commercial capitalists, especially iron exporters. Smaller industrialists, merchants, and importers opposed to special privilege were the backbone of the cap party. Worried by rising cap power, the hats finally stopped the monetary inflation in 1762, but prices and exchange rates continued to rise as expectations of further inflation still held sway. Finally, the caps toppled the hats in 1765 and promptly ended the inflation by a heroic policy of monetary deflation, lowering the total supply of banknotes to $33.5 million in 1768, or a 25% drop in seven years, most of it since 1765. The result was, of course, a sharp deflation in prices and foreign exchange, the Mark Banco rate falling from 247% of par in 1765 to 117% of par three years later. Output and unemployment declined sharply as well. Throughout this boom-bust cycle, the caps firmly took what would later be called the bullionist position. The excess issue of banknotes, especially with an inconvertible currency, brought about rises in price and in foreign exchange rates. As we have indicated, the caps were wisely not content with simply pointing out the economic flaws in the hat's reasoning. They also attacked the special privileges enjoyed by the hats and showed how the hat constituency benefited by inflation and mercantilism. The deflationary course taken by the caps in power may be economically justified by pointing out that drastic measures were necessary to reverse inflationary expectations. But the caps stressed another attractive political argument, retribution. Why shouldn't the wealthy hat merchants and industrialist profiteers from inflation pay the major price for a return to the silver standard and sound money? In this way, deflation would reward those who had suffered from inflation, and the profiteers from the previous inflation would, in a sense, pay reparations to compensate the previous victims of inflation. This was far from an absurd program, 
and so the cap set out, quite frankly, to deflate prices and exchange rates down to the pre-1745 hat inflation and to the old silver par with the dollar. Economically, too, the caps had an important argument. Since banknotes received their true value from their silver reserves, the dollar should always designate the same quantity or weight of specie. Two of the leading cap economists, however, argued against the deflation, and instead suggested going back to silver at the existing rate of twice the old par. One was the Reverend Anders Chidenius, 1729-1803, a Lutheran pastor from a small city on the western coast of Finland. Coming from a coastal city in a Finland colonized by Sweden, the kingdom of Sweden and Finland, and whose trade suffered from state privileges to Stockholm and other Swedish interests, Chidenius early spoke and wrote numerous pamphlets against mercantilism and in favor of free trade. He also propounded a philosophy of natural law and natural rights of every individual. In 1766, as a representative of the Finnish clergy in the Riksdag, Chidenius was censured and removed from Parliament for the flagrant crime, in the Age of Freedom, of writing a tract, the succor of the realm by a natural finance system, attacking the policy of deflation to the old par after he had voted for it. Apparently, changing one's mind after a vote was not permissible. In the pamphlet, Chidenius, without benefit of having read or heard of Adam Smith, worked out some real bills notions of permissible banking in a convertible monetary system. The other cap opponent of deflation was a teacher of economics at the University of Uppsala, Per Niklas Christiernen. Christiernen began at Uppsala as an adjunct in law and economics in 1761, then rose to professor in the same field, then held a chair in philosophy, and finally ended as chancellor of the university. In contrast to the poorly read Chidenius, Christiernen was steeped in such foreign economic literature as Cantillon, Hume, Eusti, Locke, and Malines. In a pamphlet published in 1761, Summary of Lectures on the High Price of Foreign Exchange in Sweden, Christiernen presented a theory of flexible exchange rates as an equilibrating mechanism in inconvertible currency that anticipated the bullionists and was superior to anything written up to that time. Unfortunately, Christiernen remained untranslated into English, and therefore unread there, until 1971. Christiernen pointed out that the continuing increase in the supply of banknotes led to the fall in value of the dollar, both in raising foreign exchange rates as well as prices of goods at home. The increase in the issue of banknotes, in turn, stemmed from the bank's more liberal lending policy, which lowered the rate of interest sharply by the mid-1750s, and also increased inflation by creating money to redeem all extant government bonds. Christiernen, however, was far from a hard-core hard-money man. 
He defended banknotes as useful, increasing activity and employment, and opposed deflation because, he pointed out, prices and wages were sticky downward. It is doubtful, however, that downward stickiness could last for long in the 18th century, but Christiernan's main objection to deflation was that his ideal was not sound metallic money, but a pre-Friedmanite desire to stabilize the value of the dollar and make the price level constant. In pursuit of that goal, he urged open market operations by the central bank, Furthermore, again in anticipation of the monetarists, he admittedly preferred inflation to deflation, if that was the choice. Unfortunately, the heroic deflationary measures led to temporary cap reverses. The hats came back to power in 1769, but although they promptly reinflated, they began to prepare seriously for restoration of the silver standard. When the caps returned in 1772, however, the powerful merchant capitalists of the Hat Party collaborated with the Crown and the nobility to seize power in a coup d'état, overthrowing parliamentary democracy and installing King Gustav III as absolute monarch. King Gustav returned Sweden to the silver standard in 1777 at the existing market price. Later, British bullionist views spread to more intellectually accessible parts of the continent. Thus, in 1816, Johann Georg Busch, 1728-1800, a mathematics teacher at the Hamburg Gymnasium, economist and founder of the Academy of Commerce at Hamburg, denounced inflationary banking propelled by government. Bush noted that, as a result, the customary abuse has been that too many paper symbols have been produced measured against the needs of the citizens. As a consequence, there are too many who want to change back their paper money into the commodity which is and can be the true symbol of value. Since the bank cannot produce this commodity, gold or silver, out of nature, like the paper with letters and figures on it, and since she must then confess that she cannot fulfill her promise to convert to specie, the deceived citizen must become reluctant to take one, the paper, for the other, specie money. Bush identified the financing of war as the main reason for the emergency of governmental bank credit inflation since the beginning of the 18th century. Meanwhile, in Russia, the Baltic German professor of political economy, the Smithian Heinrich Friedrich Freiherr von Storch, denounced government instigation of bank credit and paper money in a lengthy monetary appendix to the 1823 edition of his Cours d'économie politique. Storch, like Bush, zeroed in on war as the main reason for continuing inflation. The principal motive for introducing this calamitous invention of paper money in nearly all states of Europe have been the financial disorders caused by wars, which have been sometimes just and necessary, but mostly useless. How many wars could have been prevented without this unhappy expedient? How many tears and how much blood could have been saved?
The best remedy for this evil, declared Storch, would be a return to a pure 100% gold or silver standard in all nations. Failing that, however, Storch was willing to settle for free private competing banks, which, he was perhaps the first to point out, would be much less inflationary than governmentally privileged banking. As Storch put it, Private banks are those presenting most advantages and least dangers. Great Britain is the only country in Europe where private banks exist. In all other states, banking business is concentrated in one institution, if not founded, then at least approved and privileged by government. Nevertheless, public banks are much more prone to degenerate than are private banks. As long as banking companies exist in isolation, their operations seem to be insignificant. As soon as they form one sole and great institution, they excite the attention of the government, their profits being more considerable, and because of this, the special protection they enjoy, or the privileges which they solicit, have to be bought by favors which change their nature and subtly undermine their credit. Chapter 7. Monetary and Banking Thought 3. The Struggle Over the Currency School 1. The Trauma of 1825 In 1823 the British economy finally recovered from the post-Napoleonic War and post-1819 Agricultural Depression, in fact, an expansionary boom got underway, so much so as to quieten the vociferous agricultural advocates of higher prices and the opponents of the return to gold. Unsurprisingly, Bank of England credit expansion led the way in this new inflationary boom, its total credit rising from 17.5 million pounds in August 1823 to 25.1 million two years later, a huge increase of 43% or 21.7% uncompounded per annum. Much of the monetary and credit boom came through investment in highly speculative Latin American mining stocks. The great hard-money radical William Cobbett kept up a drumfire of attack on this inflation, but, significantly, he was also joined, if more privately, by such moderate hard-money men as William Huskisson, who worried that this universal jobbery in foreign stock will turn out the most tremendous bubble ever known. By late 1824, the exchanges turned unfavorable, and gold began to flow abroad. By the following year, Britons began to demand gold from the banks in increasing numbers. Huskisson repeatedly warned the cabinet in the spring of 1825 that the bank, in its greedy folly, was playing over again the game of 1817. In late June, a bank in Bristol refused outright to give gold to a note-holder who spurned payments in Bank of England notes, and this ominous incident was widely publicized by Cobbett. Bank of England cash reserves were at their lowest in five years at the end of February, at 8.86 million pounds, 
and from that low point they fell alarmingly to no more than three million pounds at the end of October. Bank runs and a bank panic ensued, and at the height of that panic in mid-December, a noteholder of the recalcitrant Bristol Bank distributed a leaflet warning the citizens of the city, As there is no knowing what may happen, get gold, for if restriction come it will be too late. During the panic, the late Henry Thornton's important bank, Pole Thornton and Company, went under, despite last-minute borrowing from the Bank of England, and despite the fact that Sir Peter Pole, head of the bank, was connected by marriage with the governor of the Bank of England, Cornelius Buller. After a week of hysteria in mid-December, the Bank of England, pursuing a highly risky policy of massive loans to the banks and rediscounting of bills, managed to stem the run, even though its cash reserves had been reduced to one million pounds by the end of the year. The country was saved by a hair's breadth from another suspension of specie payments by the Bank of England. The bank pleaded with the government to order such a suspension, but the Tory government, largely due to the ardent pressure of Huskisson and Canning, resisted the bank's demands. The Prime Minister, Robert Banks Jenkinson, the Earl of Liverpool, much to the disgust of his fellow high Tories of the Duke of Wellington faction, agreed with Huskisson that, in the words of one prominent Wellington man, if the bank stopped payment, it would be a good opportunity of taking their charter from them, for letting the bank break. The boom and crisis of 1825 dealt a traumatic lesson to thoughtful analysts of the monetary and economic scene, for these dramatic events demonstrated that the gold standard, important as it was as a check on monetary and banking inflation, was not enough. Bank failures and boom and bust cycles could and would still occur. Something further, then, was needed to fulfill the promise of the bullionists. Something more than the gold standard was needed to counter the ills of boom and bust and of fractional reserve banking. The most concrete and immediate response to the Panic of 1825 was a decision of the government to outlaw small denomination, under five-pound, banknotes a measure that even the pro-bank credit Adam Smith had favored. In that way, at least for these popular and widely used small denominations, the public would be using only specie as money. On 22 March 1826, Parliament forbade banks in England and Wales to issue new small notes, or to reissue any old ones after April 1829. After June 1826, the Bank of England continued to obey this edict for a little over a century. In another banking reform, Parliament ended the system that had prevailed since the turn of the 18th century. The Bank of England had a monopoly of all commercial banking except for partnerships of less than six persons. This monopoly was now shaken— Corporate and large partnership banks were now permitted in England by an act of 26 May 1826. 
Unfortunately, this liberalization was greatly weakened by the acts preserving the bank's monopoly of corporate and large-scale banking inside a 65-mile radius of London. In short, corporate or joint-stock banking was permitted only to the country banks. Political pressure by Scottish Tories gained an exemption from these reforms for Scotland. In the first place, Scotland already had joint-stock banking, and, more importantly, Scotland had long been a swamp of small banknote inflationism. Even after resumption of the gold standard in 1821, Scotland did not have a gold standard in practice. Frank Fetter discloses the solution as follows. Even after the resumption of payments in 1821, little coin had circulated, and to a large degree there was a tradition, almost with the force of law, that banks should not be required to redeem their notes in coin. Redemption in London drafts was the usual form of paying noteholders. There was a core of truth in the remark of an anonymous pamphleteer, 1826, any southern fool who had the temerity to ask for a hundred sovereigns, gold coins, might, if his nerves supported him through the cross-examination at the bank counter, think himself in luck to be hunted to the border. To work, a gold standard must, of course, be truly in effect, in practice, as well as in the official statutes. The Scottish Tories, led by the eminent novelist Sir Walter Scott, successfully blocked application of the anti-small-note reform to Scotland. The mouthpiece for Scottish high Toryism, Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, after hailing Scott's campaign, published two articles on the country banks and the Bank of England in 1827 and 1828, in which it wove together two major strains of ultra-inflationism, going off the gold standard and praising the country banks. Blackwoods also attacked the Bank of England as overly restrictionist, thus helping to launch the legend that the bank was too restrictive instead of being itself the main engine of inflation. In contrast, the Westminster Review, mouthpiece for the philosophical radicals, scoffed at the Scots for threatening a civil war in defense of the privilege of being plundered by the bank credit system. It was also in this period, in 1827, that Henry Burgess founded the powerful Committee of Country Bankers and edited for over twenty years the committee's influential periodical, Circular to Bankers. For that entire period, Burgess kept up a drumfire of inflationist vilification of the gold standard, of those ignorant, vain, and obstinate projectors, Huskisson, Peel, and Ricardo, and of the Bank of England for being too restrictive of bank credit. He also denounced the political economists as being the curse of the country because of their generally hard-money views. 
For its part, Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine pursued a similar unwavering line for nearly three decades, denouncing the return to gold in 1819 as having given the Jews, stockbrokers, and attorneys of the country an enormous advantage at the expense of classes connected with land. On the other hand, William Cobbett continued his hard-hitting anti-bank paper stance, proclaiming in 1828 that ever since that hellish compound, paper money, was understood by me, I have wished for the destruction of the accursed thing. I have applauded every measure that tended to produce its destruction, and censured every measure having a tendency to preserve it. Blasting the inflationist and privileged Scottish country banks as the Scottish monopolists, Cobbett also denounced the Scotsman John Ramsay McCullough for defending bank paper. This Scotch stupidity, conceit, pertinacity, and impudence. Cobbett escalated the attack by asserting that these ravenous rooks of Scotland have been a pestilence to England for more than two hundred years. It might be commented, of course, that one simple way for England to cast off that pestilence was for England to give Scotland back its independence, a solution that Cobbett and the other nationalist English radicals somehow failed to consider. Despite the continuing inflationism of the high Tories and of the Birmingham Atwoods, and despite the imminent clash of economic opinion over banking reform, the bulk of economists stood four-square from the mid-1820s on in defense of the gold standard. That much had been agreed upon and accomplished. Their differences on banking did not prevent unity on this fundamental monetary question. John Ramsey McCullough, James Mill, and Nassau W. Sr. stood solidly in favor of gold. Even the alleged radical, and for a time pre-Keynesian Malthus, expressed complete support for return to the gold standard in 1823 and thereafter. Archbishop Whateley, Mountafort Longfield, Thomas Perronet Thompson, even the arch-inductivist and historicist Richard Jones of Cambridge, were all staunch supporters of gold. Even the often confused and irenic John Stuart Mill was hard-hitting in defense of gold. The younger Mill, upon reading the testimony in 1821 of Thomas Atwood in favor of a combined silver and inconvertible fiat paper standard, denounced the idea of depreciating the standard as a gigantic plan of confiscation. Mill thundered that men who are not knaves in their private dealings should understand what the word depreciation means, and yet support it speaks but ill for the existing state of morality on such subjects. 2. The Emergence of the Currency Principle The prohibition of small notes, however, scarcely tackled the main problem. The first to go beyond this minor aspect of banking and go straight to the heart of the matter was a brilliant and influential thinker who has remained as little known to historians as he was obscure in his own day. 
It is with justice that Lionel Robbins has wittily referred to James Pennington, 1777-1862, as the Mycroft Holmes of the later monetary controversy of the classical period. James Pennington was born into a prominent Quaker family in the town of Kendall in Westmoreland. His father, William, was a bookseller, printer, and architect who eventually became mayor of Kendall. Graduating from a first-rate Quaker school at Kendall, Pennington moved to London. Little is known of his personal life thereafter except that he lived in Clapham and that he and his large family of seven children were parishioners and James a trustee of the famous Clapham Anglican Parish Church, obviously abandoning the Quakerism of his youth. Apart from that, we know that he was a merchant, gentleman, and accountant, and briefly became a member of the Board of Control for India in 1832. From then on, retired from commerce, he would be consulted repeatedly in technical financial matters by the government. In the wake of the great banking crisis of December 1825, London was agog with discussions of money and banking. The August Political Economy Club, dealing with this topic in its meetings of 9 January and 6 February 1826, at the latter occasion, Pennington was present as a guest, and, stimulated by the discussion, he sat down to write a memorandum on the subject to the powerful president of the Board of Trade, the liberal Tory William Huskisson. Huskisson did not request the memo, but he was known to be receptive to intelligent memoranda on crucial topics, and this method of promoting his views may have been suggested to Pennington by his longtime friend and one of the original founders of the Political Economy Club, the merchant and economist Thomas Took. In this first memo to Huskisson on 13 February on the private banking establishments of the metropolis, Pennington outlined with crystal clarity how private banks, by expanding loans, create demand deposits which function as part of the money supply. Walter Boyd and others had pointed this out, but Pennington's exposition was unmatched in its lucidity, and when published as an appendix to Took's Letter to Grenville, 1829, greatly influenced the banking controversies of the era. Unfortunately, the letter did not sufficiently influence Pennington's own camp, the Currency School, who stubbornly and tragically failed to realize that bank demand deposits formed part of the supply of money, equivalent to bank notes. Without any encouragement from Huskisson, Pennington followed up his first memorandum with another, a year later, 16 May 1827, on observations on the coinage. After explaining the technical procedures of the gold standard, Pennington detailed the dangers to gold of the existence of a paper currency, and then added a tantalizing hint. It is possible to regulate an extensive paper circulation to render its contraction and expansion subject to the same law as that which determines the expansion and contraction of a currency wholly and exclusively metallic. 
Here was the first indication in Great Britain of the currency principle, that more than simple gold redeemability was needed to transform bank money into a mere surrogate of gold. William Huskisson finally sat up and took notice, writing to Pennington that, I perceive that towards the end of your paper on coinage you state an opinion that means may be found of preventing those alternations of excitement and depression which have been attended with such alarming consequences to this country. This, for a long time, has appeared to me to be one of the most important matters which can engage the attention. The too great facility of expansion at one time, and the too rapid contraction of paper credit at another, is unquestionably an evil of the greatest magnitude. In short, bank credit and paper money were perceived by Huskisson as responsible for the business cycle. What, then, could be done about it? He urged Pennington to elaborate on his tantalizing suggestion. The upshot was an ironic one. While James Pennington's third memorandum in reply on the management of the Bank of England, 23 June, was the first fateful elaboration of the justly famous currency principle, it was scarcely action-oriented enough to suit the minister. At any rate, monetary matters faded temporarily, and Huskisson himself resigned his post the following year to die three years later. But Pennington's memorandum, nevertheless, was very important, for it declared that to make bank paper currency stable and tied to gold, it must be regulated to conform to the movements of the gold supply. If the Bank of England were the monopoly issuer of notes, Pennington prophetically counseled, it would be easy for it to control the total supply. In lieu of that, the private banks, London and country, could in some way be totally and immediately controlled by the bank. In either case, the bank could then be compelled to keep its securities, that is, its earning assets, fixed in total amount. If so, its note issues would move in the same direction, and to the same extent, as its stock of gold. While the bank would not have 100% gold reserves to its notes, the legally fixed gap between them would mean that banknotes, and by extension the total money supply, would move in the same way and to the same extent as the gold supply thus arriving at the equivalent of 100% specie money for all further operations of the bank. Here was the seed of Peel's Great Act of 1844, the embodiment of the currency principle. But Huskisson could not seize on this point because of Pennington's hesitations and qualifications, in particular, Pennington, of all people, knew full well that bank deposits are just as much creatures of bank credit as bank notes, and that to regulate them, deposits, properly, will be no easy task. It becomes a mystery that Pennington, the founder of the currency principle, should have been so alert to bank deposits' role as money, 
while the currency school concentrated with such fierce insistence on bank notes alone. They applied this variant of 100% gold money to notes exclusively, leaving deposits to go unchecked and unregulated on their own. Some historians speculate that the currency school made the conscious decision to avoid applying their principle to deposits because of an alleged difficulty in practical application, and because they believed that note holders, presumably being a broader or less wealthy section of the population, were more likely to cash in for gold than deposit holders. If so, then this practical decision to forget about deposits proved in the long run to be the height of impracticality, indeed fatal to the currency or 100% gold cause. For Peel's Act's prohibitions on further fractional reserve note issue simply induced the banking system, led by the Bank of England, to shift their inflationary and expansionary attentions to deposits alone, a condition that still prevails throughout the world. Currency school myopia on demand deposits scarcely extended to their cousins in the United States. On the contrary, such 100% gold leaders and Jacksonian theorists as Condi Raquet, Amos Kendall, and the magnificent Jacksonian William M. Gouge of Philadelphia, 1796 to 1863, were perfectly aware of deposits' equivalent role to notes in the issue of bank money. A Philadelphia editor, Gouge became a treasury official in the 1830s and remained there from that point on. Gouge held firmly that deposits are in all cases equal to notes, that they may be created by bank lending and that they have the same inflationary effect on prices as bank notes. He called for a return to the 100% gold reserves backing the deposits of the original banks of Hamburg and Amsterdam. Gouge was also the main theoretician of the Van Buren-Polk independent treasury system, in which the federal government would separate itself totally from banking, first by keeping no deposits in any banks, spending its funds directly in specie, and second by accepting in taxes only specie and no banknotes or deposits. In that way, the American banking system would be free not only of a central bank, as insured by President Jackson in the early 1830s, but also of any link to or support by the federal government. Other influential expressions of the currency principle emerged from the Panic of 1825. The highly influential Sir Henry Drummond, 1786-1860, banker and member of Parliament, in the fourth edition, 1826, of his Elementary Propositions on the Currency, was driven by the crisis to the realization that mere specie convertibility was not enough to avoid boom-bust crises in money and in prices. He therefore concluded that the quantity of paper money should be kept constant, so that variations in the money supply would only reflect changes in the stock of specie. 
In the same year, Richard Page, writing as Daniel Hardcastle, stated the currency principle in crystal-clear form. That only is a sound and well-regulated state of things when no greater numerical amount of paper is in circulation than would have circulated of the precious metals if no paper had existed. After the crisis of 1825, then, a consensus began to form, beginning with James Pennington and spreading through knowledgeable circles in Britain, that the gold standard is not enough, and that bank credit must not be allowed to expand unduly. At the ultimate pole were the currency school, who believed that commercial banks must be restricted to one hundred percent of gold, at least for any further note issues. Most of the school unfortunately left demand deposits out of their reckoning as not part of the money supply. Other established leaders, such as bank governor John Horsley Palmer, developed the far more qualified view, advocating more control by the Bank of England. Bank money should pyramid on top of a fixed ratio of reserves to liabilities maintained by the Bank of England. But if bank credit was to be confined to movements of gold, and thereby to end the threat of inflation and the business cycle, by what mechanism was this to be accomplished? In most cases, and certainly among virtually all adherents of the currency school, the answer was to be the Bank of England itself the very institution which bullionists and their successors had long seen to be the central agent of inflation and credit expansion. The idea was that the bank would either ride herd over the private banks, or, in the developing consensus, to assume a monopoly over all issue of banknotes, leaving banks to issue demand deposits in a way that tied them inexorably to the Bank of England. In short, the modern banking system, with all its deep inflationary flaws, was what was envisioned and brought forth by the currency school. In the name of ultra-hard money, they unwittingly imposed upon Great Britain and later the world the modern, centralized, inflationary, fractional reserve and central bank-dominated banking system. The theory was that the bank would control the private banks through monopoly of note issue and other measures, while the government would rigidly control the bank itself. The other main instrument of bank control over private banks was to centralize gold in the hands of the bank and to make Bank of England notes legal tender for all citizens and banks. In that way, the banks would be induced to surrender their gold to the bank, and to happily pyramid their loans and deposits on top of their bank reserves. Their demand deposits at the bank could always be cashed in for legal tender currency. In short, as this proposed structure came to be established in Britain and then elsewhere, the world was saddled with the modern banking system. It is still a mystery how men so keenly aware and critical of the cartelizing and inflationary role of the Bank of England should have proposed centralizing control into the hands of the very same bank, 
and all in the name of stopping inflation and tying the monetary system closely and one-to-one to gold. It was truly putting the fox in charge of the proverbial chicken coop. A minority of currency men, it is true, favored another variant, first recommended by the spiritual father of the currency school, David Ricardo himself. Already at the end of his 1816 pamphlet on economical and scarce currency, Ricardo had hinted at this solution, influenced by an unpublished proposal of J. B. Say in 1814. In his last posthumous work, published in 1824, The Plan for the Establishment of a National Bank, Ricardo put forward and elaborated the new plan. The appointment of a government board to be in charge of a national note-issue monopoly, with the Bank of England essentially confined to credit and deposit banking. The idea was that since the bank could not be trusted to be in charge of monopoly note issue, that function should be trusted to the central government. But surely here was even more of a fox, if not a wolf, to be placed in command. Government is just as much, if not more, inclined toward monetary and credit inflation as any private central bank. Government can always use inflation to finance the deficits it desires and to subsidize credit to its political allies. There were other, far more effective ways to restrict bank credit expansion. During the Jackson-Van Buren era in the United States, approximately 1828 through the 1840s, which roughly coincided with the period of the currency banking school controversies in Britain, the program of the hard-money Jacksonian movement was far more thoroughgoing and ultimately far more realistic than their spiritual cousins of the currency school. Both groups aimed at achieving hard money, tied very closely to specie, in order to end inflation and the boom-bust cycle. But, instead of maintaining and strengthening the central bank, the Jacksonians, far more logically, made it their first order of business to destroy it. The next step, for Gouge, Kendall, Raguet, and their followers, who included Presidents Jackson and Van Buren, was to separate the federal government totally from money, by establishing an independent treasury system, passed by the Van Buren administration in 1840, repealed by the Whigs, and then permanently re-established by the Jacksonian Polk administration in 1846. The idea of the independent treasury was, first, for the treasury to keep its own funds without depositing them in any banks, and, second, for the treasury to accept in taxes and other fees only specie, and not even notes of specie-redeeming banks. In that way, the federal government would give no encouragement whatever to the circulation of banknotes or deposits. Another plank in the Van Buren program, considered but never passed as being too hard-hitting, was a federal bankruptcy law which would have forced any bank to close its doors whenever it failed to meet its contractual obligations to redeem its notes or deposits in specie on demand. 
Other parts of the Jacksonian program were state enforcement of bankruptcy, the moment a bank should fail to pay in specie, and even the outlawing of all fractional reserve banking as inherently fraudulent, as promising something that could not possibly be fulfilled instantaneous redemption of all demand liabilities in specie. Less thoroughgoing than the Jacksonian proposals, but better than the currency school's reliance on the central bank, were the proposals of a free banking group that arose after 1825 calling for elimination of the Bank of England. The free banking proponents, however, were scarcely united in their theoretical outlook or in their goals. Some wanted free banking in order to eliminate what they considered to be Bank of England restraint on bank credit expansion, while others wanted it for the opposite reason, to approach the currency school goal of pure specie money. In the former category, for example, was the veteran inflationist and anti-bullionist Sir John Sinclair. On the other hand, a particularly important example of the latter, hard-money category, was the longtime bullionist and clerk at the Royal Mint, Robert Mushet. In his substantial book, An Attempt to Explain from Facts the Effects of the Issues of the Bank of England, 1826, Mushet set forth a currency principle type of business cycle theory. The Bank of England, he pointed out, set into motion an expansionary policy that created an inflationary boom, and that later had to be reversed into a contractionary depression. Like the later currency school, Mushet's aim was to arrive at a purely metallic currency or its equivalent, but he saw that free banking rather than central banking was a better way to achieve it. Thus Mushet hailed the Act of 1826 allowing joint-stock banking outside of the environs of London as an improvement on the previous system, but still leaving intact the main evil, because they do not take the power from the Bank of England of adding extensively to the currency. But when the monopoly of the bank expires in 1833, and the trade in money is perfectly free, a better order of things may arise. The better order included stability, a currency not suffering from overexpansion, and an end to the boom-bust cycle. But by far the most important hard-money free banking advocate was the veteran bullionist Sir Henry Brooke Parnell, a leading member of Parliament who had taken the bullionist side in the Irish money question in 1804, was a prominent member of the Bullion Committee, and had supported resumption in 1819. As early as 1824, Parnell had moved in Parliament for an investigation of the Bank of England's charter. In 1826, he denounced the bank's exclusive and mischievous privilege. In 1826, and again the following year, Parnell organized a discussion at the Political Economy Club on the theme, might not a proper currency be secured by leaving the business of banking wholly free from legislative interference? He left no doubt that his own answer was yes. 
Parnell set forth his free banking views in his 1827 tract, Observations on Paper Money, Banking, and Overtrading, 1827, second edition, 1829. He began, following Mushet, by placing the blame for the panic of 1825 on the Bank of England's over-issues of 1824 and 1825. The problem was that the law had taken away from the bank the great check over abuses in issuing paper money, namely the competition of rival banks. Going beyond Mushet, Parnell was not willing to wait for the bank's charter to expire in six years. No, the power of the bank over money, and thereby over prices and the general state of business, was so entirely repugnant that it ought not be tolerated any longer. Parnell concluded that the remedy was a free system of banking, and, overlooking a few pages at the end of Mushet's work, proclaimed that he himself was the first man in England to raise the banner of free banking. It is hardly surprising, on the other hand, that George Paulette Scroop, the inveterate underconsumptionist, should also have been an inflationist advocate of free banking in this period. In several books and in an article in the Quarterly Review, heralded by articles of other like-minded men in that leading Tory journal, Scroop called for the legalizing of small banknotes and an end to the London note-issue monopoly of the Bank of England. His program was designed to fit inflationist ends. Thus the competing banks would be able to redeem their notes in bullion rather than coin. The proclaimed goal of this banking program was, in Scroop's words, to everywhere lower the values of the metals, and with them, that of money. 3. Rechartering the Bank of England The Bank of England's charter expired in 1833 and this seemed to offer critics of the existing system a golden opportunity to effect a fundamental reform. A bank charter committee was selected by the House of Commons in 1832 to engage in a detailed inquiry into the banking system, focusing on the question of the bank's existing monopoly of banknote issue in London and environs. The committee's hearings and inquiry was the most thorough examination of British banking to date, but Parnell, the only member of the committee to vote against rechartering the bank, complained with some justice that the roster of witnesses was stacked against the proponents of free banking by the maneuvers of the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Lord Grey's Whig government, the Viscount Althorpe. It was clear that a consensus of witnesses was building towards centralizing note issue in the hands of a strengthened Bank of England, a policy both the currency school, in its misguided way, and the moderately inflationist establishment could support. Only a few witnesses favored bank competition in note issue in London, and only one, the Manchester merchant and joint-stock banker Joseph Chesborough Dyer, opposed the fateful proposal to invest Bank of England notes with legal tender power.
Based on the committee inquiry, Viscount Althorpe presented Parliament in 1833 with his legislative program. To keep the status quo of bank charter and bank note issue monopoly in London and a 65-mile radius, and to centralize banking further by granting banknotes legal tender power. This meant that from then on, private and joint stock banks need not keep any of their reserves in gold, since depositors and note holders would be compelled by law to accept bank notes in payment, and that only the Bank of England itself would have to meet its contractual obligations to redeem its notes or deposits in gold. This measure of 1833 went a long way to reduce the role of gold coin in everyday life, and to encourage its replacement by banknotes and bank deposits. In presenting his program, Althorpe noted that since the committee hearings, the public have been more inclined to look favorably on the management of the Bank of England. In short, the loaded committee had done its work well, he further provided a harbinger of the future by stating that his goal was to have all banknotes issued by the Bank of England, which, of course, is the modern centralized banking system. The powerful country banking lobby, however, rose up in high dudgeon at this threat to its note-issue privileges, and the cabinet was forced to back down on its goal of note-issue monopoly for the Bank of England. Lord Althorpe was so chagrined at this successful pressure that he almost resigned from the government. Although there was only one witness against it, the legal tender provision for Bank of England notes only carried in commons by virtue of support from arch-inflationists opposed to the gold standard. The vote for legal tender was 214 to 156, with hard-money stalwarts Sir Henry Parnell and Sir Robert Peel, the leader of the Tory opposition, voting against. Outrage against the legal tender law among the public was led, as might be expected, by the country bankers. The Committee of Country Bankers, led by Henry William Hobhouse, pointed out that the law would violate private rights and secure to the Bank of England an unjust and perpetual monopoly. The Committee's memorial justly pointed out that the government had taken measures against the expansionary tendencies of the country banks, but had ignored the operation of the same principle at work in the Bank of England in its case, unchecked by the competition of other banks. Leading the public reaction against legal tender was the prolific free banking advocate, the Scottish attorney Alexander Mundell. Mundell warned that the 1833 law would lead to the centralization of specie reserves in the country into the hands of the Bank of England. He charged that your English industry, which has been already taxed by the exclusive privileges of the Bank of England as it now exists, is thus to be taxed still more by extension of it. 4. The Crisis of 1837 and the Currency School Controversy 
For the first time, the law of 1826 had allowed joint-stock banking, except for the Bank of England, to exist in England. But various remaining restrictions had held the number of joint-stock banks down to 14. The Act of 1833 had removed these restrictions, and the result was a veritable orgy of joint-stock banks formed in England. Forty-four new banks were added from 1831 to 1835, topped by no less than 59 in 1836 alone, fifteen of them established between 1 May and 15 June of that year. A powerful joint-stock bank, the London and Westminster Bank, was even established in London itself in 1834, although, of course, it was banned from issuing notes. Along with the increase in the number of banks came an expansion in bank money. Thus, the circulation of country banknotes rose from 10 million pounds at the end of 1833 to over 12 million pounds in mid-1836. Of this growth, almost all came from the issue of the new joint stock banks, from 1.3 million pounds to 3.6 million pounds in the same period. Although the Bank of England and the private country banks complained at the new competition, the expansion of credit by the bank fueled this new burgeoning of banks and bank notes. Discounts of the bank expanded from £1 million in April 1833 to £3.4 million in July 1835, and rose to over £11 million by the end of the latter year. Total bank credit, in turn, rose from £24 million in 1833 to over £35 million at the beginning of 1837. This expansion took place in the teeth of the bank's loss of specie reserves from £11 million in 1822 to less than £4 million at the end of 1836. So much for the currency principle, and for its modified Palmer rule, which the bank's governor, John Horsley Palmer, had explained to the Bank Charter Committee in 1832 that the Bank of England had been following. There is no way that such a practice of expanding credit while specie reserves were falling could be tortured into even an approximation of the currency ideal that the money supply should move as if it were the stock of specie in the country. To top it off, the bank credit expansion led, in what was becoming the usual way, to a financial crisis and panic at the end of 1836 and the beginning of 1837, replete with bank runs, especially in Ireland. There followed the typical signs of recession, contraction of bank credit, decline of production, collapse of stock prices, numerous bankruptcies of banks and other businesses, and a swelling of unemployment. It is not surprising that the new boom-bust cycle gave rise to parliamentary inquiries by committees on joint stock banks in 1836, 1837, and 1838, and even more so to vigorous debates on the banking situation in pamphlets and in the press. 
Indeed, more than 40 pamphlets were published on the banking system in 1837 alone, and a large number continued the following year. The pamphlet war was touched off by a remarkable pamphlet by Colonel Robert Torrens, remarkable not only for being the best presentation of the currency school, but also because it signified a sudden conversion of Torrens into the currency ranks. For Torrens, though a distinguished political economist, a friend of Ricardo, and a founder and leading member of the Political Economy Club, had been an ardent, almost wild inflationist and anti-bullionist during the bullion report struggles. Indeed, Torrens' inflationism had continued at least into 1830. Then, in the course of confused and bewildering speeches in Parliament in the critical year of 1833, Torrens continued his old bitter anti-deflationist attacks on the Resumption Act of 1819. But in the midst of them, also inconsistently enunciated the currency principle, in clear form. Extensive and calamitous experience had established the fact that a currency consisting of precious metals and of paper convertible into these metals on demand was liable to sudden and very considerable fluctuation between the extremes of excess and of deficiency. A mixed currency would suffer a much more considerable contraction than a purely metallic Unless our present system of currency were amended by the timely interference of the legislature, it would go on to occasion periodical and aggravated distress, until, in a national bankruptcy, it would find its euthanasia. In another speech on rechartering the Bank of England, Torrens warned that the adoption of the measures proposed by government for continuing and increasing the exclusive privileges of the Bank of England would inflict upon the country a periodic recurrence in aggravated forms of revulsions of trade and of panics in the money market. In his notable letter to Lord Melbourne, all hesitation finally fell away, and Colonel Torrens joined the leadership of the currency school ranks. He began by pointing out, in contrast to most of his currency colleagues, that bank deposits were money equally with bank notes, paying tribute to James Pennington for pointing this out. Torrens explained the nature of deposits as money very clearly, showing that a shift of bank liabilities from notes to deposits, or vice versa, would not change the amount of bank money by which merchants and others can make purchases. He also noted that while most people have learned how an increase in coin and bank notes raises prices and depreciates foreign exchanges, Neither the government nor the directors of the Bank of England understand how loans and deposits do the same thing. But tragically, Torrens then inconsistently dismissed deposits as unimportant, apparently on the ground that the bank, not the public, decides whether to keep its liabilities in notes or deposits, and on the further erroneous assumption that country and joint stock banks pyramid at a fixed ratio upon bank notes as their reserves, but not upon bank deposits. 
From then on, Torrens wrote and acted as if deposits were irrelevant to the money supply. Torrens also unfortunately conceded that the bank must function as a lender of last resort to banks in distress, but then confined his attack on the bank to its stoking the fires of inflationary credit and not conforming to the currency principle from the beginning. In order to force the currency principle upon the bank, Torrens, for the first time in print, urged that Parliament rigidly separate the bank into an issue department and a banking department. The issue department would be forced to limit its note issues to its actual supply of gold, so that banknotes could only fluctuate to the extent that the bank's stock of gold increases or decreases. In that way, wrote Torrens, the circulation of banknotes would always remain in the same state, both with respect to amount and to value, in which it would exist were it wholly metallic. The problem is that the banking department in Torrens, and hence the currency plan, would be left totally free and unregulated, on the assumption that the bank could issue credits and deposits, and that those loans and demand deposits would be totally irrelevant to the money supply. The neglect of deposits was the tragic flaw in the currency plan. Colonel Torrens's assault on the bank was, in effect, though not by name, answered in a pamphlet by bank director and former governor John Horsley Palmer. As in the case of bank apologists for decades, Palmer put the blame for the inflation and recession on every institution but the bank, on shipments of funds abroad on bank runs, and on reckless credit expansion by private and joint-stock English and Irish banks. He concluded that the solution, a particular favorite of the bank, was that the bank must have a monopoly of all-note issue. Ironically, the currency school, so hostile to the bank, proposed the same plan for different reasons, so that the government could have but one central bank to regulate. In his letter to Lord Melbourne, Torrens had given credit to the banker Samuel Jones Lloyd for originating the idea of the separation of the Bank of England into issue and banking departments. Lloyd now weighed in with a pamphlet attack on Palmer, in which he assumed the leadership of the currency camp. Far more simplistic than Torrens, Lloyd dogmatically but fatally asserted that notes and deposits are forever absolutely different, and therefore can and must be treated totally differently. Professor Fetter offers an amusing and accurate explanation of the triumph of Lloyd's simple-minded stance. He, Lloyd, stated as a fundamental that no man in his right mind could question that note-issuing and deposit business were completely separate, and that a mixed circulation of coin and notes should fluctuate exactly as would an all-metallic circulation. Despite its theoretical vacuity, there was no denying the effectiveness of Lloyd's argument. 
Lloyd's prestige as a successful banker undoubtedly made his words carry conviction to many who felt that something ought to be done about the Bank of England, and that a man who made money in banking must understand banking. Throughout 1837 and 1838, the currency principle was advocated in highly influential pamphlets, again by Lloyd, by David Ricardo's brother Samson, and, in a particularly important pronouncement, by longtime Bank of England director George Ward Norman. Like Lloyd, Torrens, and Pennington, Norman was a member of the Political Economy Club. His pamphlet of 1838 was a revision of a pamphlet that he had privately printed five years earlier. Norman agreed with Lloyd that notes and deposits are totally different, and also suggested granting to the Bank of England a monopoly of all bank notes. Since Norman was a powerful bank director, it would seem that his adoption of the allegedly anti-bank currency principle was akin to Br'er Rabbit urging not to be thrown into the briar patch. Another economist lending his prestige as one of the last of the Ricardians to the currency principle was the prolific John Ramsay McCullough, both in a review of some of the year's pamphlets in the Edinburgh Review for April 1837, and again in a new edition of Smith's Wealth of Nations, which he published the following year. In 1840, at the next stage of the debate, another leading economist joined the fray on behalf of the currency principle, S. Mountefort Longfield, in a notable four-part article, Banking and Currency, in Dublin University Magazine, an article influenced heavily by McCullough's writings. 5. The Crisis of 1839 and the Escalation of the Currency School Controversy A mild boom in 1837 and 1838 was followed by another economic crisis towards the end of 1838 and during 1839. Bankruptcies and bank runs ensued, and the Bank of England's gold reserve fell from 9.8 million pounds in December 1838 to an extremely low 2.4 million pounds by September 1839. Not only that, but in the teeth of shrinking reserves, the bank, instead of following anything like its own Palmer rule, let alone the more rigorous currency principle, expanded credit still further, thus precipitating an even greater drain of gold from the bank. By July and August 1839, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was beginning to contemplate another restriction, another suspension of specie payment on behalf of the bank. The bank was saved only by massive credits from the Bank of France and from Hamburg. Clearly, the banking situation was becoming intolerable, and something had to be done. Parliament appointed a select committee on banks of issue in 1840 and again in 1841, and massive hearings were held on the question. Disputes in parliamentary testimony and pamphlet controversy were redoubled and were made more urgent by Horsley Palmer's concession that the bank was finding it almost impossible to adhere to his rule. 
Several other groups now arose to challenge the growing currency school consensus. The free banking adherents took a lead from the currency school in lashing out at the Bank of England's responsibility for inflation and for the business cycle. But the force of their opposition to the bank was vitiated by their uniform apologia for the country and joint stock banks. While it is true that those banks were largely governed by the actions of the bank, it was egregious for them to claim that the private banks were totally passive and blameless in the entire process. The free banking school was particularly discredited by the fact that virtually all of its spokesmen, with the exception of Sir Henry Parnell, who died in 1842 in the middle of the controversy, were themselves joint stock or country bankers, so that the special pleading in their stance was all too evident. If this group had confined their advocacy of free banking to the largely political point that the bank would inevitably be more inflationary and dangerous than competitive banking, they would have been far more persuasive. But such restraint is not the usual practice of special pleaders. The only distinguished economist to take up the free banking cause was Samuel Bailey, the subjective value theorist. But Bailey had founded and was now chairman of the Sheffield Banking Company, and his fervent apologia was all too suspect. Bailey, indeed, was one of the worst offenders in insisting on the passivity of the country and joint stock banks, and in attacking the very idea that there is something wrong with worrying about changes in the quantity of the money supply. By assuring his readers that competitive banking would always provide nice adjustment of the currency to the wants of the people, Bailey overlooked the fundamental Ricardian truth that there is never any social value to increasing the money supply once the commodity is established, and that inflationary increases in bank credit take place as a process of fraudulent issue of fake warehouse receipts to standard money. Another school of thought arising in this period was the banking school, at this early point consisting solely of one prominent man, Thomas Took. Took, 1774 to 1858, was by now an elderly merchant in the Russian trade, who, born the son of a chaplain, had started working in St. Petersburg at the age of fifteen, and had become a partner in a mercantile firm in London. Long interested in economic matters, Took had been one of the founders of the Political Economy Club, and continued to attend meetings of the club until his death. In the bullion controversy, Took was a staunch bullionist, and he strongly supported the resumption of specie payments in 1819. At best, however, Took was a confused and inchoate thinker, and whatever theoretical acumen he had was apparently warped beyond repair by decades of immersion in his life work a four-volume history of prices and of the state of the circulation from 1792, published from 1838 to 1848. 
Inductive play with his statistics was able to convince Took, for example, as early as his 1838 volumes, first, that high and rising prices during the Napoleonic periods were solely due to bad harvests, lowering the supply of farm products, as well as obstructions of foreign trade, while, second, Falling prices after the war were caused by better harvests and the resumption of trade. Having concluded that, Took was able to press on in his third volume of the History of Prices in 1840, and in his parliamentary testimony the same year, to launch the banking school with the absurd proposition, to quote from a crystal-clear formulation of Took four years later, that the prices of commodities do not depend upon the quantity of money indicated by the amount of banknotes, nor upon the amount of the whole of the circulating medium, but that, on the contrary, the amount of the circulating medium is the consequence of prices. To be fair to Took and his banking school colleagues, they did not mean, or profess to mean, to apply this old fallacy to inconvertible currency, as their anti-bullionist forebears had done, but only to convertible currency. But this did not make their analysis or conclusion one whit less absurd. The masterful critique by Torrens deserves to be quoted at some length. Torrens first points out that Took has the deserved reputation, which even he himself cannot destroy, of having shown by an extensive induction from existing and from historical facts that the value of everything declines as its quantity is increased in relation to the demand. But then, Torrens notes, Took turns his back upon himself by affirming that the value of money does not decline as its quantity is increased in relation to the demand. Or at least he affirms this for a convertible money standard. But Torrens concludes incisively that the effects of an increase are the same for convertible or inconvertible currency. The only difference is that there are limits to increases imposed by a convertible currency. Thus, Mr. Took falls into the misconception of imagining that the limitation to a further decline of value which convertibility imposes prevents the previous existence of the decline which it subsequently arrests. Like Adam Smith, the banking school was blithely assuming that the adjustments and restraints of redeemability were instantaneous, and therefore that no problems would be created in the actual processes of the real world. A particular rapier thrust against Took by Torrens four years later cannot be resisted, Throughout interminable pages of inconsistent affirmation in the multi-volume history of prices, he reiterates the inference that the value of commodities has fluctuated in relation to money, and that therefore the value of money has not fluctuated in relation to commodities. The corollary proposition of the banking school, taken from the anti-bullionists and now brought again to the fore by Took, is that the Bank of England cannot increase the supply of money. 
As Took put it starkly, the Bank of England has not the power to add to the circulation. Even applying this claim only to convertible currency, as the banking school did, it is difficult to hold such a manifest absurdity at length. In practice, therefore, Took and the other banking school adherents usually modified this blunt statement to apply only to banknotes issued in loans to private borrowers and not to purchases of government securities. To the question, what's the difference, the main contribution to Took's doctrine was made in 1844 by John Fullerton, namely, that notes issued in purchase of government securities are paid away and remain permanently in circulation, thus adding to the quantity of money, whereas banknotes are only lent and are returnable to the issuers and presumably, therefore, do not add to the money supply. This was what Fullerton dubbed the principle of reflux, of notes returning to the banks. Once again, the incisive refutation came from Colonel Torrens, who pointed out that to carry any weight, the vaunted principle of reflux requires instantaneous repayment of all loans, Allow any interval to elapse between the loan and the repayment, and no regularity of reflux can prevent redundancy from being increased to any conceivable extent. The same, as well as many other strictures, apply to a variant of Fullerton's and others in the banking school, which, again, stemming from the anti-bullionists, held that banks can never over-issue notes, provided that their notes are only issued in the course of making short-term, self-liquidating loans matched by inventories of goods in process, the so-called real bills doctrine. Torrens' role in the currency versus banking controversy has a fascinating reverse symmetry with the path taken by Took. Whereas Torrens began as an anti-bullionist and apologist for the Bank of England, and now ended as a currency schoolman and opponent of bank credit inflation, Took began as a solid bullionist, yet ended his days as a pro-bank anti-bullionist. Among the various grave inconsistencies in the banking school approach, one particularly stands out. If it is true that banks can do no wrong, at least in a convertible currency, that they cannot over-issue notes or over-expand credit, and that even if they did it could have no effect in raising prices or causing a business cycle, then why not adopt free banking? Why have a privileged monopoly like the Bank of England? Yet the banking school remained a determined enemy of free banking and devoted apologists for the bank. Thomas Took's most famous dictum was the striking, Free trade in banking is synonymous with free trade in swindling. Fair enough. But if we analyze this pronouncement logically, and we find that banking is synonymous with swindling, then what is the rationale for placing the power of state privilege behind a monopoly swindler? Even if banking is swindling, isn't competitive swindling better than a state-privileged and dominant monopoly swindler? 
and yet took fiercely fought to preserve the bank and its exclusive privileges in London and environs. His only proposed reform was to induce the bank to hold a higher reserve of specie to liabilities. The one contribution of the banking school was to continue to emphasize what Torrens knew, but Lloyd and Norman did not, that banknotes and bank demand deposits were equal and coordinate parts of the supply of money. Because of their grave error on this point, in Torrens' case to dismiss deposits as always in a fixed ratio to notes, the currency school and its embodiment in Peel's Act left deposits as the big hole in their attempt to make the money supply conform to movements in gold. As we have noted, the currency school counterparts in the United States did not make that error. Free trade and laissez-faire thought was growing in dominance in Great Britain during this era, led by the intrepid merchants, manufacturers, and publicists from Manchester. But where to stand on the vexed question of banking? Should banking be free, or is fractional reserve banking really swindling, and therefore different from normal honest enterprise? Was Chancellor of the Exchequer Thomas Spring Rice correct when he stated in Parliament in 1839, I deny the applicability of the general principle of freedom of trade to the question of making money? Of one thing the men of Manchester were certain, there was no quarter to be given the Bank of England. Thus John Benjamin Smith, the powerful president of the Manchester Chamber of Commerce, reported to the chamber in 1840 that the crisis of 1839 was caused by the Bank of England's contraction, following inexorably from its own earlier undue expansion of the currency. Smith denounced the undue privileges of the bank as the source of its control over the nation's economic life, Testifying before Parliament that year, Smith endorsed the currency school by criticizing the fluctuations of note issues by all the banks, as well as the Bank of England, and went on to state, It is desirable in any change in our existing system to approximate as nearly as possible to the operation of a metallic currency. It is desirable also to divest the plan of all mystery, and to make it so plain and simple that it may be easily understood by all. Not only did he thus endorse the currency principle, he went further to endorse Ricardo's scheme of creating a governmental national bank for the purpose of issuing banknotes. A similar course was taken by Richard Cobden, the shining prince of the Manchester laissez-faire movement. Attacking the Bank of England and any idea of discretionary control over the currency, Cobden fervently declared, I hold all idea of regulating the currency to be an absurdity. The very terms of regulating the currency and managing the currency I look upon to be an absurdity. The currency should regulate itself. It must be regulated by the trade and commerce of the world. I would neither allow the Bank of England nor any private banks to have what is called the management of the currency, 
I should never contemplate any remedial measure which left it to the discretion of individuals to regulate the amount of currency by any principle or standard whatever. Rejecting both private and central bank management, Cobden was perceptive enough to see that the goal was not free banking per se, but to have a currency that mirrors genuine market forces of supply and demand, that is, the fortunes of gold or silver money. He saw that the currency principle aimed to do just that, and hence his endorsement and while his support for a government national bank of issue was too much like leaping out of the frying pan into the fire, it was understandable in the light of his refusal to trust the Bank of England to cleave to the currency path. I should be sorry to trust the Bank of England again, having violated their principle, the Palmer Rule, for I never trust the same parties twice on an affair of such magnitude. 6. THE RENEWED THREAT TO THE GOLD STANDARD Thus a consensus was building rapidly after the crisis of 1839 on behalf of the currency principle. But perhaps the precipitating factor in bringing Sir Robert Peel and the establishment to enact the principle was a renewed threat to the gold standard. The gold standard had been the agreed-upon consensus of all parties since the 1820s, and since the return to gold, the assaults of inveterate statists and inflationists, like Birmingham's Atwood brothers, had faded away. But now, under the stimulus of economic crisis, fiat paper agitation and other inflationist threats to the gold standard surfaced once again. If Manchester was the home of laissez-faire and sound money, Birmingham, its sister manufacturing town in the north, had long been the home of state-sponsored inflationism. Economic recession struck the Birmingham area in 1841, and Birmingham moved once more to a powerful attack upon gold. Thomas Atwood himself had retired from Parliament two years before, but Birmingham's representatives were more than willing to take up the old cause. Atwood had been replaced by merchant and manufacturer George Frederick Muntz, who agreed with the former's currency views, and Richard Spooner, the Tory whom Muntz had defeated for the seat, was an inflationist and a banking partner of Atwood's. The following year, the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce, presided over by Richard Spooner, launched a furious campaign pressuring the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, into going off gold. Months put out a new edition of an old anti-gold tract, and, roaring back to the wars, Thomas Atwood, as might be expected, published articles and wrote numerous letters on his currency nostrums. The most influential of this outpouring of Birmingham inflationism was the Gemini Letters, published anonymously by Thomas B. Wright and John Harlow of Birmingham, first as thirty-five letters in a country newspaper during 1843, and then in book form the following year as The Currency Question, The Gemini Letters. The Gemini plea was straight, proto-Keynesian inflationism. 
inconvertible paper money should be issued by the government in sufficient amount to stimulate consumer purchasing power and ensure full employment. In addition, the public debt should be inflated away. Thus, as Wright and Harlow put it, the proper plan, it appears to us, is to raise the capacity of the consumer by securing high wages and ample profits, and by these means making light the fixed national obligations of the people. The only limit they would affix to the issue of paper money would be the degrees of prosperity which the different amount of issues would produce. There is every reason to believe that the Gemini letters and the Birmingham agitation were influential throughout the country. Henry Burgess and his committee of country bankers used the interchanges between the Birmingham Chamber and Robert Peel to denounce the gold standard. Both the Times and the new weekly Economist were forced to expend a great deal of energy in defending the gold standard from its unsound enemies. At any rate, it is known that Peel owned a copy of the currency question and marked key passages in the book. The threat to gold was reinforced by a renewed agitation to dump gold for a bimetallic gold-silver standard. Heedless of the fact that bimetallism never works in practice, since Gresham's law pushes the undervalued metal out of circulation and encourages the overvalued, the pro-silver forces found in bimetallism a way to support monetary inflation while remaining respectably in favor of precious metals as money. Silver supporters therefore began with a core from the Fiat Paper Group, including Spooner, Matthias Atwood, George Muntz, and Henry Burgess, and added numerous bankers and businessmen, such as Richard Page, Henry W. Hobhouse, chairman of the Committee of Country Bankers, William D. Haggard, and the eminent banker Alexander Baring, now Lord Ashburton. 7. Triumph of the Currency School, Peel's Act of 1844 At the heart of the triumph of the currency principle in Peel's Act of 1844 was one man, the statesman and political genius Sir Robert Peel. Peel has been habitually derided by historians as a confused middle-of-the-roader, a flexible political opportunist at best, a transitional figure unwittingly performing the historical function of ushering in the conservative and liberal party system in England. But, as Professor Boyd Hilton has helped to point out, Peel was a far different figure, a statesman in the best sense, a Tory liberal who was consistent and even unyielding in principle and purpose, and flexible and entrepreneurial only in attaining the best tactics to arrive at his fixed ideological goals. As Hilton has demonstrated in every important sense, economic, financial, and moral, Robert Peel was the John the Baptist, the founder, the progenitor of Gladstonian liberalism. During the 1820s, Peel was, for most years, head of the Home Office in Tory governments. 
He had long been opposed to Catholic emancipation, and had even resigned his cabinet post in 1827 in protest at the accession to the prime ministry of George Canning, head of Tory liberalism and champion of Catholic rights. Two years later, however, after the death of Canning, Peel, back as Home Secretary, was converted to Catholic emancipation as part of his ever-increasing devotion to the classical liberal laissez-faire cause. At his conversion, Peel had the good grace to honor the prophets and warriors for Catholic emancipation whom he had opposed for so long, Fox, Grattan, and Canning himself. From 1831 on, Peel headed the Tory, now conservative, party, and also was the heart and soul of the liberal faction of the party. Peel's great prime ministry took place in 1841 to 1846. Here he fought vigorously for a peaceful foreign policy, battling against the pro-war imperialist Palmerston wing of the Liberal Party, and managed to conclude peace with the United States in the menacing Oregon boundary controversy. Peel also managed to lower tariffs, but lost in his fight for all-out free trade. His great accomplishment on that front was victory over the furious opposition of the Tory agriculturists, led by Benjamin Disraeli, in the complete repeal of the infamous Corn Laws, which had for decades established an enormous import tariff on wheat. In this fight against the artificially high price of food, Peel was spurred by the growing famine in Ireland. Again, gracious in victory, Peel hailed his political opponent, the laissez-faire liberal Richard Cobden, as the true architect of the repeal of the Corn Laws. For his success, Peel's government was toppled by Disraeli, and he died in a hunting accident four years later, in 1850. Robert Peel's proudest achievement, however, was his banking reform, his Act of 1844. The Bank Charter Act of 1833 had provided for possible change in the Charter during 1844, so that was the year of potential banking reform. As recent research has revealed, Peel's act did not originate as a hostile straitjacket fastened on a reluctant, though subsequently complacent, bank by the efforts of the currency school. Rather, the act came from within the bank itself, as an attempt by the bank to find for itself a shortcut to currency management, as well as a means of obtaining its long-sought monopoly over banknote issue. First, the ardent currency school leader, George Ward Norman, had, as a bank director, been promoting the plan since 1838. Although Norman lost within the bank on his currency proposal in 1840, he persisted, and the following year he became part of a five-man standing committee of the bank to discuss the scheme. By January 1844, William Cotton, the governor of the Bank of England and a member of the Standing Committee, had been converted to the currency plan, and when, in early January, Peel asked Cotton and the deputy governor, J.B. Heath, 
also a member of the Standing Committee, to confer with him and Chancellor of the Exchequer Henry Colburn about fundamental banking reform, Cotton was ready. In response to these discussions, Cotton and Heath, on 2 February, submitted to Peel the complete outline of what was soon to become Peel's Act. In essence, Peel's Act established the currency principle. It divided the Bank of England into an issue department, issuing banknotes, and a banking department, lending and issuing demand deposits. True to the rigid currency school separation of notes and deposits, deposits would be totally free and unregulated, while notes would be limited to a ceiling of 14 million pounds matched by assets of government securities, roughly the extent of existing note issue. Any further notes could only be issued on the basis of 100% reserve in gold. The second main provision was to grant the Bank of England its long-sought monopoly of the note issue. This was not done immediately, but to be phased in over a period of time. Specifically, no new banks were to issue any banknotes. Existing banks were to issue no further notes, and the Bank of England might contract with bankers to buy out their existing notes and replace them with the bank's own. In this way, private banknotes were grandfathered in, and the private, that is, joint stock plus country banks, were neatly cartelized under the direction of the bank with the private banks able to keep out all further competition. This grandfather cartel clause was not only designed to make the transition to the new order gradual, its main effect, and presumably its intent as well, was to bring the private banks, which might be expected to be the chief opponents of the new bill, around to become enthusiastic supporters. In his maneuvering within the cabinet before publicly presenting Peel's act, the Prime Minister made it clear that if we were about to establish in a new state of society a new system of currency, he would have preferred the Ricardian plan of government notes, with no Bank of England or any other banknotes allowed, but that this plan would be impracticable in the existing state of the real world, where a coalition must be built among such contending forces as the bank itself, Ricardians, free bankers, and country bankers. The desideratum, Peel shrewdly advised, was to determine to propose the course which they may conscientiously believe to reconcile, in the greatest degree, the qualities of being consistent with sound principle and suited to the present condition of society. News of Peel's coming bank charter bill had spread by the end of February, and the country banks, as expected, vigorously protested the bill during March and April. Finally, Peel introduced the bill to Parliament on 6 May. Shrewdly splitting his opposition, he applied the bill fully only to England. The ban on new banks issuing notes was extended to Scotland and Ireland, but the limitations on existing banks were applied to England alone. For the rest, 
Scotland and Ireland were left alone for the time being. The introduction of Peel's bill touched off a flurry of controversy, including a pamphlet war over the act. In particular, the new controversy gave rise to the banking school, which beforehand had been represented only by Took. Took weighed in with an inquiry into the currency principle, and John Fullerton entered the fray with his aforementioned pamphlet on the regulation of currencies, a widely circulated and influential tract, even though it was published in August 1844 after the passage of Peel's Act. S. J. Lloyd published a defense of the bill, while the formidable Colonel Torrens blasted Took in another pamphlet. The new banking school was noteworthy for being more royalist than the king, more favorable to the Bank of England than the bank itself. In short, the banking school, along with most of the London bankers, favored the vesting of a monopoly of banknote issue in the Bank of England. Its quarrel was solely with currency principal restrictions on the bank's issue of notes. This was surely the kind of opposition that the Bank of England could live with. While the banking school correctly spotted the main weakness of the currency school in not treating notes and deposits alike, this objection was scarcely directed to extending any sort of reserve requirements to bank deposits as well as notes. On the contrary, they would have been all the more outraged by, say, a consistent Peel's Act that would have placed a 100% reserve requirement on all further bank liabilities, deposits as well as notes. One bit of curiosa about the emergence of the banking school is the lateness of its arrival, coming as it did almost when the fight over Peel's Act was over, and flourishing for a while after. Its importance was more for raising theoretical issues and for raising the interest of historians of economic thought than in actually influencing the political battle. Another noteworthy aspect of the fray was the advent of a new and important star in the economic firmament, John Stuart Mill, 1806-1873, who joined the banking school side of the debate in an anonymous article, The Currency Question, in the radical Westminster Review. Actually, Mill had foreshadowed the banking school in an article written at the age of 20, Paper Currency and Commercial Distress, in the short-lived radical Parliamentary Review. Like so many others, Mill was first moved to turn his attention to banking and business cycles by the economic and financial crisis of 1825 and 1826. But in contrast to many others, he abandoned instead of extending his basic Ricardianism in this area. Instead of seeing the new phenomenon of business cycles as created by monetary disturbances, he saw them as caused by waves of speculation, presumably generated by over-optimism. Money and banks were purely passive respondents to fluctuations in the economy. 
From this there followed his conclusion that movements in the money supply, at least under a gold standard, had no effect on prices or trade. Within the framework of a gold standard, prices rose first, dragging the money supply upwards, and later fell, pulling the money supply down. How could Mill square this odd doctrine with his overall Ricardianism and its thesis of the influence of the supply of money upon its value? He did so by an ingenious, though bizarre and fallacious, theory of what constitutes the supply of money. The money supply was made up not only of coin, notes, and demand deposits, Mill opined, but also of the creditworthiness of every member of the public. When a bank made loans to some member of the public, then, it might increase notes or deposits outstanding, but that increase is exactly compensated by a decrease in the creditworthiness of the borrowing citizens. Therefore, when banks lend money to individuals and businesses, the money supply does not increase at all. On the contrary, when banks purchase government securities or finance its deficit, they add directly to the total money supply by the same amount. In fact, they even add to the money supply when they lend to private citizens beyond the degree of their genuine creditworthiness. How is such creditworthiness to be determined? by banks confining their loans to sound borrowers, and to the discounting of real bills that are short-term, matched by inventories of goods in process, and are therefore self-liquidating in a short period of time. Bank credit then happily follows the needs of trade upwards or downwards, and cannot raise prices. While completely fallacious, Mill's theory at least had the merit of providing some plausible logical explanation for the banking school creed, one that was scarcely matched by any of his colleagues. Furthermore, Mill's doctrine provided a good reason for his devotion to the gold standard and for his bullionist denunciation of inconvertible fiat money. Within his theory, if government or the central bank issues inconvertible fiat paper, that paper adds directly to the money supply and to inflation, rather than being neutralized by subtracting from creditworthiness. And devoted to the gold standard he remained. We have already seen Mill's denunciation of Thomas Atwood's inflationary fiat paper scheme in 1833. And what of the alleged free banking school, which Professor White has put forward as equally strong and vibrant to, and strictly separate from, the rival currency and banking schools? As White himself ruefully admits, they were nowhere to be found, their alleged devotion to free banking failing the most acid of all tests, when Peel's Act was about to bring all commercial banks under Bank of England control. For not only would the bank now have a virtual monopoly of note issue, 
but in order to obtain notes in exchange for cashed-in deposits, the other banks would now be obliged to keep the great bulk of their reserves at the Bank of England. White tries to explain away the defections of the free bankers as having been bought out by Peel's cartelization grandfather clause for the banks could continue to issue at their current level, and no new competing banks would be permitted. But while this explanation is true enough, it raises the crucial question, how devoted were Professor White's heroes to free banking to begin with? Wasn't the free banking school simply a group devoted to the economic interests of the private commercial banks? Take, for example, the newly founded The Banker's Magazine, which had supposedly been a leading mouthpiece for free banking for the previous year. A writer in the June 1844 issue, while critical of the currency principle and the move towards monopoly issues for the bank, frankly approved the Peel Act as a whole for aiding profits of existing banks by prohibiting all new banks of issue. And let us take in particular James William Gilbert, 1794-1863, leading spokesman for the country bankers, manager of the London and Westminster Bank, and, according to Professor White, one of the main theoreticians of the free banking school. Gilbert, born in London and descended from a Cornish family, had worked all his life as a bank official and had written works on banking since the late 1820s. Since 1834, he had been manager of the London and Westminster Bank, continually clashing with the Bank of England. Despite Professor White's assurance that the free banking school men were even more fervent than the currency men in attributing the cause of the business cycle to monetary inflation, Gilbert held, typically of the banking school, that banknotes simply expand and contract according to the wants of trade and therefore such notes, being matched by the production of goods, could not raise prices. Furthermore, the active factor goes from trade to prices to the requirement for more banknotes to flow in the economy. Thus Gilbert, If there is an increase of trade without an increase of prices, I consider that more notes will be required to circulate that increased quantity of commodities. If there is an increase of commodities and an increase of prices also, of course you would require a still greater amount of notes. In short, whether prices rise or not, the supply of money must always increase. One wonders who the you is who would have such requirements. On the free market, on the contrary, if there is an increase in the production of commodities, prices will tend to fall and not rise. Furthermore, increased production of trade does not require or call forth an increase in bank money. The causal chain is the other way round. Increased banknote issue raises the money supply and prices, and also the nominal money value of the goods being produced.
All historians of economic thought, except for Professor White, have placed Gilbert squarely in the banking school camp as one of its leaders. Since White seems to agree with Gilbert's fallacious once-of-trade analysis, and since he admits that this creed is similar to that of the banking school, his creation of an important new school of free banking, challenging both of the others, appears all the more tenuous and artificial. The main difference seems to be marginal and political. While all the banking school hailed the banking system as useful and harmless, most of them laid special honors on the Bank of England, while Gilbert, as a joint-stock banker himself, placed most approval upon the commercial banks. When it came to the test, then, Gilbert, like his colleagues on the Banker's Magazine, caved in on what Professor White alleges to be his free banking principles. Thus, White concedes, he, Gilbert, was relieved that the act did not extinguish the joint stock bank's right of issue and was frankly pleased with its cartelizing provisions. Our rights are acknowledged, our privileges are extended, our circulation guaranteed, and we are saved from conflicts with reckless competitors. James Gilbert's open status as a banking school inflationist and Robert Peel's staunch devotion to hard money were both revealed in Peel's questioning of Gilbert when the latter testified that country banknotes are only issued in response to the wants of trade, and therefore that they could never be over-issued. He also claimed that the Bank of England could never over-issue so long as it only discounted commercial loans and did not buy government bonds. At this point, Sir Robert Peel unerringly zeroed in and drew forth Gilbert's apologia for the banking system. Peel do you think, then, that the legitimate demands of commerce may always be trusted to as a safe test of the amount of circulation under all circumstances? To which Gilbert admitted, I think they may. Nothing about exempting the Bank of England from that trust. Peel then asked the critical question, the banking school all claimed to be devoted to the gold standard, so that the needs of trade justification for bank credit did not apply to inconvertible currency. Peel, suspicious of that devotion to gold, then asked, In the bank restriction days, do you think that the legitimate demands of commerce constituted a test that might be safely relied upon? to which Gilbert evasively replied, That is a period of which I have no personal knowledge. This was a particularly disingenuous point coming from the author of The History and Principles of Banking, 1834. Moreover, the issue is, of course, a theoretical one, and no personal knowledge is necessary to make a reply, a point made immediately by Peel at which point Gilbert threw in the towel on the gold standard. I think the legitimate demands of commerce even then would be a sufficient guide to go by. 
When Peel pressed Gilbert on the point, Gilbert began to vacillate, changing his views, returning to them, and then again falling back on his lack of personal experience. Peel was right in being suspicious of the strength of the banking school's devotion to gold. Apart from Gilbert's damaging revelations, his colleague at the London and Westminster Bank, J. W. Bosonkett, kept urging bank suspensions of specie payment whenever times became difficult. And while Thomas Took often proclaimed his abhorrence of the Birmingham School, he wrote in 1844 that a crucial limit on any over-issue of banknotes was the needs of trade in addition to gold convertibility. The opening was sufficient to allow Robert Torrens to score a palpable hit. After a careful examination of Mr. Took's recent publication, 1844, I cannot discover any very essential or practical difference between his principles and those of the Birmingham economists. Once deviate from the gold rule of causing the fluctuations of our mixed circulation to conform to what would be the fluctuations of a purely metallic currency, and the floodgates are opened and the landmarks removed. Between the abandonment of a metallic standard as recommended by the Birmingham economists and the adoption of arrangements hazarding the maintenance of a metallic standard recommended by Mr. Took, the difference in the practicable result might ultimately be nothing. John Fullerton's admission was even more damaging than Took's, avowing in his popular 1844 tract that he wholeheartedly agreed with the decried doctrine of the old bank directors of 1810, namely the anti-bullionist position that so long as any bank sticks to short-term real bills, it cannot go wrong in issuing as many notes as the public will receive from it. And, of course, 1810 was a year of inconvertible money. It is no wonder that Robert Peel considered all opponents of the currency principle as essentially Birmingham men. Thus the opposition to Peel's act, while theoretically important, was politically scattered and ineffective. The bill sailed through overwhelmingly and became law on 19 July, a second Peel bill, designed to make it more difficult to establish new joint stock banks, sailed through in September. The result of this tightening of bank control and monopoly, as well as cartel privileges to existing banks, was, indeed, the creation of virtually no new joint stock banks in England for the next eight years. At this point, Peel completed his currency task by extending its sway to Scotland and Ireland in two bills that became law on 21 July 1845. Cautious in the face of regional traditions, Peel was not as tough on the Scottish and Irish banks as he had been on the English. Whereas the English commercial banks could issue no more banknotes, period, the Scottish and Irish banks were treated as Peel's Act of 1844 treated the Bank of England. Their further banknote issues were limited to 100% gold reserves. 
Scotland had never had its banking restricted, having been free to establish joint stock banks and issue notes and deposits throughout Scotland. The Scottish bankers, however, like Gilbert and the English bankers, were easily bought off by cartel privileges even more lucrative than in England. As White admits, Peel in essence bought the support of all existing banks by suppressing potential entrance and competition for market shares. In addition, Peel shrewdly permitted the Scottish banks to keep the privilege denied to English banks, including the Bank of England, since the 1820s, of continuing to issue their cherished small one-pound notes. The only important development in the year between the two Peel's acts was the highly belated entry into the great debate of a new leader of the banking school, James Wilson, founder and editor of the notable new journal, The Economist. Wilson, 1805-1860, had founded The Economist for the express purpose of battling for free trade and laissez-faire. He criticized Peel's act when it came up in 1844, but devoted most of his energies to free trade. Finally, in the spring of 1845, Wilson wrote a famous series of nine articles on currency and banking in The Economist, attacking the extension of Peel's Act to Scotland and Ireland. Wilson took an orthodox banking school approach, except that each of his positions was so emphatic that the inner inconsistencies and contradictions of the banking school were brought out particularly starkly. Thus Wilson was far more emphatic and militant than Took or Fullerton about the importance of preserving the gold standard, so much so that Torrens was later to call Wilson the most able of the opponents of the Act of 1844. And yet, of the big four of the banking school, Took, Fullerton, Mill, and Wilson, Wilson was the only one who stated flatly and clearly that short-term, self-liquidating real bills would be sufficient to protect the banks from over-issue, even without specie convertibility. Thus Wilson declared that inconvertible paper notes might be issued to any extent that legitimate transactions required them, provided such issues were confined to the discount of good bills of exchange and to loans for short periods, without any risk of depreciation, because a larger quantity never could be so issued than was again shortly returnable to the bank in payment of such loans. In addition, of all the big four, Wilson was the friendliest to free banking and desirous of saving the alleged free banking system in Scotland. And yet, he also claimed that the Bank of England could never over-issue in a convertible money system, which was quite the opposite of the free banking approach. 8. Tragedy in Triumph for the Currency School The Aftermath as the Jacksonians and other currency counterparts in the United States might have predicted, the currency school harbored a tragic flaw, an Achilles heel that laid them low and turned their triumph into ashes. 
the neglect of bank deposits as a coordinate part of the money supply. And so, no sooner had Peel's Act been passed, when the Bank of England, happily ensconced in its briar patch of monopoly, central control, and note restriction, but deposit freedom, began to expand its loans and deposits ad libitum. At the end of 1844, bank discounts had been 2.1 million pounds, and total bank credit 21.8 million pounds. By the end of February 1846, however, bank credit expansion had been so intense that its discounts totaled 13.1 million pounds, and total credits 35.8 million pounds. In short, in only a little over a year, total bank credits had risen by 64%, and discounts by a phenomenal 424%. This expansion was aided by the banks drastically reducing its discount rate from 4% to 2.5%, not only a huge quantitative reduction, but also a lowering of the rate from its traditional penalty rate above the market to the market interest rate, thereby greatly stimulating borrowing from the bank by banks and other debtors. Notes of the Bank of England increased only mildly during this period. The huge rise, as we might expect, took place in bank deposits. In September 1844, bank deposits totaled 12.2 million pounds. By the end of February 1846, they had doubled to 24.9 million pounds. In the course of this enormous expansion, bank gold reserves fell sharply. Most of this expanded bank credit poured into a speculative mania of investing in questionable new domestic railroads. In the years 1845 and 1846, over 180 million pounds of new railroad construction was authorized, about double the total of the entire previous decade. Looking back on the period a few years later, the economist referred to the mad scenes of 1845 and 1846, and to the folly, the avarice, the insufferable arrogance, the headlong, desperate, and unprincipled gambling and jobbing which disgraced nobility and aristocracy, polluted senators and senate houses, contaminated merchants, manufacturers, and traders of all kinds, and threw a chilling blight for a time over honest plod and fair industry. The bank tried feebly to stem the tide during the first half of 1846, but no sooner did bank reserves increase than the bank, which had raised its discount rate to 3.5% in November 1845, dropped it back to 3% the following August. Bank reserves then resumed their steep decline, falling from 10 million pounds in August 1846, a ratio of specie to notes and bank deposits of 58%, to only 3 million pounds in April 1847, a ratio of only 20%. Again, the bank tried to check the tide it had created and continued to generate, but too little and too late. 
interest rates rose with the inflationary boom so that an increase of the bank discount rate to 4% in January 1847 left the rate still under the market, and between 9 January and 10 April, total bank credits rose by 4.5 million pounds and discounts by 3.8 million pounds. By April 1847, the Bank of England, as well as the entire financial and economic system, was in deep crisis. It increased its rate to 5%, but market rates were now up to 7%. Rejecting efforts by a minority of bank directors to raise the rate to 7% or even to 6 the bank made things much worse by keeping its rate at five and then rationing credit, suddenly cutting off discounts, calling in loans, and refusing to increase loans regardless of the credit quality of the borrower. The bank's refusal to raise rates and instead discriminate in favor of certain borrowers did not, however, save the commercial bank owned by the bank's own governor, W.R. Robinson, from stopping payments in July, or the bank of two other directors from going under in September. The bank's sudden contraction, cessation of loans, and credit rationing caused a severe business and financial panic in April and May of 1847. This drastic therapy finally eased the bank's own condition by the end of May, with the gold outflow temporarily reversing. By the beginning of July, the bank's reserves had doubled from three million pounds to six million pounds, a reserve ratio to deposits of 32 percent. But no sooner had the pressure eased than the bank began to expand again, in the meanwhile making things worse by keeping its discount rate below the market and indulging in selective credit rationing. In September, the second great crisis of 1847 broke, and mercantile failures spread throughout September and October. Thomas Took lamented that these mercantile failures in number and in the amount of property involved in them were unprecedented in the commercial history of this country. In October, the banks began to break, and bank runs began to spread through the provinces. As a result, the frightened banks began to contract their credit and deposits drastically in order to increase greatly their percentage of reserves. The reserves of the Bank of England were down sharply once again to less than 14% of deposits. At that point, the Bank of England threw in the towel and for the first of many crises requested the government to suspend the 100% gold reserve restriction on notes imposed by Peel's Act. Delegations from Liverpool and the North, London private bankers, and members from Scotland also pressed hard for suspension of Peel's Act. The country bank organ, circular to bankers, charged that the London bankers were considering breaking the Bank of England by redeeming all their deposits. One wonders, in that case, how the commercial banks themselves could have avoided being broken in turn. At that point, the government predictably, and for the first of many crises, itself threw in the towel by suspending the Peel Act provision of 100% gold reserve restrictions on the issue of Bank of England notes.
The government saved the fractional reserve system by obediently suspending Peel's act on 25 October, thereby, of course, saving the day for the banks and alleviating the immediate crisis, at the expense of, in effect, giving up the currency principle and any attempt to tie the monetary and banking system directly to, and to the same extent as, the behavior of gold. From then on, Great Britain, and eventually the rest of the world, was stuck with a fractional reserve banking system, issuing demand deposits, pyramiding on top of a central bank, monopolizing the issue of notes, and centralizing the nation's gold, and generating an endless round of boom-bust cycles of inflation and recession. Furthermore, with gold essentially centralized into the reserves of the central banks, it became easy for all these nations, even though allegedly committed to the gold standard, to go off that standard and on to fiat paper whenever any crisis, such as World War I, presented an alleged need for the rapid inflation of money to finance the war effort. The heart and soul of the currency principle was a rigid tie of Bank of England note issue to 100% gold reserve. But if this restriction was to be suspended whenever banks or businesses got into trouble, then the currency principle lay in shambles. As the prominent London banker George Carr Glynn correctly prophesied after the 1847 suspension, the public would expect another suspension in every future crisis. And sure enough, that is precisely what happened. In response to the 1847 crisis, there were committees of parliamentary inquiry in 1847 and 1848, the suspension of Peel's Act during the crisis of 1857 was easier, and while there were parliamentary committees in 1857 and 1858, there was, in contrast to the 1847 crisis, no debate on the floor of Parliament. And the suspension of Peel's Act in 1866 was considered so routine that there was not even the bother of a parliamentary committee of inquiry. It is therefore remarkable that from the time of the first suspension in 1847, the currency school, without exception, defended the suspension of Peel's Act, giving no sign of realizing that they were thereby abandoning their entire doctrine. For not only did suspension in crises weaken the point of the Act, but also the knowledge that suspension would come to the rescue in any crisis emboldened the bank and banking system to expand credit as if the restrictions of Peel's Act did not exist at all. As a result, all that was left of the currency principle was the monopolization of notes by the Bank of England. 9. De facto Victory for the Banking School it is a cliché that people are often appalled at the consequences of achieving their long-cherished goals. Because of the neglect of deposits, the enactment of the currency principle in Peel's Act in no way moderated bank credit expansion or the boom-bust cycle. Given the dashing of their dreams, the currency school, as in the case of all ideologues whose God has failed, could take several alternative courses of action. 
the most courageous would have been to admit that their principle was deeply flawed, to concede defeat, and to go back to the drawing board. Unfortunately, human beings are so constituted that they rarely opt for this noble course. Certainly none of the currency school distinguished themselves in this crisis. Instead, they took the route that all too many schools of thought, including the Marxists, have traveled, stoutly proclaiming that their theory is in excellent shape, while subtly but vitally redefining what the theory is all about. For example, before 1844, the currency school, especially Colonel Torrens, adopted a monetary theory of the business cycle. Economic fluctuations were generated by bank credit expansion, led by the Bank of England, which led to inflation and booms, after which the inevitable contraction brought about bankruptcies and recessions. No sooner did the cycle of 1844 to 1847 occur, however, when the currency men backtracked, virtually joining their old enemies of the banking school. The banking school had always proclaimed that banks and the money supply were merely passive respondents to boom-bust cycles generated by non-monetary forces in the real economy. Usually the culprit was mysterious waves of speculation, presumably driven by waves of over-optimism and over-pessimism. Now the currency school, even Colonel Torrens, proclaimed that they had never ever promised an end to the business cycle, which is, after all, governed by such non-monetary forces as speculation and over-optimism and pessimism. The most that regulation of the currency could do, the currency school now opined, is to eliminate whatever part of the business fluctuations were caused by movements of the money supply. And this, they staunchly affirmed, Peel's act had indeed accomplished. The business cycle of 1844 to 1847 might have been severe, but it would have been far worse if Peel's act and the currency principle had not been in effect. Thus Colonel Torrens, in numerous apologies for Peel's act, put the blame for the boom of 1844 to 1846 on over-trading and railway speculation, as if this speculation had come out of the blue and was not the consequence of cheap, expanding bank credit. He also mentioned that one aspect of the inflationary boom was rapid conversion of floating to fixed capital, that is, a sinking of liquid capital into an excessive amount of fixed, long-range investment. Again, there was no hint that it was excessive bank credit that had generated this overinvestment. It is revealing to compare two critiques by Torrens of Mill's contention that the currency school claimed to be able to cure all business cycles and commercial revulsions. In 1844, in reply to Mill's essay in Westminster Review, Torrens pointed out that the currency school claimed to eliminate not all revulsions, but only those originating in a currency fluctuating alternately above and below the level to which a purely metallic currency would perform.
But in his point-by-point 1857 critique of the banking chapter in Mill's Principles, Torrens shifted the emphasis. Instead of paring down monetary-based fluctuations to gold currency, Torrens now claimed that most fluctuations began not in overissue by banks, but in disturbances not caused by money, which left the money supply out of harmony with the gold supply. Furthermore, Torrens was now easily able to cite Lloyd and Norman in support. Lloyd, too, now focused on the alleged non-monetary causes of fluctuations. Focusing, as the banking school had long done, on optimism and speculation, Lloyd declared that, so long as human nature remains what it is, and hope springs eternal in the human breast, speculations will occasionally occur, and bring their attendant train of alternate periods of excitement and depression. Thus, with the currency school coming to agree with the banking school on the primacy of non-monetary and the passive dependence of monetary causes of the cycle, the way was paved for a de facto consensus between the two schools. Since the currency school seemed content with the existing system so long as it enjoyed the label of the currency principle, the money supply was now deemed passive enough. At the same time, the Bank of England had enough real discretion and flexibility to satisfy the banking school and reconcile it rather easily to the status quo. Thus James Wilson, a leading banking school critic of Peel's Act, was readily able to vote for its continuance in the Parliamentary Committee of 1857 and 1858. The banking school was content in the British banking system of 1844 to 1914 to achieve the substance of their own creed while allowing the proud currency men to bask in the name. For their part, the currency men enjoyed the laurels of an empty victory. Norman, Torrens, and Lloyd, after 1850 made Baron Overstone, enjoyed great prestige while proclaiming the status quo a triumphant embodiment of their principles. The Bank of England's directors were happy to embrace the supposedly restrictive currency creed, and new currency epigones relayed what had become standard doctrine misinterpreting the existing system as currency-like and ignoring the entrenching of the boom-bust cycle in economic life. With the currency school now committed to the banking school's non-monetary over-trading theory of the business cycle, and with such hard money and free banking writers as Robert Mushet and Henry Parnell gone from the scene, the currency analysis of the business cycle disappeared by default. Of the banking school analysis, the most important elaboration of the non-monetary cycle theory was that of James Wilson in his Capital, Currency, and Banking, 1847. Wilson developed what might be called a non-monetary over-investment theory, which foreshadowed the later Austrian cycle theory, but lacked the crucial monetary causal element. 
He focused on railroad overinvestment as the cause of the 1844-1847 cycle and persistently predicted a crisis based on his analysis from 1845 until the time of the crash. In Wilson's brilliant analysis, the boom begins with the excessive investment of savings in fixed capital. Savings are floating or circulating capital, the wages fund that goes into the hiring of workers and buying of raw materials. But because of a sometime propensity to overtrade, businesses may invest in fixed capital beyond the annual supply of savings. Too many money savings are poured into the production of fixed capital, whereas too few are used to produce consumer goods. In short, the boom is characterized by an undue shift of resources from consumption goods to capital goods. The increased expenditure on fixed investment of capital, in the 1845 case heavy railroad investment, on the other hand, increases wages in the hands of consumers. But as the consumers come to spend their wages on a lower supply of consumer goods, the price of consumer goods will inevitably rise. In short, consumption and investment have become excessive in relation to the savings available. In response to the rising prices of consumer goods, consumer goods producers will attempt to expand output and thereby increase their demand for capital, that is, their demand for loans. But the dearth of savings in relation to the demand for capital will bring about a rise in the rate of interest, and the sharp rise in interest rates will precipitate a recession. In short, the fixed investment boom producers, in this case the railways and suppliers of railway material, would be forced into a sharp scramble with the producers of consumer goods for suddenly scarce capital, and the resulting crisis and depression causes the abandonment or indefinite postponement of the excessive fixed investments. During the Depression, excessive investment is abandoned, resulting eventually in recovery to a sound and normal condition. Thus Wilson, in addition to seeing the unwise and excessive investment, as well as the overconsumption and under-savings of the boom, demonstrated how the boom is the economic distortion that necessarily generates the unhappy but curative depression that finally restores a sound economy. He also saw how a rise in interest rates, as a signal of overconsumption and undersaving, brings about the restorative recession. In addition, he realized that a lack of savings was a key to the recession, and concluded that greater savings would help speed the recovery. While there is surely over-investment in the higher orders of capital goods during a boom, Wilson misfired when making his sharp distinction between floating and fixed capital. To Wilson, money savings going into fixed capital are somehow lost or sunk, and thus disappear from the payment of wages. 
The problem is not in fixed versus floating capital, however, but consumption as against overinvestment of all types in the higher orders of capital, whether in fixed plant or greater inventory of raw materials. But the greatest problem in Wilson's discussion was his neglect of money. Money, he believed, was merely a device for facilitating exchanges, and therefore could never be a cause of economic fluctuations, but only an effect. And yet, if money was not involved, where do the railway firms get the new money to spend, even though savings have not risen? The only answer which Wilson neglects is an increase in money and bank credit loaned to those firms. And if the money supply has not increased, why are the increases of wage payments by railway firms and other capital producers not offset by declines of wage payments in consumer industries? In short, why does the general level of prices increase from the beginning of the boom? Why don't consumer prices at least initially fall? The answer, once again, is the increase in the supply of money and credit that generates and fuels the boom. And finally, why can't the general run of businessmen, including the railway magnates, realize that their investments are outrunning savings? And why does the eventual critical rise in interest rates come as a shock? The answer, once more, is that the expansion of bank credit artificially lowers the interest rate and lures business firms into the fatal overinvestment. Despite the fact that Wilson insisted that a quantity of money must not be confused with capital, he yet fell into the old Smithian trap of considering the supply of gold as idle and unproductive capital, and so he believed that capital could be increased and the depression greatly eased by government issue of twenty million pounds of small one-pound notes, which would replace the idle and unproductive twenty million pounds of gold in circulation. This huge issue, Wilson assured his readers, would not be inflationary, because it would simply add to capital, and besides, he added smugly, no inflation could exist, since the paper notes would continue to be convertible into gold. But what sort of gold convertibility, what sort of gold standard exists when gold is supposed to disappear from circulation? The lesson is that regardless how much devotion is professed to laissez-faire or the gold standard, at the heart of every banking school man, including those professing a free banking position, lies an unreconstructed inflationist. In his Principles of Political Economy, 1848, John Stuart Mill set forth a cycle theory that blended Wilson's analysis with a Tookian emphasis on commodity speculation, and unfortunately brought in the Ricardian gloom about the alleged inevitable tendency toward a falling rate of profit as agriculture yields ever lower returns. 
Mill, in short, fused the standard took banking school emphasis on speculation, over-optimism, and over-trading with Wilson's analysis of the conversion of circulating into fixed capital. Once again, the doctrine was non-monetary, with money playing a passive, non-essential, and at best secondary role. Thus Mill adopted Wilson's railroad investment theory of the cause of the recent 1845 to 1847 cycle. The Ricardian motif led Mill to anticipate Schumpeter and hail the inflationary boom as necessary and vital to the achievement of economic growth, by enabling a periodic escape from the falling rate of profit. As a result, Mill was among the first to develop the idea that business fluctuations tend to repeat as recurring cycles, a process which he considered beneficial. He was not worried about recessions, since the contraction and Say's law ensured a rapid return to full employment and prosperity. There was another important reason for the effective fusion of the currency and banking schools after the enactment of Peel's Act. Both these groups, after all, were dedicated to retention of the gold standard as their top monetary priority, even though the banking school version tended to be highly attenuated. But as soon as the great crisis of 1847 occurred and brought monetary and banking controversy back to Britain, the ultra-inflationist opponents of the gold standard came on the attack, calling either for fiat money inflation or, at best, a bimetallic gold-silver standard. In the face of this onslaught, the currency and banking schools closed ranks, which largely accounts, for example, for James Wilson's voting to retain Peel's Act in 1858. In fact, it took no more than the crisis of 1847 to encourage the men of Birmingham to resume their assault on gold. Matthias Atwood's old fiat money pamphlet was promptly reprinted, a Birmingham delegation headed by George Frederick Muntz called upon the Prime Minister, and the Birmingham Currency Reform Association sent a memorial to the Queen. The Times felt called upon to denounce the Birmingham men in an editorial, and T. Perronette Thompson warned a friend of an increasing flow of half-mad pamphlets from Birmingham, and other sectors in the north of Britain joined in the cry. The Liverpool Currency Reform Association was active enough to be denounced in two issues of The Economist, and Scotland revealed its inflationist bent by an anti-gold article in the Tory Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine. Furthermore, an organizing convention of the National Anti-Gold Law League was held in Glasgow and was attended by 3,000 people. The threat of silver bimetallism also surfaced during the crisis of 1847. Particularly important was the powerful banker Alexander Baring, now Lord Ashburton, always ready to ride his hobby horse of bimetallism, and a petition of a number of influential merchants, bankers, and traders of London against the Bank Act. 
Wilson denounced the bimetallist doctrine of Ashburton and the London petitioners as extraordinary and most inexplicable and unreasonable. So serious was the bimetallic threat considered that the two stalwarts of the currency school, Lloyd and Torrens, collaborated in writing an anonymous pamphlet in a point-by-point rebuttal of the London petition. The telling thrust in the Torrens-Lloyd polemic was to show that the logic of the bimetallist position pointed straight to the far more consistent, though far more dangerous, policy of Birmingham fiat money. The Birmingham philosophers are consistent reasoners, and have the sagacity to perceive that an arbitrary extension of the paper circulation is incompatible with the maintenance of a metallic standard. The inferior logicians who have signed the London petition while demanding the establishment of a double metallic standard are unable to perceive that an extension of paper money through the exercise of the relaxing power for which they pray would render impracticable the maintenance of any metallic standard. The high-water mark of the assault on gold came in votes in Parliament in 1848. In the Commons Committee, the veteran radical leader Joseph Hume's motion denouncing Peel's act for aggravating the crisis of 1847 was defeated by a vote of 13 to 11. The eleven supporters included a coalition of free banking remnants like Hume, inflationists and protectionists like the Birmingham Tory Richard Spooner, and bimetallists like Thomas Baring and Lord Bentinck. Furthermore, the report of the House of Lords Committee criticized Peel's Act and recommended watering down the restrictive provisions on banknotes. While the committees were deliberating, the veteran anti-bullionist John Charles Harries moved to repeal the limitations on banknotes of the Act of 1844 and all the Acts of 1845. Here was a rallying point for all soft currency men of whatever stripe, Birmingham men, bimetallists, or soft gold men. Harry's motion lost rather narrowly by a vote of 163 to 142. The major speeches for the motion came not from the moderates, but from Birmingham men like Richard Spooner. In answer to Spooner, the great Robert Peel rose and pointed out that although Birmingham doctrine was in a small minority within the House of Commons, outside the House, of those who talk about the currency and write about the currency, the vast majority, indeed nine-tenths, agree with Spooner, that is, want issues of paper without the check of convertibility. Whether Peel was overreacting to what he considered expressions of evil, or whether his raising the specter of Birmingham was a ploy to rally the troops, that tactic was successful, and Harry's motion to consider the reports of the Lords and Commons Committees was defeated without even coming to a formal vote. From then on, for a decade, the specter of Birmingham was enough to win the moderate gold men and the banking school to an all-out defense of the Peel Act status quo. 
During the mid-1850s, Wilson's economist followed this path, and the veteran currency man James Pennington wrote a worried letter to a friend that there is just now a widespread clamor calling for repeal of that act, the Bank Act of 1844, which clamor, if it prevails, will, I think, be followed by a clamor equally loud for doing away altogether with the obligation of specie payments. We may fittingly close our discussion of the aftermath of Peel's Act by focusing on two important contributions, after the passage of the Act, by the wisest of the currency school, Colonel Robert Torrens. In the course of his critique in 1857 of the banking school chapter of Mill's Principles, Torrens added another vital point in criticizing the view that banks, being passive, can have no power to increase their liabilities, and hence have no power to raise prices. Torrens trenchantly pointed out that Mill excludes from his consideration the important fact that banks possess in themselves the power of increasing and diminishing the demand for banking accommodation when they raise the rate of discount. The demand for accommodation contracts, and when they lower the rate, it expands. And unless he is prepared to disprove the fact that banks can lower the rate of discount, he cannot consistently maintain that their power of increasing the issue is limited. Amidst all the assaults on the Peel's Act system by Birmingham fiat moneymen, by metalists, remnants of free bankers, and banking school adherents, it is remarkable that apparently not a single writer, parliamentarian, or man of affairs called for a tougher policy of plugging up the enormous hole in the currency system by extending the 100% reserve principle to deposits as well as notes. Not a single currency man admitted any flaw in his previous position, nor advocated, like Jacksonians in the United States, pressing on to a full 100% reserve position on all bank demand liabilities, including deposits. The closest that anyone came to this view was Colonel Torrens, in a poignant moment in the history of economic thought, in his last published work at the age of 77, Torrens wrote a review in the January 1858 issue of Edinburgh Review of the collected tracts and other publications on metallic and paper currency by his old friend and ally Samuel Lloyd, Lord Overstone, edited by John R. McCullough, after eulogizing the contributions of Lord Overstone and once again defending Peel's act, Torrens went on to try to explain the business cycle culminating in the recent crisis of 1857. In sharp contrast to his surrender a decade earlier to the banking school in blaming over-trading for the crisis of 1847, Torrens now strongly affirmed that were there no overbanking, there could not be, except for brief periods, overtrading and excessive speculation. And the overbanking, since Peel's Act, clearly meant deposits. For Torrens could scarcely ignore the fluctuations that were occurring in the amount of bank deposits. 
Discussing deposit banking, Torrens emphasized that by creating new demand deposits through loans, the banks exerted the same influence upon the markets as an increase in the numerical amount of the circulation of notes. Torrens had always been the only currency man to understand the true monetary importance of deposits. Now he pressed on to a vigorous condemnation of the commercial bankers and their expansion of deposits in the recent boom, as well as their contraction and bankruptcy during the crisis. Thus Torrens bitterly inquired, Are the scales of justice held even when a petty thief or the forger of a five-pound note is treated as a felon, and when the speculating banker obtains from the court of bankruptcy a full liquidation of his debts, and receives from sympathizing friends and half-ruined creditors the means of recommencing his disreputable and mischievous career? Torrens went on to show how additional loans from deposits produce effects upon prices, upon commercial credit, and upon the exchanges, results analogous to those produced by additional issues of bank notes. Virtually conceding that Peel's Act suffered from not being applied to deposits, Robert Torrens now conceded that even under a currency exclusively metallic, that is, coins without notes, overbanking and the insolvency of discount houses may occasion disasters as formidable as those which can result from an unrestricted use of bank notes and a suspension of cash payments. In his conclusion, Torrens expressed strong doubt whether the advantages of discount deposit banking, even when conducted under a metallic currency, balance the evils it inflicts. It seems that Torrens was on the brink of advocating the extension of the currency system to deposits, and perhaps if he had lived to write more on money and banking, he would have done so. 10. Currency and Banking School Thought on the Continent The flowering of the currency and banking school debates in Britain, coupled with the later burgeoning of central banking on the continent, led to similar controversies in France and Germany in the 1850s and 1860s. Generally, the results were the same— pseudo-currency triumph in the same sense that the central bank acquired a monopoly of note issue, and de facto banking school victory in elastic, fractional reserve banking and repeated increases and declines in the supply of money. In France, laissez-faire thought flowered among economists who proved themselves the true heirs of J.B. Say, Professors, journalists, the long-lasting Société d'économie politique, the Société's Journal des économistes, both launched in 1842, and several other scholarly and popular periodicals were dedicated to the free trade and laissez-faire cause. In that atmosphere, the French economists naturally plumped for free rather than central banking. 
Most of them, unfortunately, felt constrained to adopt banking school doctrine so as to maintain that freely competitive banking, like banks in general, can never issue excessive notes or bring about a business cycle. They were a far more genuine free banking group than the British, who, as we have seen, were special pleaders for commercial banking interests rather than consistent advocates of free banking. Indeed, in this, as in other areas, the French, in contrast to the hesitant, muddled, and pragmatic British, were not afraid to be consistent, rigorous, militant, and therefore extremist advocates of individual liberty and free exchange. One of the leading and one of the most interesting of the French free banking theorists was Jean-Gustave courcel Sonwil. 1813-1892. Courcel, as one historian writes, was in favor of absolute freedom and unlimited competition, and was the most uncompromising of all the free bankers in France. The sole permissible regulation, in his view, was one aimed simply at the prevention of fraud. J. Edward Horn, 1825-1875, was another notable French free-banking theorist. In his La Liberté des Banques, 1866, Horn went so far as to challenge the idea that the state must have a monopoly on coinage. He pointed out that private investment bankers could easily gain as much public confidence in the circulation of their coins as has the state. Horn noted that the state is far more likely to suspend the obligation of a central bank to redeem in specie than grant such a boon to the smaller individual banks. In the paraphrase of Vera Smith, Horn called attention to the greater possibility that the liability of such a central bank to pay out specie on demand would be revoked with its consequence of pure paper money in place of notes convertible into coin. A bank under state patronage always counted on the government to relieve of its obligation to pay when nearing insolvency, and its bankruptcy became legalized instead of its having to go into liquidation and suffer the usual penalties of insolvency. This history of privileged banks had undeniably been full of bankruptcies. Horn went on to insist that under free banking, any refusal whatever to pay in specie on demand must mean instant liquidation for the errant bank. Only then could a free banking system work. Horn notes, if banks of issue were given to understand, however, that they were positively and irremediably responsible for their acts, and had themselves to bear the consequences, they would be as prudent in their policy as any other business concern. The problem is how could government be trusted to enforce prompt specie payment on the banks, especially if many or most banks get into trouble at the same time? Courcel and Horn were both heavily influenced by James Wilson's circulation into fixed capital analysis of the boom. But both men, while stressing with the banking school that banks cannot over-issue their notes, 
did admit, in contrast to Wilson, that banks could and did err in fueling over-investment in fixed capital during the boom. Interestingly enough, Horn, Courcel, and many of the French free bankers felt they had to deny by legalistic quibbles that even bank notes were money, since money in the legalistic, though not economic, sense must be strictly confined to the standard specie in which notes were convertible. But the most fascinating theorists were the tiny, intrepid band of Frenchmen who believed in free banking and at the same time were rigorous currency school ultras, who despised as fraudulent and inflationary all fiduciary media, all bank liabilities beyond 100% specie reserve. They believed, quite plausibly, that neither a monopoly-privileged bank nor the government that backed it could be long-trusted to maintain 100% gold reserve banking. The leader of this little band was Henri Carnouchi, who, writing two tracts in 1865, declared that the important question was not monopoly note issue versus plural or free banking, but whether bank notes should be issued at all. His answer was no, since they had the effect of despoiling the holders of metallic money by depreciating its value. If they were at all useful, they should no more than represent metallic money by one hundred percent. Any uncovered notes, any fiduciary media, should be ended totally. Carnucci favored free banking because he held that, lacking any special privilege, encouragement, or acceptance by the state, and forced to close the minute banks refused any payment of liabilities, nobody would wish to hold banknotes. As Ludwig von Mises approvingly quoted from Carnucci, I want to give everybody the right to issue banknotes so that nobody should take banknotes any longer. A follower of Carnucci was Victor Modeste, whose policy conclusions were rather different and brought him close to the hardcore Jacksonians in the United States. Modeste was a dedicated libertarian who believed that the state is the master, the obstacle, the enemy, and whose announced goal was to replace government by self-government. Modeste agreed with Courcel and the banking school free bankers that commerce and trade must remain free. He also agreed with them that central monopoly banking was far worse and more damaging than freely competitive banking, and was also opposed to administrative control or regulation of banks. On the other hand, what is to be done about banknotes? In this category, Modeste explicitly included demand deposits, which he saw to be illicit, fraudulent, inflationary generators of the business cycle, and bearers of false money. His answer was to point out that false demand liabilities which pretend to but cannot be converted into gold, since they go beyond the value of the gold stock, are in reality equivalent to fraud and theft. Modeste concluded that false titles and values are at all times equivalent to theft, that theft in all its forms everywhere deserves its penalties, 
that every bank administrator must be warned that to pass as value where there is no value, to subscribe to an engagement that cannot be accomplished, are criminal acts which should be relieved under the criminal law. The answer, then, is not administrative regulation, but prohibition of tort and fraud under general law. In Germany, there were few writers influenced by the banking school. Most were currency men. In the rigorous currency tradition was Philipp Josef Geier. Writing in his tract Banks and Crises in 1865, and in another book two years later, Geier declared that ideally the amount of money in circulation should always remain constant, The money supply is not, in fact, constant largely because continuing issues of banknotes are not covered by specie. At this point, Geyer contributed one of the first outlines of the Austrian theory of the business cycle, as he pointed out that uncovered banknote issues inject an artificial capital into the economy, and when this artificial capital exceeds the amount of available real capital, overinvestment and overproduction bring about a crisis. However, Geyer then blundered into an inconsistent underconsumption theory while trying to develop his analysis. An academic hard-line currency man in Germany was Johann Louis Tellkampf, 1808-1876, a young Prussian with a doctorate from the University of Göttingen, Telkampf emigrated to the United States, where he taught first at Union College in law and political economy as well as history, German language, and literature. Then, in 1843, he moved to Columbia College as professor of German language and literature. Three years later, Telkampf returned to Prussia and became professor of political economy at the University of Breslau. He was later elected to the Prussian Senate, where he took a leading part in bank legislation. Telkampf's observations on the problems of decentralized banking in the United States led him to argue for strict 100% specie reserves to banknotes, and for one monopoly central bank to put this plan into effect. Telkampf aided in disseminating the currency principle by co-translating McCullough's defense of the principle into German in 1859. On the other hand, failing the adoption of his 100% specie plan, Telkampf was very willing to consider free banking as a second best. The free bankers in Germany tended to be smaller in number than in France, and currency school rather than banking school men. A notable writer in this camp was Otto Hübner, a leader of the German Free Trade Party. His multi-volume work, Die Banken, 1854, was largely an empirical survey of banks throughout the world, and argued that banks were soundest and least in danger where they were freest and least controlled. Privileged central banks tend to be wildly run and are in danger of insolvency, as note the suspension of specie payment of the Austrian National Bank, which had financed large deficits of the Austrian government. 
Hubner's goal, like Carnucci's in France and like that of Geyer and Telkampf in Germany, was 100% specie reserve to banknotes. His ideal preference would have been for a state-run monopoly 100% reserve in the bank, like the old banks of Amsterdam and Hamburg. But he recognized the problem of inherent mistrust of state banking. As Vera Smith paraphrases Hubner, If it were true that the state could be trusted always only to issue notes to the amount of its specie holdings, a state-controlled note issue would be the best system. But as things were, a far nearer approach to the ideal system was to be expected from free banks, who, for reasons of self-interest, would aim at the fulfillment of their obligations. Chapter 8 John Stuart Mill and the Reimposition of Ricardian Economics 1. Mill's Importance The Mills, father and son, had a fateful impact upon the history of economic thought. If James Mill played a crucial and neglected role in developing Ricardian economics and its philosophical ally, Benthamite utilitarianism, and in foisting them upon the British intellectual world, his son John was by far the most important force in reimposing Ricardian dominance two decades after it had fallen into decline. It is ironic that the fate of British intellectual life in the nineteenth century should depend so closely on the psychological interplay between famous father and son. Ironic, since both purported to be austere scientists above all. The two men could not have been more different in character and quality of intellect. James Mill, as we have seen, was a hard-nosed, hard-hitting, self-confident, hard-core cadre type, in intellect and action, original in carving out an architectonic system of economics, philosophy, and political theory, and then supremely energetic in organizing people and institutions around him to try to put them into effect, James tried to educate John Stuart, 1806 to 1873, to follow him in leadership of this philosophic radical cadre, but the education didn't take. After John's famous nervous breakdown at the age of twenty, the younger Mill emerged as almost the opposite to his father in temperament and quality of intellect. Instead of possessing a hard-nosed cadre intellect, John Stuart was the quintessence of soft rather than hard core, a woolly-minded man of mush, in striking contrast to his steel-edged father. John Stuart Mill was the sort of man who, hearing or reading some view seemingly at utter variance with his own, would say, Yes, there is something in that and proceed to incorporate this new, inconsistent strand into his capacious and muddled worldview. Hence Mill's ever-expanding intellectual synthesis was rather a vast kitchen-midden of diverse and contradictory positions. As a result, Mill has ever since provided a field day for young Ph.D.s caught in the game of publish or perish, Dispute over what Mill really believed has become an unending cottage industry. 
Was Mill a laissez-faire liberal, a socialist, a romantic, a classicist, a civil libertarian, a believer in state-coerced morality? The answer is yes, every time. There is endless fodder for dispute, because in his long and prolific life Mill was all of these and none, an ever-changing kaleidoscope of alteration, transformation, and contradiction. John Mill's enormous popularity and stature in the British intellectual world was partially due to his very mush-headedness. Here was this person of undoubted intellectual parts, an erudite man growing up in a circle of distinguished scholars and political activists, and yet here is this eminent man who sees good in all conceivable positions, even the readers, whoever he may be. Add to this another unusual note. Mill's felicitous style. For in the history of thought, the style very much reflects the quality of mind. Clear-headed thinkers are usually lucid writers, and confused and inchoate thinkers usually write in the same way. Ricardo's crabbed and tortured style reflected the muddled complexities of his doctrine— but Mill was unusual in possessing a graceful and lucid style that served to mask the vast muddle of his intellectual furniture. Ricardo won at least brief popularity for his very obscurity, though he had the invaluable aid in spreading his doctrine of such clear writers as James Mill and John McCullough. But John Mill won fame and influence partly through the grace of his writing. If he had known the full extent of his son's defection of character and intellect, the elder Mill would surely have despaired. But he never really found out, for John learned early to dissemble, playing a double game throughout his twenties while his father was still alive. Thus he was perfectly capable of publishing an article praising his father's philosophical favorite, Jeremy Bentham, while at the same time writing an anonymous article elsewhere highly critical of Bentham. Mill's intellectual duplicity proved a sharp contrast to his father's candor. Oddly enough, however, and weighing the totality of John's career, James might in a sense have been truly pleased. For through all the mush, through all the flabby and soggy moderation that marked the adult John Mill and still attracts moderate liberals of every generation, in the last analysis filiopietism triumphed. When push at long last came to shove in the mind of John Stuart Mill, he came down, albeit, of course, moderately, on the side of his father's two idols, Bentham and Ricardo. In philosophy he abandoned hardcore cadre Benthamism for softcore moderate Benthamite utilitarianism and in economics he not only was basically and proclaimedly a Ricardian, he also gladdened his father's ghost by re-establishing Ricardianism on the throne of British economics, a feat he accomplished through the enormous popularity and dominance of his Principles of Political Economy, 1848. 
So even though John Stewart substituted moderate for full-fledged democracy, and still more disturbingly moderate statism and socialism for his father's laissez-faire, James Mill might have been gladdened by his son's ability to reimpose Ricardianism upon the world of economics. Indeed, the great advances of the anti-Ricardians of the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s were truly forgotten in Mill's re-establishment of the cost and, indeed, the labor theory of value, the Ricardian rent theory, Malthusian wage and population theory, and the remainder of the Ricardian apparatus. For not the first or last time in the history of economic and social thought, error displaced truth from the post of dominance in the intellectual world. In placing Ricardo back upon the throne of economics, John Stuart was fulfilling perhaps the most cherished, although one of the most fallacious, of his father's goals and principles. It should be realized that John Stuart's life in the shadow of his father was not only psychological or organizational. At the age of sixteen, John entered his father's office in the East India Company and assisted him for many years, succeeding to his father's high position on James' death in 1836. Mill, indeed, worked full-time at the East India Company until the liquidation of that company in 1858 bestowed upon Mill a handsome pension for the remaining fifteen years of his life. 2. Mill's Strategy and the Success of the Principles the proximate reason for the enormous success and influence of the principles was the remarkable best-selling triumph of Mill's first book, A System of Logic, 1843, which caught on with intellectuals and general readers of the age in a way that no tome on logic and epistemology has done before or since. Mill's principles was shrewdly designed as a comprehensive, massive, two-volume treatise in the Wealth of Nations mold, accessible to economists and laymen alike. It went through no less than seven editions in Mill's lifetime, as well as a cheap people's edition and an abridged version for the American market. The principles continued to serve as the standard British text in economics through the early 20th century. In a fascinating article, Professor DeMarchi contends that much of the seeming confusion, muddle, and moderation permeating Mill's principles was a deliberate strategy designed to soften up and conciliate the numerous enemies of Ricardianism, and thereby to win their support for a covert re-establishment of Ricardian dominance. To put it far more bluntly than does Professor DeMarchi, Mill engaged in a strategy of duplicity to confuse the enemy, and to win their support for at least the essentials of the true Ricardian doctrine. If DeMarchi is correct, there is far more Machiavelli in Mill's dithering openness to all points of view than has been supposed. 
DeMarchi notes that Mill had consciously adopted since 1829 what Mill called the strategy of practical eclecticism, which amounts to lulling and disarming the opposition, and, by seeming conciliation, to manipulate them into believing that they had spontaneously arrived at what Mill held to be the truth. In short, a strategy of deception and duplicity. It is impossible to estimate how much of John Stuart Mill's inveterate and eternal contradictions, qualifications, and alterations were due to honest muddle-headedness, and how much to devious and evasive intellectual broken-field running. Did Mill himself always know? At any rate, the tactic seems to have worked, as enemies from all sides of economic theory in general, and of Ricardianism in particular, were charmed by Mill's middle-of-the-road benevolence to all and sundry. They might not have been converted to hard or even soft-core Ricardianism, but they were virtually all impressed by Mill's conceding one point after another to themselves or others. All, of course, except Marx, who, as a preeminent cadre type, poured out a proper vial of scorn upon Mill's shallow syncretism and attempt to reconcile the irreconcilable. One by one, Tories, Romantics, Socialists, and Practical Men warmed up to Mill himself and to his alleged achievements. Thus we have seen how Mill introduced into economics and managed to make dominant the unfortunate hypothetical methodology of positivism, as contrasted to the praxeological system of deduction from true and complete axioms advocated and employed by Say and Senior. Ricardo had expressed no methodological views, although his method in practice was deduction from a few unreal and deeply flawed axioms. In the course of pursuing this method, Mill introduced the disastrous and fallacious hypothesis of the economic man, which left economics deservedly open to ridicule as false to the nature of man, but Mill's substitution of hypothetical, of at least professedly tentative and humble positivism, charmed the enemies of deductive praxeology. For example, there had grown up at Cambridge University a group of militant Baconian inductivists, men who angrily rejected as unscientific any sort of abstract theory in the social sciences— these belligerent anti-theorists, who held that proper theory can only be a patient enumeration and collection of countless empirical facts, were the ancestors of American institutionalism and of the German historical school. The Cambridge group of four, who were originally friends as undergraduates, was headed by William Hewell, 1794-1866, who became a fellow and then master of Trinity College, an eminent mathematician, a professor of mineralogy, and then of moral philosophy at Trinity, and twice vice-chancellor of the university. Another powerful figure in this group was Richard Jones, 1790-1855, who succeeded Nassau Sr. as Professor of Political Economy at King's College, London, 
and then succeeded Malthus as professor of political economy and history at Haleybury. Author of a three-volume History of the Inductive Sciences, 1837, and The Philosophy of the Inductive Sciences, 1840, Hewell had gushed over Bacon as the supreme legislator of the modern republic of science and the Hercules and hero of the revolution in scientific method. In the end, however, Hewell was forced to admit that the inductivist method in economics did not seem able to go beyond destructive criticism to the constructing of any sort of body of economic law. Perhaps that is why Hewell, at least, ended by toying with mathematical Ricardian models, flirting with the kind of abstract economics he had long professed to despise. William Hewell was not converted from inductivism to positivism by Mill, but he was moved to express approval of Mill's principles as a whole. Others whom Mill charmed were Tory writers long hostile to political economy and to its free trade conclusions. Thus Blackwood's magazine gave the principles a generally favorable review for its author's perpetual, earnest, never-forgotten interest in the great questions at present mooted with respect to the social condition of man. And G. F. Young, in the course of a virulent protectionist attack on economics in the Tory Quarterly Review, hailed Mill as one of the most philosophical and candid of the modern school of economists, specifically for Mill's positivist admission that political economy was grounded not on correct, but only on partially true assumptions. Mill's most conspicuous defection from classical political economy in general, and from Ricardianism in particular, was his numerous concessions to socialism and his apostasy from laissez-faire. In general, the British classical economists had not exactly been consistent laissez-faire stalwarts, in contrast to J.B. Say and his school in France, including such people as Charles Comte, Charles de Noyer, Frédéric Bastiat, Gustave de Molinari, and their numerous followers. In Britain, consistent laissez-faire advocates were to be found rather among writers, intellectuals, and businessmen in Manchester, such as Richard Cobden, John Bright, and the recently successful Anti-Corn Law League. They were also to be found in The Economist, edited by James Wilson, particularly in its editorial staff writers, Thomas Hodgskin, 1787-1869, and young Herbert Spencer, 1820-1903. But while the classical economists were not hardcore free market men, they at least tended strongly in that direction. If not a principle, laissez-faire was for them at least a guide or tendency to which they could at least partially orient their position. But Mill sharply broke with all that. Steeped in a high moral tone at all times, Mill originated the unfortunate intellectual tradition of conceding that socialism, and indeed communism, was the ideal social system, and then drawing back by lamenting that it probably could not be attained in this cruel, practical world.
Pro-capitalists who begin by conceding the moral ground to their opponents are bound to lose the long-run war, if not the short-run battle, to socialism. Small wonder, then, that various wings of socialists hailed Mill's principles. The Owenite socialists, then the leading socialist group in Great Britain, were highly approving. In addition to words of commendation from Robert Owen, 1771-1858, himself, the Owenite writer and lecturer George Jacob Holyoke, 1817-1906, was particularly enchanted. The editor of The Reasoner, Holyoke hailed Mill's principles with enthusiasm. It had been held, he proclaimed, that the people were made for political economy— but now, with Mill's principles, at length, political economy is being made for the people. Holyoke also praised Mill for having spoken of communism with more geniality than any political economist had done before, and he gave his working-class readers the benefit of much of that high-priced tome by printing lengthy extracts in The Reasoner. No doubt Holyoke was also happy with Mill's proclaimed ideal of a commonwealth of cooperatives, Holyoke being one of the founders and long-term agitators for the cooperative movement in Britain. Also delighted with the principles was the socialist Thornton Hunt, 1810-1873, editor of the weekly Leader, the main socialist paper in England after 1850. Hunt, a believer in communal ownership and control, particularly welcomed Mill's claim that communism was the ideal state. But even more important a boost to statism and socialism in Mill's principles was his most unricardian proclamation that while the processes of production were subject to the iron laws of political economy— Distribution, on the other hand, was up for grabs, subject to human will and man-made arrangements. Ricardo, whose system rested on allegedly iron laws of distribution, must have turned over rapidly in his grave at that remark. This separation between production and distribution was wholly artificial and totally invalid since people earn incomes on the market precisely for participating in production, and the two are intimately intertwined. But in making this distinction, Mill gave birth to the calamitous and still prevalent notion that distribution can be changed virtually at will, through tax, subsidy, or other statist schemes, while the market would still continue to function and produce undisturbed. It is certainly not surprising that Mill's moral obeisances to cooperatives and communism met warm applause at the hands of the newly burgeoning Christian socialist movement. Of the troika of young Anglicans who led the Christian socialists, the Reverend Charles Kingsley, 1819-1875, hailed the principles, as did another of the leaders, the attorney John Malcolm Ludlow, in Fraser's magazine. Fraser's had been purchased in 1847 by John William Parker, who became its de facto editor. Parker was a friend of Kingsley and a Christian socialist sympathizer. 
The fact that he also happened to be the publisher of Mill's Principles scarcely made the peon of Fraser's reviewer any less lavish. 3. The Theory of Value and Distribution Mill's handling of the theory of value was characteristic of the man, a hard core of filiopietism wrapped in layers of enigma and muddle. And so the labor theory, cost of production theory of value was restored to a dominant place in classical economics, but hedged about with Mill's usual string of evasive and self-protective qualifications. Thus Mill accepted Bailey's demolition of Ricardo's search for an impossible, invariable measure of value. But, on the other hand, Mill displayed his contempt for even the idea that consumption and utility could have any influence upon value by removing consumption from its traditional niche as a basic part of the economics text. Instead, Mill's principles was divided into production, distribution, exchange, and government, with nary a mention of consumption. Yet, despite Mill's inconsistency and muddle, his stance of humility suddenly dissolved into his astonishingly arrogant claim that his pronouncements would be the last word for all time on the theory of value. In a famous faux pas, Mill proclaimed that, happily, there is nothing in the laws of value which remains for the present or any future writer to clear up. The theory of the subject is complete. Now, it is true that Mill had the bad luck to be writing these words only two decades before the marginalist revolution completely overturned value theory. But even so, it was inexcusable for anyone as knowledgeable as Mill was supposed to be in scientific method and the history of science to be caught writing this sort of statement. And Schumpeter tells us that the same sort of hubris had marked Mill's system of logic. It is an odd paradox indeed to see a thinker habitually changing course and qualifying every thought and deed, and yet insisting that his is the last conceivable word on any particular subject. Upholding and restoring the dominance of Ricardo's theory of profit, Mill insisted on returning to the Ricardian dictum that profits are dependent on and inversely proportionate to wages. Cleverly paying obeisance to his friend Nassau Sr.'s concept of abstinence and agreeing with Sr. that profits, interest, were the remuneration of abstinence, Mill managed to weaken the concept and to return somehow to insisting on labor as the sole cause of profits. On wages, too, Mill returned squarely to Malthus, differing only by holding out the hope of ameliorating the alleged problem of population growth by enthusiastic and determined use of birth control. The change over the half-century was the difference between the stern preacher and the progressive feminist. Alexander Gray's comment on Mill's passion against what he considered to be excessive births is both witty and apposite. 
In writing on the population question, his, Mill's voice, quivers with a righteous indignation, which leads him to a violence of language nowhere to be found in Malthus. Excessive procreation is for Mill on the same level as drunkenness or any other physical excess, and those who are guilty should be discountenanced and despised accordingly. One of John Stuart Mill's most famous moves in economic theory was his typically dramatic, emotional, and yet carefully hedged recantation of the wages fund doctrine. In company with other classical economists, having explained the supply of labor by the quantity of population, Mill then went on to explain the demand for labor, rather sensibly, as the sum of gross savings or circulating capital available for paying workers until the product was produced and sold. This available amount he called the wages fund. This concept was used, again, quite intelligently, to demonstrate that should labor unions be able to raise wages for one part of the labor force, this rise could only be at the expense of lowering wages somewhere else. The wages fund analysis of the demand for labor was, in one important sense, a retreat from Say and others who emphasized that the demand for and prices of factors of production are determined by their productivity in producing consumer goods desired and demanded by the public. For Mill, this retreat was part and parcel of his orchestrated shift back to Ricardo, on the other hand, the wages fund doctrine was correct as far as it went. At any given time, there is a certain amount of gross savings to be invested in paying factors of production. Therefore, paying more in one place because of pressure by suppliers of labor will necessarily reduce demand and payment elsewhere. On the other hand, the wages fund is clearly only a first approximation, for the fund of circulating capital at any given time is not only used to pay wages, but also to pay rent to landlords, and interest, profit, to capitalists. In 1869, Mill's friend and fellow high official at the East India Company, William Thomas Thornton, 1813-1880, wrote a book entitled On Labor, critical of Mill's Wages Fund Doctrine. Partly this came as a needed attempt to bring consumer demand, and notably expected consumer demand, back into the analysis. But Thornton's main thrust was that the capital fund was not only a fund for wages, but also a fund out of which to pay profits to capitalists, and, he might have added, rents on land. Mill's review of Thornton's book in the fortnightly review was overly dramatic enough to be seized upon as a recantation, and as an indication that unions could indeed raise the average level of wages for workers. Actually, Mill, as Schumpeter points out, was simply explaining the doctrine more carefully, and pointing out what should have been obvious— 
that, yes, wages could conceivably increase at the expense of driving profits to zero, but that, in the not-too-long run, the result would be failure to maintain as well as to expand capital, and hence the impoverishment of everyone, not least of all the working class. There is nothing here contradictory to the wages fund doctrine. It should be added that Colonel Robert Torrens had made the very same concession on the wages fund thirty-five years before, and had received none of the attention and noise. The essence of the misnamed wages fund theory was simply a fundamental part of the solidly grounded and established Turgot-Smith theory of capital— how little real significance Mill attached to his recantation is demonstrated by his failure to alter any of his discussion of the wages fund in the seventh and last edition of the Principles published during his lifetime, 1871, explaining in his new preface that the discussion had not ripened sufficiently to make such a change. As Professor Hutt has pointed out in his classic work, the prevalent idea that modifying the wages fund theory led straight to economists justifying unionism and collective bargaining was a canard and a red herring created for the occasion by Mill. Adam Smith and McCullough had justified collective bargaining on the vague notion of labor's alleged disadvantage in bargaining in the labor market. Indeed, Mill himself in the principles, while continuing to hold his original wages fund view, offered the same justification— plus the Ricardian theme that without such collective bargaining, wages would be driven down to subsistence level, the iron law of wages once more. And indeed, Henry Fawcett, 1833-1884, professor of political economy at Cambridge and a devoted million, continued to cling to the original version of the wages fund theory as well as labor's disadvantage argument for trade unions. On the other hand, for example, Mountefort Longfield, a proto-marginal productivity theorist, took the hard line in opposing unions as never being able to effect a general wage increase. Mill's persistent adherence to the Turgot-Smith-Ricardo theory of savings and capital is demonstrated by one of his famous fundamental propositions on capital, that the demand for commodities is not the demand for labor. Mill was correct on the fundamental nature of this proposition, on the failure of most economists to grasp it, and in hailing Ricardo and Say as two of the economists to stress it particularly. It is no wonder that modern economists, steeped in the fallacies of Keynes, find the proposition puzzling. What it means is that at least the proximate demand for labor is supplied by savings, even though the ultimate demand may be supplied by consumers. More than that, Mill here had hold of the basic Turgot discovery of the time structure of capital, the fact that savings pays for the factors ahead of production and sale, and that the consumers are last down the line of production. 
Furthermore, savings builds up a capital structure and increases funds paid to wages and other factors, which cannot get paid unless savings are first taken out of income previously supplied to producers by consumers. This theory of capital provided the building block for the developed Austrian theory of the time structure of capital. It is, then, not surprising that Mill also supported Say's law, to which his father had contributed so much. In monetary theory, Mill stood squarely in the Ricardian tradition in fervent opposition to irredeemable paper money. However, he deserted that tradition, as we have seen, in favor of the banking school. And while from his banking school mentor, James Wilson, Mill learned of the malinvestments, especially in fixed capital, that occur in business cycle booms, he also adopted the disastrous Wilsonian belief that money plays a passive and unimportant role in these cyclical booms and busts. In this belief, significantly, he harked back to his father's only difference from Ricardo. Indeed, he also adopted a pre-Schumpeterian view that these over-investment booms, followed by corrective recessions, were necessary to economic growth. 4. The Shift to Imperialism Classical liberalism, whether natural rights or utilitarian, whether English, French, or German, was devoted to a foreign policy of peace. Its firm opposition to war and imperialism was the libertarian minimal government corollary in foreign affairs to its minimal government stance at home. Opposition to big government, high taxes, and interventionism abroad was the corollary of the same opposition at home. Even when the classical liberals were not totally consistent exponents of laissez-faire in either domestic or foreign affairs, their basic thrust was in that direction. Peace and free trade were twin policies, reaching the acme of consistency on both counts in the policy positions and agitation of Richard Cobden, John Bright, the Manchester School, and the Anti-Corn Law League. Among the British classical liberals, non-intervention and anti-imperialism were the dominant tradition. Colonialism and special privileges to investment abroad were properly seen as part of the monopoly privileges and controls imposed by mercantilism, none of which confers advantage, in fact imposes considerable disadvantage on the home population. Jeremy Bentham, James Mill, and the others were generally solidly anti-imperialist, and advocated that Britain give up its colonies and grant them independence. Bentham originally included India in this emancipation, but was talked out of it by James Mill, a high official in the governing organization of India, the British East India Company. The James Mill exception for India was based on a utilitarian white man's burden argument that, even though England was losing economically from governing India, it must continue doing so for the sake of the Indians, who were too savage to be able to govern themselves.
In that way, James Mill was able to cast an altruist utilitarian patina over England's often bloody repression in India, and over his own role in that oppression. Mill also was able to propound his own Ricardian assault on the landlord class. Following the Ricardian doctrine that landlords were useless and non-productive, Mill advocated special taxes on ground rent. Being a high official in India, he believed that he was more likely to influence the tax and legal system there. Hence, he advocated British nationalization of Indian land, with the state then renting out the land to Indian peasants as long-term tenants. Thus, in a pre-George Georgism, the state would absorb all revenues from land rent. In his turn, John Stuart Mill was happy to advocate the same scheme. Bentham and James Mill also made an exception to their overall anti-imperialism for Ireland, here not indulging in attacks on savagery, but simply asserting that freeing Ireland would be politically impossible. A strange position to take by two theorists usually fearless in advocating unpopular policies. We may speculate, however, an alternative explanation. The English liberal and radical masses throughout the late 18th and 19th centuries were generally laissez-faire oriented, until the Tories were able to stir up the rabid anti-Catholicism of these dissenter and non-conformist Protestant evangelicals, and thereby split the liberal ranks. Anti-Catholicism long served as the scourge of British liberalism. But John Stuart Mill, in this crucial area not very filio-pietistic, was able to help change the face of nineteenth-century British liberalism. He was able to take a liberal doctrine generally anti-war and anti-imperialist, though with a few glaring exceptions, and transform it into an apologia for imperialism and foreign conquest. Rather than abandon the empire, as his father and other liberals had urged, John Stuart Mill called for its expansion. Indeed, Mill became the leading force in destroying the philosophic radical party in Parliament in 1838 by splitting their ranks and supporting the violent suppression of the Canadian rebellion of that year. The younger Mill continued the altruistic argument of his father on India and expanded it to all other peoples of the Third World. They were all barbarous and needed to be subject to a benevolent despotism. He also expanded this hard line to Ireland, lamenting that Ireland could not be entirely crushed under heel because it was legally a part of the United Kingdom. I myself have always been for a good stout despotism for governing Ireland alike India, Mill proclaimed. Himself a high official of the East India Company, John Stuart Mill argued that rule over barbarous colonies like India was best entrusted to autonomous, public-private bodies of experts, such as the East India Company, rather than to the vagaries of Parliament and the English public. 
After the dissolution of the company in 1854, however, Mill saw no problem in Parliament appointing commissions of experts, such as himself, and delegating rule over India to them. While John Mill grudgingly agreed that the advanced white settler colonies had to be allowed their independence, he hoped that they would continue to be governed by Great Britain. For, in contrast to his father and other liberals, Mill believed that colonies conferred positive economic advantages on the home country. For a while, Bentham had succumbed to worries about surplus capital at home, to be relieved by imperial expansion. But James Mill had succeeded in persuading Bentham otherwise. As an adherent and virtual co-founder of Say's Law, the elder Mill had realized that Say's Law meant that there would be no gluts from overproduction or excess capital. Therefore, no colonial or imperial safety valve was necessary. John Stuart Mill, however, was converted to the idea of surplus capital by his old friend Edward Gibbon Wakefield, 1796 to 1862, son of Edward Wakefield, a philosophical radical friend of Bentham and James Mill. Young Wakefield began the heretical pro-imperialist movement with his Letter from Sydney, 1829, written not from Australia but from an English prison where he had been convicted for the fraudulent kidnapping of a young heiress. With this tract, Wakefield launched the Colonial Reformer Movement, and John Mill proudly proclaimed himself Wakefield's first convert. Mill was much too committed to Say's law to buy the idea of surplus production, desperately needing foreign markets, but he was committed enough to the Ricardian fears of a falling rate of profit to advocate postponing this day by subsidizing the investment of British capital abroad. The worry about surplus capital that could not be invested at home should have been put to rest if Mill had been truly committed to Say's law. As for the falling rate of profit, Mill couldn't transcend the Ricardian framework to realize, first, that there is nothing inevitable about a falling rate of profit, that is, interest, since wages do not inevitably press upon profits and second, to the extent that profit rates fall over time, it is due to falling time preference rates, and then it is scarcely a tragedy, nor does it cause a depression or stagnation, since this interest or profit rate only reflects the desires and values of the participants in the market. And also, since interest rates are not determined by, nor are they inverse to, the stock of capital, there is no guarantee that these rates will be higher abroad than in home countries, such as England. Thus, by being converted to Wakefield's fallacy of the inevitable accumulation of surplus capital in advanced capitalist countries, John Stuart Mill lent his great prestige to the notion that capitalism economically requires empire in order to invest, to get rid of, allegedly surplus savings or capital. In short, Mill was one of the ultimate founders of the Leninist theory of imperialism. 5. 
The Millions If Mill was able to disarm much of the opposition from the original enemies of Ricardian economics, he was able to establish the dominance of his own muddled version by converting the youth, always the first group to adopt an important new trend or system of thought for good or ill. At Cambridge, the powerful secret Society of Apostles immediately took up the principles for extensive study and discussion. The Apostles of 1848 included James Fitzjames Stephen, 1829-1894, later an eminent journalist and attorney, E. H. Stanley, later Lord Darby, 1826 to 1893, a conservative who would twice become foreign secretary, and Vernon Harcourt, 1827 to 1904, later a liberal member of parliament and Hewell Professor of International Law at Cambridge. A little later, in the early 1850s, there came to Cambridge such young millions as Stephen's brother Leslie, 1832-1904, who would later teach at Cambridge and then retire to write works of history and philosophy, including his three-volume masterwork, The English Utilitarians, 1900. This million group also included Henry Fawcett, who, although blinded in a hunting accident in his mid-twenties, went on to become professor of political economy at Cambridge and to write his Manual of Political Economy, 1856, as a way of making Mill's principles easier for students and laymen. Fawcett's manual was used as a textbook in British and American colleges for many years and went through six editions. Fawcett later became a member of Parliament and Postmaster General. While Mill did not have quite the impact on Oxford as he did on Cambridge, we are assured that by the early 1850s, Mill was already a classic, both as a logician and as a political economist. Two young economists who hailed the principles in book reviews became strongly influenced by Mill. One was insurance executive William Newmarch, 1820-1882, who collaborated in the last volume of Thomas Took's History of Prices, and the other was Walter Badgett, 1826-1877, who would become an extremely influential journalist and financial economist. Badgett was particularly happy to see Mill weaken the laissez-faire precepts of political economy by making his mischievous distinction between production and distribution. It is particularly unfortunate that this cynical semi-statist, an attorney who joined the business of his banker father, became the son-in-law of James Wilson and succeeded Wilson as editor of The Economist shortly before he died in 1860. This change meant a fateful shift from a militant laissez-faire policy to a statist advocacy of, among other things, the aggrandizement of the Bank of England over the monetary system. Along with the abandonment of laissez-faire by Badgett came an increasing abandonment on his part of even million economic theory and a shift toward a nihilistic and historicist institutionalism.
Unfortunately, millionism came to hold sway not only over Cambridge and Oxford, but even over Trinity College, Dublin. For almost two decades, the Wheatley chair at Trinity had been the great stronghold of utility theory as against Ricardianism. But first, succeeding William N. Hancock in the five-year Whateley chair in 1851 was Richard Hussey Walsh, 1825 to 1862, who returned to a cost-of-production theory of value while pursuing his interest in monetary problems. Walsh had graduated from Trinity in 1846, and his lectures were published as An Elementary Treatise on Metallic Currency, 1853. Being a Roman Catholic, Walsh was legally barred from a permanent academic career at home, and so, after his term as Whateley professor was over, he went to the colony of Mauritius as an administrative and census official. The important successor to Walsh was John Elliot Cairns, 1824-1875, who became by far the most important million in academia. Born in Ireland, Cairns studied at Trinity College and after graduation was admitted to the bar. He acceded to the Whateley chair in 1856, and the following year Cairns won his spurs by publishing his most important work in economics, The Character and Logical Method of Political Economy. So far he followed the pattern of Whateley chairholders, but then he broke the mold by being the first of the Whateley professors to follow with a lifelong career in university teaching. In 1859, Cairns was appointed Professor of Political Economy and Jurisprudence at Queen's College, Galway. Seven years later, he moved to University College, London, until forced to resign by ill health in 1872. J. E. Cairns has been known as the last of the classical economists. After Mill's death, he assumed the mantle of outstanding British economist in the minds of the public, and in 1874 he lashed out in incomprehension at the revolutionary marginal utility theory of William Stanley Jevons, in Cairns' Some Leading Principles of Political Economy. Cairns was a determined cost-of-production theorist, granting his only significant exception in his well-known theory of non-competing groups. This theory recognized that where factors of production, in particular labor, did not immediately and fully compete with each other, the prices of the factors are determined by demand rather than by cost. Unfortunately, Cairns lifted the theory from Longfield's Lectures on Political Economy without giving him credit. We know that this was not a case of ignorance of a distinguished predecessor, since Cairns assigned Longfield's work in his own classes. Cairns' work of most lasting value, his character and logical method, while including some million positivism, was essentially a methodological work in the great Nassau senior praxeological tradition. Thus Cairns, after agreeing with Mill that there can be no controlled experiments in the social sciences, adds the important point that the social sciences nevertheless have a crucial advantage over the physical sciences. 
for in the latter mankind have no direct knowledge of the ultimate physical principles. The laws of physics are not themselves evident to our consciousness, nor are they directly apparent. Their truth rests on the fact that they account for natural phenomena. But, in contrast, Cairns goes on, the economist starts with a knowledge of ultimate causes. How? Because the economist realizes that the ultimate principles governing economic phenomena are certain mental feelings and certain animal propensities in human beings, and the physical conditions under which production takes place. To arrive at these premises of economics, no elaborate process of induction is needed. For all we need to do is to turn our attention to the subject, and we obtain direct knowledge of these causes in our consciousness of what passes in our own minds, and in the information which our senses convey to us of external facts. Such broad and basic knowledge of motives for action includes the desire for wealth, and everyone knows that, according to his lights, he will proceed toward his end in the shortest way open to him. Cairns also demonstrates that the economist uses mental experiments as replacements for laboratory experiments of the physical scientist. He shows, too, that deduced economic laws are tendency, or if-then, laws, and furthermore that they are necessarily qualitative and not quantitative, and therefore cannot admit of mathematical or statistical expression. Thus the extent of a rise in price due to a drop in supply cannot be determined, since subjective values and preferences cannot be precisely measured. In his preface to the second edition of The Character, written two decades later in 1875, Cairns warns against the growing use of the mathematical method of economics— in this case, leveling a just criticism at writers like Jevons. For mathematics, in contrast to its use in the physical sciences, cannot yield new truths in economics. And further, unless it can be shown either that mental feelings admit of being expressed in precise, quantitative forms, or, on the other hand, that economic phenomena do not depend upon mental feelings, I am unable to see how this conclusion can be avoided. In the course of his methodological inquiries and in his battles against Jevons, John Cairns moved closer to subjective value theory and further from Mill than perhaps he realized. Six, Cairns and the Gold Discoveries Cairns' main contribution to positive economic analysis has been neglected by recent historians, though it was once considered a particularly admirable illustration of economic thought and inquiry. The sudden gold discoveries in California in the late 1840s, followed rapidly by Australia in 1851, and the consequent enormous increase in gold production, raised important questions on their economic consequences in Britain, as well as whether or not the gold pound would depreciate in terms of commodities.
Politically, gold-standard anti-inflationists tried to minimize the impact of this increased supply on prices, while the inflationists chortled that at least prices would rise greatly. Among economists, men such as Mill and Torrens, previously in the forefront of currency and banking school struggles, displayed remarkably little interest in the entire process. Most of the interested economists took a primitive, proto-Keynesian position that the new gold money would increase capital and employment, and therefore would have little effect on prices. It was as if monetary theory had never been discovered. Perhaps the most banal and absurd pian to the new gold discoveries was emitted by William Newmarch, the disciple of Thomas Took. In an address delivered to the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1853, Newmarch exulted that in Australia the effect of the new gold has been to add the stimulus of a very low rate of interest and of an abundance of capital to the other great and manifold causes of rapid development. Newmarch concluded that generally we are justified in describing the effects of the new gold as almost wholly beneficial. It has led to the development of new branches of enterprise, to new discoveries. In our own country it has already elevated the condition of the working and poorer classes. It has quickened and extended trade, and exerted an influence which thus far is beneficial wherever it has been felt. Newmarch's inflationist, that is, monetary inflationist, twaddle, was echoed in the Tory Blackwoods magazine by Sir Archibald Allison, 1792-1867, a leading Scottish attorney, protectionist, and arch-inflationist. Even Professor Henry Fawcett continued the same line, managing to use the wages fund theory for inflationist conclusions. Blithely assuming that the new gold constitutes new capital, Fawcett concluded that therefore the wages fund will increase, raising wages. In fact, it was Fawcett's paper on this question in 1859, his biographer Leslie Stephen tells us, that led to the discovery of Fawcett. From his own perspective, Marx agreed with Fawcett's article, lamenting that the new gold discoveries in California and Australia had lengthened the viability of capitalism and delayed its revolutionary crisis. Also excited about Fawcett's discovery was the now badget-run Economist, which extravagantly hailed the paper as one of those very rare occasions when an absolutely new truth can be propounded to such a body. On the other hand, there was still a core of economists pointing out the home truths of the quantity theory, namely that the effect of the new gold discoveries would be a rise in prices roughly proportionate to the increase in gold production, accompanied by unfortunate distribution effects, as well as a waste of resources in mining an increased amount of gold. The most important voice warning of the price inflationary consequences of the gold discoveries was the prominent French economist and free trader Michel Chevalier, 1806 to 1879. Chevalier raised his voice on the issue throughout the 1850s. 
his book, On the Probable Fall and the Value of Gold, being translated by Richard Cobden and published in 1859. The veteran and devoted Ricardian essayist and poet Thomas de Quincey, 1785-1859, denounced California and the gold-digging mania in 1852, charging that every ounce of Australian gold should locally be so much more than is wanted. Bonamy Price, a banking school theorist who had succeeded senior to the chair of political economy at Oxford, denounced the great city apostasy on gold in 1863, noting that the dominant financial opinion hailing the gold discoveries constituted an aberrant reversion to mercantilist inflationist fallacy. The most important response to the gold discoveries was that of John Cairns, whose interest in the problem was piqued in 1856 by the ignorant and preposterous assertions by William Newmarch and other inflationists. In a series of articles published between 1857 and 1863, Cairns set forth the quantity analysis, but he also brilliantly went beyond it to resurrect the scholastic Cantillon process analysis, realizing that the distribution effects of the monetary change process were important parts of the picture that should not be swept under the rug. Cairns pointed out that the country with new gold mines will be the first to feel their bad effects, the price increases and the waste of resources, after which, as the new gold flows abroad in return for goods, these bad effects become gradually exported to the other countries of the world. In contrast to the gushing of the inflationists, Cairns showed that the first country to suffer waste of resources from the new gold was Australia, where previously flourishing agriculture was virtually ruined. The British public and press, however, lost interest in the entire issue by the end of the 1850s. The reason was that prices after the financial panic of 1857 fell back to being only a little bit higher than ten years earlier. Cairns pointed out quite correctly, however, that this slight rise in prices masked what amounted to a considerable depreciation of the gold pound, perhaps twenty or twenty-five percent, for he noted that, considering the propitiousness of the seasons, the action of free trade, the absence of war, the contraction of credit after the crisis of 1857, and the general tendencies to a reduction of cost proceeding from the progress of knowledge, were there no other causes in operation, there would have been a very considerable fall of prices at the present time, as compared with, say, eight or ten years ago. In short, without the gold inflation there would have been a substantial fall in prices, and the slight rise reflected instead a substantial inflationary depreciation of the gold pound. Profound and correct indeed, but far too theoretical a consideration for the British public, who were content to let the problem go, so long as the effects of depreciation were not starkly visible. 7. The Million Supremacy 
Thus, by the intellectual authority derived from decades of personal and family prominence, and by his work on logic, by force of personality, and by clever stratagems employed in his book, John Stuart Mill was able to make his Principles of Political Economy the dominant force in British economics from the time of initial publication in 1848. For three decades, Mill and his principles bestrode British economics like a colossus, and, as we shall see in a later volume, England managed to repulse the marginalist Javonian revolution in the 1870s, at least in its original undiluted form. Mill had managed to fasten upon Great Britain a watered-down labor, or at least cost-of-production, theory of value— a muddled positivist method that gave hostage to inductivist or even organicist critics, a devotion to the gold standard offset by an inflationist banking school theory of crises and cycles and of gold production, and an adherence to the status quo of inflationist Bank of England control and manipulation of the British monetary system. In fact, in every area, John Stuart Mill reimposed the system of Ricardo and his father, but in a far more muddled and diluted manner. In public policy, too, the old Ricardian devotion to laissez-faire was replaced by a vague free-market presumption to which Mill and his followers were always willing to make extensive exceptions. So free were they of the earlier classical and Ricardian dogmatism. Intellectually, however wrong-headed most of the Ricardianism had been, its positions were at least consistent and clear, even if the reasoning supporting those conclusions was generally tangled and incoherent. But the new million neo-Ricardianism had no such virtues— Instead, this system was essentially an elusive and self-contradictory jumble. There were no clear-cut positions, only vague tendencies, hedged around by backsliding and qualifications. But British economics was now slowly becoming more centered in academics rather than in businessmen, bankers, or eccentric army officers and academics and their constituencies all too often confuse contradictory wavering with complexity, wisdom, and judiciousness of mind. Chapter 9. Roots of Marxism. Messianic Communism. 1. Early Communism. For centuries, the alleged ideal of communism had come to the world as a messianic and millennial creed. Various seers, notably Joachim of Fior, had prophesied the final state of mankind as one of perfect harmony and equality, one where all things are owned in common, where there is no necessity for work or need for the division of labor. In the case of Joachim, of course, problems of production and property, indeed of scarcity in general, were solved by man no longer possessing a physical body. As pure spirits, men as equal and harmonious psychic entities spending all their time chanting praise to God, might make a certain amount of sense. 
but the communist idea applied to a physical mankind still needing to produce and consume is a very different matter. In any case, the communist ideal continued to be put forward as a religious millennial doctrine. We have seen in Volume 1 its enormous influence on the Anabaptist wing of the Reformation in the 16th century. Millennial and communist dreams also inspired various fringe Protestant sects during the English Civil War of the mid-17th century, particularly the Diggers, the Ranters, and the Fifth Monarchy Men. The most important forerunner of Marxian communism among these Civil War Protestant sectarians was Gerard Winstanley, 1609-1660, the founder of the Digger Movement and a man much admired by Marxist historians. Winstanley's father was a textile merchant, and young Gerard became an apprentice in the cloth trade, rising up to become a cloth merchant in his own right. Winstanley's business failed, however, and he found himself downwardly mobile, an employed agricultural laborer from 1643 to 1648. As the Protestant Revolution escalated in the late 1640s, Winstanley turned to writing pamphlets espousing mystical messianism. By the end of 1648, Winstanley had expanded his Kiliastic doctrine to embrace egalitarian world communism, in which all goods are owned in common. His theological groundwork was the heretical, pantheistic view that God is within every man and woman, and is not a personal deity external to man. This pantheistic God has decreed cooperation, which for Winstanley meant compulsory communism rather than the market economy, whereas the antithetical creed of the devil glorified individual selfishness. In Winstanley's schema, God, meaning reason, created the earth, but the devil later originated selfishness and the institution of private property. Winstanley added the absurd view that England enjoyed communist property before the Norman Conquest in 1066, and that this conquest created the institution of private property. His call, then, was to return to the supposedly original communist system. In the final, most fully developed version of his system, the law of freedom in a platform, or true magistracy restored, 1652, Winstanley envisioned a largely agrarian society, in which all goods would be communally owned, and where all wage labor and all commerce or trade would be outlawed. In fact, all sale or purchase of goods would be punishable by death as treasonous to the communist system. Money would be clearly unnecessary, since there would be no trade, and presumably it would be outlawed as well. The government would establish storehouses to collect and distribute all goods, and severe penalties would be levied on idlers. By this time, Winstanley's pantheism had begun to shade into atheism, for all professional clergy would be outlawed, there would be no Sabbath observation, and ministers would be elected by the voters to give what would be essentially secular sermons, teaching everyone the virtues of the communist system. 
Education would be free and compulsory, and most of the children would be channeled into useful crafts, a foreshadowing of the progressive educational creed. Book learning, which the uneducated Winstanley felt to be far inferior to practical vocational skill, would be discouraged. Winstanley's strategic recipe for communist victory was for various groups of his followers, or diggers, to move peacefully into waste or common lands, and to set up communist societies upon them. The first digger group, led by Winstanley, moved on to wastelands near South London in April 1649, and ten digger settlements were thereby established over the next year. Only thirty diggers moved into the first commune, and only a few hundred set up communes across the country. The notion was that these egalitarian communist settlements would so inspire the masses that they would abandon wage work or private property and move on to digger settlements, thus bringing about the withering away of the market and of private property. In reality, the masses treated the digger communes with great hostility, causing their suppression in a short period of time. By the time of his magnum opus in 1652, Winstanley was vainly appealing to the dictator, Oliver Cromwell, to impose his cherished system from above. The idea of mass direct action to establish his system was rapidly abandoned in the face of reality. Another more mystical communist sect during the English Civil War was the half-crazed Ranters, the ranters were classic antinomians, that is, they believed that all human beings were automatically saved by the existence of Jesus, and that therefore all men are free to disobey all laws, and to flout all moral rules. Indeed, it was supposed to be good and desirable to commit as many sins as possible in order to demonstrate one's automatic freedom from sin and to purge oneself of false guilt about committing sins. To the pure at heart, the ranters opined, all things are pure. The ranters, like Joachim of Fior and the Anabaptists of the Reformation, proclaimed the coming age of the Holy Spirit, which moved in every man. The key difference from Orthodox Calvinism or Puritanism is that in those more Orthodox creeds, the workings of the Holy Spirit were closely tied to the Holy Word, that is, the Bible. For the ranters and other inner light groups, however, all deuces were literally wild. The ranters pursued this path, too, to pantheism. As one of their leaders declared, the essence of God was as much in the ivy leaf as in the most glorious angel. The ranters, then, combined their belief in communism with total sexual license, including the practice of communism of women and communal homosexual and heterosexual orgies. 2. Secularized Millennial Communism Mabli and Morali during the havoc and upheaval of the French Revolution, the communist creed, as well as millennial prophecies, again popped up as a glorious goal for mankind. But this time the major emphasis was a secular context. But the new secular communist prophets were faced with a grave problem. 
What will be the agency for this social change? In short, religious Kiliasts never had problems about agency, that is, how this mighty change would come about. The agent would be the hand of providence, specifically either the second advent of Jesus Christ for premillennialists, or designated prophets or vanguard groups who would establish the millennium in anticipation of Jesus' eventual return, for postmillennialists. King Bockelson and Thomas Münzer were examples of the latter. But if the Christian millennialists possessed the assurance of the hand of divine providence inevitably achieving their goal, how could secularists command the same certainty and self-confidence? It looked as if they would have to fall back on mere education and exhortation. The secularist task was made more difficult by the fact that religious millennialists looked to the end of history and the achievement of their goal by means of a bloody apocalypse. The final reign of millennial peace and harmony could only be achieved in the course of a period known as the Tribulation, the final war of good against evil, the final triumph over the Antichrist all of which meant that if the secular communists wished to emulate their Christian forebears, they would have to achieve their goal by bloody revolution, always difficult at best. It is no accident, therefore, that the heady days of the French Revolution would give rise to such revolutionary hopes and aspirations. The first secularized communists appeared in the shape of two isolated individuals in mid-18th century France. The works of these two men would later burgeon into an activist revolutionary movement amidst the hothouse atmosphere and the sudden upheavals of the French Revolution. One was the aristocrat Gabriel Bonneau de Mably, 1709-1785, the elder brother of the laissez-faire liberal philosopher Etienne Bonneau de Condillac. In contrast to his brother, the distinguished philosopher, Mably devoted himself to being a lifelong writer on a large variety of subjects, a man whose works, as Alexander Gray wittily writes, are deplorably numerous and extensive, Mably's prolix and confused writings were astoundingly popular in his day. His entire collected works, ranging from twelve to twenty-six volumes, being published in four different editions within a few years of his death. Mably's main focus was to insist that all men are perfectly equal and uniform, that all men are one and the same everywhere. He professed to discern this alleged truth in the laws of nature. Thus, in his chief work, Dut Proposé, 1786, an attack on the libertarian natural rights theory of Mercier de la Riviere, Mably presumes to interpret the voice of nature. Nature says to us, I love you equally. As in the case of most communists after him, Mably found himself confronted with one of the great problems of communism. If all property is owned in common, and each person is equal, then the incentive to work is negative, since only the common store will benefit, and not the individual worker in question. 
Mabli in particular had to confront this problem, since he also maintained that man's natural and original state was communism, and that private property arose to spoil matters precisely because of the indolence of some who wished to live at the expense of others. Mabli's proposed solutions to this grave problem were scarcely adequate. One was to urge everyone to tighten their belts to want less, to be content with Spartan austerity. His other answer was to come up with what Che Guevara and Mao Zedong would later call moral incentives to substitute for crass monetary rewards the recognition of one's merits by one's brothers, in the form of ribbons, medals, etc., Alexander Gray notes that Mabli makes use of such distinctions or birthday honors lists to stimulate everyone to work. He goes on to point out that the more distinctions are handed out as incentives, the less they will truly distinguish, and the less influence they will therefore exert. Furthermore, Mabli does not say how or by whom his distinctions are to be conferred. Gray adds that in a communist society in reality, many people who don't receive honors may and probably will be disgruntled and resentful at the supposed injustice involved. Yet their zeal doesn't flag. Thus, in his two proffered solutions, Gabriel de Mably was resting his hope on a miraculous transformation of human nature— what the Marxists would later see as the advent of the new socialist man, willing to bend his desires and his incentives to the requirements of, and baubles conferred by, the collective. But for all his devotion to communism, Mabli was at bottom a realist, and so he held out no hope for its triumph. On the contrary, man is so steeped in the sin of selfishness and private property that only the palliatives of coerced redistribution and prohibitions of trade are even possible. It is no wonder that Mabli was not equipped to inspire and stimulate the birth and growth of a revolutionary communist movement. If Gabriel de Mably was a pessimist, the same cannot be said of the highly influential work of the unknown Morelli, author of The Code of Nature, published in 1755 and going into five further editions by 1773. Morelli had no doubts of the workability of communism. For him there was no problem of laziness or negative incentives. There was no need, in short, for any change in human nature or the creation of a new socialist man. In a vulgarization of Rousseau, man is everywhere good, altruistic, and dedicated to work. It is only institutions that are degrading and corrupt, specifically the institution of private property. Abolish that, and man's natural goodness would easily triumph. Query. Where did these corrupt institutions come from, if not from man? Banish property, and crime would disappear. For Morelli, the administration of the communist utopia would also be easy, assigning every person his task in life, and also deciding what material goods and services would fulfill his needs, would apparently be a trivial problem for the Ministry of Labor or of Consumption. 
For Moralee, all this was merely a matter of trivial enumeration, of listing things and persons. Here is the ancestor of Marx and Lenin's dismissal of the gigantic problems of socialist administration and allocation as merely a question of bookkeeping. But things, after all, are not going to be that easy. Mabli, the pessimist on human nature, was apparently willing to leave matters to voluntary actions of individuals. But Morali, the alleged optimist, was cheerfully prepared to employ brutally coercive methods to keep all the good citizens in line. Once again, as in Mabli, the edicts of the proposed state would be written clearly by nature, as revealed to the founder Morali. Morali worked out an intricate design for his proposed government and society, all allegedly based on the clear dictates of natural law, and most of which were to be changeless and eternal, to Morali a vital part of the scheme. In particular, there is to be no private property except for daily needs. Every person is to be maintained and employed by the collective. Every man is to be forced to work, to contribute to the communal storehouse according to his talents, and will then be assigned goods from these stores according to his needs, to be brought up communally and absolutely identically in food, clothing, and training. Philosophic and religious doctrines are to be absolutely prescribed, no differences are to be tolerated, and children are not to be corrupted by any fable, story, or ridiculous fictions. All buildings must be the same and grouped in equal blocks. All clothing is to be made out of the same fabric. Occupations are to be limited and strictly assigned by the state. Finally, these laws are to be sacred and inviolable, and anyone attempting to change them is to be isolated and incarcerated for life. As in all the communist utopias, Mablis and Moralis, as Alexander Gray makes clear, are ones under which no sane man would on any conditions consent to live if he could possibly escape. The reason, apart from the grave lack of incentives in utopias to produce or innovate, is that life has reached a static state. Nothing happens, nothing can happen, in any of them. It should be added that these utopias were debased, secularized versions of the visions of the Christian millennialists. In the Christian millennium, Jesus Christ, or alternatively his surrogates and predecessors, comes back to earth to put an end to history, and presumably there will be enough enchantment in glorifying God without worrying about the absence of earthly change. And, as we have seen, this is particularly true in Joachim of Fior's envisioned millennium of people without earthly bodies. But in the secularized utopias there reigns, at best, gray gloom and stasis, totally contrary to man's nature on earth. Meanwhile, however, Christian millennialism was also revived in these stormy times. 
Thus, the Swabian German pietist Johann Christoph Oettinger, during the mid-18th century, prophesied a coming theocratic world kingdom of saints, living communally, without rank or property, as members of a millennial Christian commonwealth. Particularly influential among later German pietists was the French mystic and theosophist Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, 1743-1803, who, in his influential Errors and Truth, 1773, portrayed an inner church of the elect, allegedly existing since the dawn of history, which would take power in the coming age. This Martinist theme was developed by the Rosicrucian movement, concentrated in Bavaria. Originally alchemist mystics during the 17th and 18th centuries, the Bavarian Rosicrucians began to stress the coming takeover of world power by the inner church of the elect during the dawning millennial age. The most influential Bavarian Rosicrucian author, Karl von Eckartshausen, expounded on this theme in two widely read works. Information on Magic, 1788-1792, and On Perfectibility, 1797. In the latter work he developed the idea that the inner church of the elect had existed backwards in time to Abraham, and then forwards to a world government to be ruled by these keepers of the divine light. The third and final age of history, the age of the Holy Spirit, was now at hand, the illuminated elect, destined to rule the new communal world, were, fairly obviously, the Rosicrucian order itself, since their major evidence for the dawn of the Third Age was the rapid spread of Martinism and Rosicrucianism itself. And these movements were indeed spreading during the 1780s and 1790s, the Prussian king, Frederick William II, and a large portion of his court were converted to Rosicrucianism in the late 1780s, as was the Russian Tsar Paul I a decade later, based on his reading of St. Martin and Eckhartshausen, both of whom he considered to be transmitters of divine revelation. St. Martin was also influential through his leadership of Scottish Rite Masonry in Lyon, and was the main figure in what might be called the apocalyptic Christian wing of the Masonic movement. 3. The Conspiracy of the Equals Inspired by the works of Mably and especially Morelli, a young journalist from Picardy decided, amidst the turmoil of the French Revolution, to found a conspiratorial revolutionary organization to establish communism. Strategically, this was an advance on the two founders, who had had no idea but simple education of how to achieve their goal. François Noël, Caius Gracchus Babeuf, 1764-1797, a journalist and commissioner of land deeds in Picardy, came to Paris in 1790 and imbibed the heady revolutionary atmosphere. By 1793, Babeuf was committed to economic equality and communism. Two years later, he founded the secret Conspiracy of the Equals, organizing around his new journal, The Tribune of the People. 
The Tribune, like Lenin's Iskra, a century later, was used to set a coherent line for his cadre, as well as for his public followers. As James Billington writes, Babeuf's Tribune was the first journal in history to be the legal arm of an extra-legal revolutionary conspiracy. The ultimate ideal of Babeuf and his conspiracy was absolute equality. Nature, they claimed, calls for perfect equality. All inequality is injustice. Therefore, community of property was to be established. As the conspiracy proclaimed emphatically in its Manifesto of Equals, written by one of Babeuf's top aides, Sylvain Maréchal, we demand real equality or death. That is what we must have. For its sake, the manifesto went on, we are ready for anything. We are willing to sweep everything away. Let all the arts vanish if necessary, as long as genuine equality remains for us. In the ideal communist society sought by the conspiracy, private property would be abolished, and all property would be communal and stored in communal storehouses. From these storehouses the goods would be distributed equitably by the superiors. Apparently there was to be a cadre of superiors in this oh-so-equal world. There was to be universal compulsory labor, serving the fatherland by useful labor. Teachers or scientists must submit certifications of loyalty to the superiors. The manifesto acknowledged that there would be an enormous expansion of government officials and bureaucrats in the communist world, inevitable where the fatherland takes control of an individual from his birth till his death. There would be severe punishments consisting of forced labor against persons of either sex who set society a bad example by absence of civic-mindedness, by idleness, a luxurious way of life, licentiousness. These punishments, described, as one historian notes, lovingly and in great detail, consisted of deportation to prison islands. Freedom of speech and the press are treated as one might expect. The press would not be allowed to endanger the justice of equality or to subject the republic to interminable and fatal discussions. Moreover, no one will be allowed to utter views that are in direct contradiction to the sacred principles of equality and the sovereignty of the people. In point of fact, a work would only be allowed to appear in print if the guardians of the will of the nation consider that its publication may benefit the republic. All meals would be eaten in public in every commune, and there would, of course, be compulsory attendance for all community members. Furthermore, everyone could only obtain his daily ration in the district in which he lives. The only exception would be when he is traveling with the permission of the administration. All private entertainment would be strictly forbidden, lest imagination, released from the supervision of a strict judge, should engender abominable vices contrary to the commonweal. And as for religion, all so-called revelation ought to be banned by law. Not only was Babeuf's egalitarian communist goal an important influence on later Marxism-Leninism, but so too was his strategic theory and practice in the concrete organization of revolutionary activity. 
The unequal, the Babuvists proclaimed, must be despoiled. The poor must rise up and sack the rich. Above all, the French Revolution must be completed and redone. There must be total upheaval, total destruction of existing institutions, so that a new and perfect world can be built from the rubble. As Babeuf called out at the conclusion of his own plebeian manifesto, May everything return to chaos, and out of chaos may there emerge a new and regenerated world. Indeed, the Plebeian Manifesto, published slightly earlier than the Manifesto of Equals in November 1795, was the first in a line of revolutionary manifestos that would reach a climax in Marx's Communist Manifesto a half-century later. The two manifestos revealed an important difference between Babeuf and Marachal, which might have caused a split, had not the equals been crushed soon afterwards by police repression. For in his plebeian manifesto, Babeuf had begun to move toward Christian messianism, not only paying tribute to Moses and Joshua, but also particularly to Jesus, as his, Babeuf's, co-athlete. And, in prison, Babeuf had written A New History of the Life of Jesus Christ. Most of the equals, however, were militant atheists, spearheaded by Marachal, who liked to refer to himself with the grandiose acronym HSD, L'Homme Sans Dieu, The Man Without God. In addition to the idea of conspiratorial revolution, Babeuf, Fascinated by military matters, began to develop the idea of people's guerrilla warfare, of a revolution being formed in separate phalanxes by people whose permanent occupation would be making revolution, what Lenin would later call professional revolutionaries. He also toyed with the idea of military phalanxes securing a geographical base and then working outwards from there, advancing by degree, consolidating to the extent that we gain territory we should be able to organize. A secret conspiratorial inner circle, a phalanx of professional revolutionaries. Inevitably, this meant that Babeuf's strategic perspective for his revolution involved some fascinating paradoxes. For, in the name of a goal of harmony and perfect equality, the revolutionaries were to be led by a hierarchy, commanding total obedience. The inner cadre would work its will over the mass. An absolute leader, heading an all-powerful cadre, would, at the proper moment, give the signal to usher in a society of perfect equality. Revolution would be made to end all further revolutions. An all-powerful hierarchy would be necessary, allegedly, to put an end to hierarchy forever. But of course, as we have seen, there was no real paradox here, no intention to eliminate hierarchy. The peons to equality were a flimsy camouflage for the real objective, a permanently entrenched and absolute dictatorship, in Orwell's striking image, a boot stamping on a human face forever.
After suffering police repression at the end of February 1796, the conspiracy of the Equals went further underground, and a month later constituted themselves as the Secret Directory of Public Safety. The seven secret directors, meeting every evening, reached collective and anonymous decisions, and then each member of this central committee radiated activity outwards to twelve instructors, each of whom mobilized a broader insurrectionary group in one of the twelve districts of Paris. In this way, the conspiracy managed to mobilize 17,000 Parisians, but the group was betrayed by the eagerness of the secret directorate to recruit within the army. An informer led to the arrest of Babeuf on 10 May 1796, followed by the destruction of the conspiracy of the equals. Babeuf was executed the following year. Police repression, however, almost always leaves pockets of dissidents to rise again, and the carrier of the torch of revolutionary communism was a Babuvist arrested with the leader, but who managed to avoid execution. Filippo Giuseppe Maria Lodovico Buonarroti, 1761-1837, was the eldest son of an aristocratic but impoverished Florentine family, and a direct descendant of the great Michelangelo. Studying law at the University of Pisa in the early 1780s, Buonarroti was converted by disciples of Morelli on the faculty. As a radical journalist and editor, Buonarroti then participated in battles for the French Revolution against Italian troops. In the spring of 1794, he was put in charge of the French occupation in the Italian town of Onelia, where he announced to the people that all men must be equal, and that any distinction, whatever, among men is a violation of natural law. Back in Paris, Buonarroti successfully defended himself in a trial against his use of terror in Onelia, and finally plunged into Babeuf's conspiracy of equals. His friendship with Napoleon allowed him to escape execution, and eventually to be shipped from a prison camp to exile in Geneva. For the rest of his life, Buonarroti became what his modern biographer calls the first professional revolutionist, trying to set up revolutions and conspiratorial organizations throughout Europe. Before the execution of Babeuf and others, Buonarroti had pledged his comrades to write their full story, and he fulfilled that pledge when, at the age of sixty-seven, he published in Belgium The Conspiracy for Equality of Babeuf, 1828. Babeuf and his comrades had been long forgotten, and this massive work now told the first and most thoroughgoing story of the Babeufist saga. The book proved to be an inspiration to revolutionary and communist groupings, and it sold extremely well, the English translation of 1836 selling 50,000 copies in a short space of time. For the next decade of his life, the previously obscure Buonarroti was lionized throughout the European ultra-left. Brooding over previous revolutionary failures, Buonarroti counseled the need for iron elite rule immediately after the coming to power of the revolutionary forces. 
In short, the power of the revolution must be immediately given over to a strong, constant, enlightened, immovable will, which will direct all the force of the nation against internal and external enemies, and very gradually prepare the people for their sovereignty. The point, for Buonarroti, was that the people are incapable either of regeneration by themselves or of designating the people who should direct the regeneration. 4. The Burgeoning of Communism the 1830s and 1840s saw the burgeoning of messianic and kiliastic communist and socialist groups throughout Europe, notably in France, Belgium, Germany, and England. Owenites, Cabeists, Fourierites, Saint-Simonians, and many others sprouted and interacted, and we need not examine them or their nuanced variations in detail. While the Welshman Robert Owen, 1771-1858, was the first one to use the word socialist in print in 1827, and also toyed with the word communionist, the word communist finally caught on as the most popular label for the new system. It was first used in a popular printed work, Etienne Cabet's utopian novel Voyage in Icaria, 1839 and from there the word spread like wildfire across Europe, spurred by the recent development of regular steamboat mail service and the first telegraphy. When Marx and Engels, in the famous opening sentence of their culminating Communist Manifesto of 1848, wrote that, A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism, this was a bit of hyperbolic rhetoric, but was still not far off the mark. As Billington writes, the talismanic word communism spread throughout the continent with a speed altogether unprecedented in the history of such verbal epidemics. In this welter of individuals and groups, there are some interesting ones to focus on. The earliest German exile group of revolutionaries was the League of Outlaws, founded in Paris by Theodore Schuster under the inspiration of the writings of Buonarroti. Schuster's pamphlet, Confessions of Faith of an Outlaw, 1834, was perhaps the first projection of the coming revolution as a creation of the outlaws and marginal outcasts of society, the ones outside the circuit of production whom Marx would understandably dismiss brusquely as the lumpen proletariat. The lumpen were later emphasized in the 1840s by the leading anarcho-communist, the Russian Mikhail Bakunin, 1814-1876, and by various strains of the new left of the late 1960s and early 1970s. The outlaws were the first international organization of communist revolutionaries, comprised of about 100 members in Paris and nearly 80 in Frankfurt am Main. The League of Outlaws, however, disintegrated about 1838, many, including Schuster, going off into nationalist agitation. But it was succeeded quickly by the larger group of German exiles, the League of the Just, also headquartered in Paris. The German communist groups always tended to be more Christian than the others. 
Thus, Karl Schapper, leader of the Paris headquarters section of the League of the Just, addressed his followers as brothers in Christ, and hailed the coming social revolution as the great resurrection day of the people. Intensifying the religious tone of the League of the Just was the prominent German communist, the tailor Wilhelm Weitling, 1808-1871. In his secretly printed manifesto that he wrote for the League of the Just, Humanity as it is and as it ought to be, 1838, which, though secret, was widely disseminated and discussed, Weitling proclaimed himself as a social Luther, and denounced money as the source of all corruption and exploitation. All private property and all money was to be abolished, and the value of all products to be calculated in labor hours, the labor theory of value taken all too seriously. For work in public utilities and heavy industry, Weitling proposed to mobilize a centralized industrial army, fueled by the conscription of every man and woman between the ages of fifteen and eighteen. Expelled from France after revolutionary troubles in 1839, the League of the Just moved to London, where it also established a broader front group, the Educational Society for German Working Men, in 1840. The three top leaders of the society, Karl Schapper, Bruno Bauer, and Josef Moll, managed to enlarge the total to over 1,000 members by 1847, including 250 members in other countries in Europe and Latin America. A fascinating contrast is presented in the persons of two young communists, both leaders of the movement during the 1840s and both totally forgotten by later generations, even by most historians. Each represented a different side of the communist perspective and, together, two different strands in the movement. One was the English Christian visionary and fantast John Goodwin Barmby, 1822, uncertain time of death. At the age of twenty, Barmby, then an Owenite, arrived in Paris with a proposal to set up an international association of socialists throughout the world. A provisional committee was actually formed, headed by the French Owenite Jules Gay, but nothing came of the scheme. The proposal, however, did prefigure the first international. More importantly, in Paris, Barmby discovered the word communist and adopted and spread it with enormous fervor. To Barmby, communist and communitarian were interchangeable terms, and he helped organize throughout France what he reported to the English Owenites as social banquets of the communist or communitarian school. Back in England, Barmby's fervor was undiminished. He founded a communist propaganda society, soon to be called the Universal Communitarian Society, and established a journal, the Promethean, or Communitarian Apostle, soon renamed the Communist Chronicle. Communism, to Barmby, was both the societarian science and the final religion of humanity. His credo, propounded in the first issue of the Promethean, avowed that the divine is communism, that the demoniac is individualism. 
After that flying start, Barmby wrote communist hymns and prayers, called for the building of communitariums, all directed by a supreme communarchy headed by an elected communarch and communarchus. Barmby repeatedly proclaimed the religion of communism, and made sure to begin things right by naming himself Pontifarch of the Communist Church. The subtitle of the Communist Chronicle revealed its neo-Christian messianism, the apostle of the Communist Church and the communitive life, communion with God, communion of the saints, communion of suffrages, communion of works, and communion of goods. The struggle for communism, declared Barmby, was apocalyptic, bound to end with the mystical reunion of Satan into God. In the holy communist church, the devil will be converted into God, and in this conversion of Satan doth God call people in the communion of suffrages, of works, and of goods, both spiritual and material, for these latter days. The arrival in London of Wilhelm Weitling in 1844 led him and Barmby to collaborate on promoting Christian communism, but by the end of 1847 they had lost out, and the communist movement was shifting decisively toward atheism. The crucial turn came in June 1847, when the two most atheistical communist groups, the League of the Just in London and the small fifteen-man Communist Correspondence Committee of Brussels, led by Karl Marx, merged to form the Communist League. In its second Congress in December, ideological struggles within the League were resolved when Marx was asked to write the statement for the new party, to become the famed Communist Manifesto. In any case, Cabet and Weitling each left permanently for the United States in 1848 to try to establish communism there. Both attempts foundered ignominiously amid America's expanding and highly individualistic society. Cabet's Icarians settled in Texas, and then in Nauvoo, Illinois, then split and split again, until Cabet, ejected by his former followers in Nauvoo, left for St. Louis and died, spurned by nearly everyone, in 1856. As for Weitling, he gave up more rapidly— in New York, he became a follower of Josiah Warren's individualistic, though left-Ricardian, labor-money scheme, and in 1854 he deviated further to become a bureaucrat with the U.S. Immigration Service, spending most of his remaining 17 years trying to promote his various inventions. Apparently, Weitling, willy-nilly, had at last voted with his feet to join the capitalist order. Meanwhile, Goodwin Barmby sequestered himself in one after another of the Channel Islands to try to found a utopian community, and denounced a former follower for setting up a more practical communist journal as an infringement of his copyright on the word communism. Gradually, however, Barmby abandoned his universalism and began to call himself a national communist, and in 1848 he went to France, became a Unitarian minister and friend of Mazzini, and abandoned communism for revolutionary nationalism. 
On the other hand, a leading young French communist, Théodore Desamis, 1808-1850, represented a competing strain of militant atheism and a tough cadre approach. In his youth, the personal secretary of Cabet, Desamis led the sudden communist boom launched in 1839 and 1840. By the following year, Desamis became perhaps the founder of the Marxist-Leninist tradition of ideologically and politically excommunicating all deviationists from the correct line. In fact, in 1842, Desamis, a highly prolific pamphleteer, turned bitterly on his old mentor, Cabet, and denounced him in his Slanders and Politics of Mr. Cabet for chronic vacillations. In Slanders, Desamis, for the first time, argued that ideological as well as political discipline was requisite for the communist movement. More importantly, Desamis wanted to purge French communism of the influence of the quasi-religious, poetic, and moralistic communist code propounded by Cabet in his Voyage in Icaria, and especially in his Communist Credo of 1841. Desamis attempted to be severely scientific, and claimed that communist revolution was both rational and inevitable. It is no wonder that Desamis was greatly admired by Marx. Furthermore, pacific or gradual measures must be rejected. Desamis insisted that a communist revolution must confiscate all private property and all money immediately. Half-measures will satisfy no one, he claimed. And furthermore, as Billington paraphrases it, swift and total change would be less bloody than a slow process, since communism releases the natural goodness of man. Not only would revolutionary communism be immediate and total, it would also be global and universal. In the future communist world there will be one global congress of humanity, a single language, and a single labor service called industrial athletes, who perform work in the form of communal youth festivals. Moreover, the new universal country would abolish not only narrow nationalism, but also such divisive loyalties as the family. In stark practical contrast to his own career as ideological excommunicator, Desamis proclaimed that under communism conflict would be logically impossible. There can be no splits among communists. Our struggles among ourselves can only be struggles of harmony or reasoning, since communitarian principles constitute the solution to all problems. Amidst this militant atheism there was, however, a kind of religious fervor, and even faith. For Desamis spoke of this sublime devotion which constitutes socialism, and he urged proletarians to re-enter the egalitarian church, outside of which there can be no salvation. Desamis' arrest and trial in 1844 inspired German communists in Paris, such as Arnold Ruge, Moses Hess, and Karl Marx, and Hess began to work on a German translation of Desamis' code under the encouragement of Marx, who proclaimed the code scientific, socialist, materialist, and real humanist. Chapter 10. Marx's Vision of Communism 
1. Millennial Communism The key to the intricate and massive system of thought created by Karl Marx, 1818-1883, is at bottom a simple one. Karl Marx was a communist. A seemingly banal or trite statement, set alongside Marxism's myriad of jargon-ridden concepts in philosophy, economics, history, culture, et al. Yet Marx's devotion to communism was his crucial point, far more central than the dialectic, the class struggle, the theory of surplus value, and all the rest. Communism was the goal the great end, the desideratum, the ultimate end that would make the sufferings of mankind throughout history worthwhile. History is the history of suffering, of class struggle, of the exploitation of man by man. In the same way as the return of the Messiah in Christian theology would put an end to history and establish a new heaven and a new earth, so the establishment of communism would put an end to human history. And just as for post-millennial Christians, man, led by God's prophets and saints, would establish a kingdom of God on earth, and for premillennials, Jesus would have many human assistants in establishing such a kingdom, so for Marx and other schools of communists, mankind, led by a vanguard of secular saints, would establish a secularized kingdom of heaven on earth. In messianic religious movements, the millennium is invariably established by a mighty, violent upheaval, an Armageddon, a great apocalyptic war between good and evil. After this titanic conflict, a millennium, a new age of peace and harmony, a reign of justice, would be established upon the earth. Marx emphatically rejected those utopians who aimed to arrive at communism through a gradual and evolutionary process, through a steady advancement of the good. No, Marx harked back to the apocalyptics, the post-millennial coercive German and Dutch Anabaptists of the 16th century, to the millennial sects during the English Civil War, and to the various groups of pre-millennial Christians who foresaw a bloody Armageddon at the last days, before the millennium could be established. Indeed, since the immediatist post-mills refused to wait for gradual goodness and sainthood to permeate among men, they joined the pre-mills in believing that only a violent apocalyptic final struggle between good and evil, between saints and sinners, could establish the millennium. Violent worldwide revolution, in Marx's version made by the oppressed proletariat, would be the instrument of the advent of his millennium, communism. In fact, Marx, like the pre-mills or millenarians, went further to hold that the reign of evil on earth would reach a peak just before the apocalypse. For Marx, as for the millenarians, writes Ernest Tuvison, the evil of the world must proceed to its height, before, in one great complete root-and-branch upheaval, it would be swept away. Millenarian pessimism about the perfectibility of the existing world is crossed by a supreme optimism, 
History, the millenarian believes, so operates that when evil has reached its height, the hopeless situation will be reversed. The original, the true harmonious state of society, in some kind of egalitarian order, will be re-established. In contrast to the various groups of utopian socialists, and in common with religious messianists, Karl Marx did not sketch the features of his future communism in any detail. Not for Marx, for example, to spell out the number of people in his utopia, and the shape and location of their houses, the pattern of their cities. In the first place, there is a quintessentially crazy air to utopias that are mapped by their creators in precise detail. But more importantly, spelling out the details of one's ideal society removes the crucial element of awe and mystery from the allegedly inevitable world of the future. In the same way, science fiction movies lose their glamour and excitement when, in the second half of the film, the mysterious, powerful, and previously invisible monsters become concretized into slow-moving, green, blob-like creatures that have lost their mysterious aura and have become almost commonplace. But certain features are broadly alike in all visions of communism. Private property is eliminated. Individualism goes by the board. Individuality is flattened. All property is owned and controlled communally, and the individual units of the new collective organism are in some vague way equal to one another. This millennialist emphasis on the collective is a long way from the orthodox Christian Augustinian stress on the individual soul and his salvation, in orthodox, amillennial Christianity, the individual does or does not achieve salvation, until Jesus returns and puts an end to history, and ushers in the day of judgment. There is no millennium on earth. The kingdom of God remains safely and appropriately in heaven. But millennialism's emphasis on achieving a kingdom of God on earth inevitably stressed, especially in the required human agency of the post-millennialists, the inevitable collective march toward the kingdom in and through history. In what we may call the immediatist version of post-mill doctrine, as we have seen in Volume 1 in The Brethren of the Free Spirit, the coercive Anabaptists of the Reformation, in Christian communists and in a secularized version in Marxism, the object is to seize immediate power in a violent revolution and to purge the world of sinners and heretics, that is, all who are not followers of the sect in question, so as to establish the millennium, the precondition of Jesus' second advent. In contrast, the gradualist post-mills, in less violent and precipitate fashion, who would seize control of most of the Protestant churches in the northern United States during the 19th century, wanted to use state power to coerce morality and virtue, and then establish the kingdom of God, not only in the United States but throughout the world. As one historian penetratingly concludes about one of the most prominent post-mill economists and social scientists of the late 19th century, a passage that could apply to the entire movement, 
In Richard T. Eli's eyes, government was the God-given instrument through which we had to work. Its preeminence as a divine instrument was based on the post-Reformation abolition of the division between the sacred and the secular, and on the state's power to implement ethical solutions to public problems. The same identification of sacred and secular enabled Eli to both divinize the state and socialize Christianity. He thought of government as God's major instrument of redemption. Gradualists or immediatists, all millennialists, have caused grave social and political trouble by immanentizing the eschaton. In the political philosopher Eric Vogelin's infelicitously worded but highly perceptive phrase, as an Orthodox Christian, Vogelin believed that the eschaton, the final days, the kingdom of God, must be kept strictly out of earthly matters and be confined to the other worldly realms of heaven and hell. But to take the eschaton out of heaven and bring it down into the processes of human history is to create grave problems and consequences, consequences which Vogelin saw embodied in such imminent and messianic movements as Marxism and Nazism. In common with other utopian socialists and communists, Marx sought in communism the apotheosis of the collective species— mankind as one new super-being, in which the only meaning possessed by the individual is as a negligible particle of that collective organism. One incisive portrayal of Marxian collective organicism, what amounts to a celebration of the new socialist man to be created during the communizing process, was that of a top Bolshevik theoretician of the early twentieth century, Alexander Alexandrovich Bogdanov, 1873-1928. Bogdanov, like Joachim of Fior, spoke of three ages of human history. First was a religious, authoritarian society and a self-sufficient economy. Next came the Second Age, an exchange economy, marked by diversity and the emergence of autonomy of the individual human personality. But this individualism, at first progressive, later becomes an obstacle to progress as it hampers and contradicts the unifying tendencies of the machine age. But then there will arise the Third Age, the final stage of history communism, though not, as with Joachim, an age of the Holy Spirit. This last stage will be marked by a collective self-sufficient economy, and by the fusion of personal lives into one colossal whole, harmonious in the relations of its parts, systematically grouping all elements for one common struggle, struggle against the endless spontaneity of nature, an enormous mass of creative activity is necessary in order to solve this task. It demands the forces not of man, but of mankind. And only in working at this task does mankind as such emerge. The acme of messianic communism appears in the frenzied three-volume phantasmagoria by the notable German blend of Christian Messianist and Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist Ernst Bloch, 
1885-1977, Bloch held that the inner truth of things could only be discovered after a complete transformation of the universe, a grand apocalypse, the descent of the Messiah, a new heaven and a new earth. As J.P. Stern writes in his review of Bloch's three-volume Principle of Hope, the book contains such remarkable declamations as, Where Lenin is, there is Jerusalem, and that the Bolshevist fulfillment of communism is part and parcel of the age-old fight for God. There is also more than a hint in Bloch that disease, nay, even death itself, will be abolished upon the advent of communism. In contrast, there is no more eloquent championing of orthodox Christian individualism and revulsion against collectivism than G. K. Chesterton's critique of the views of a leading Fabian socialist, Mrs. Annie Besant, in which Chesterton swats Mrs. Besant's pantheistic Buddhism. According to Mrs. Besant, the universal church is simply the universal self. It is the doctrine that we are really all one person, that there are no real walls of individuality between man and man. She does not tell us to love our neighbor, she tells us to be our neighbors. The intellectual abyss between Buddhism and Christianity is that, for the Buddhist or theosophist, personality is the fall of man. For the Christian, it is the purpose of God, the whole point of his cosmic idea. Let us turn to some of the main features of communism. In the typical communal millennial future, an epoch of bliss and harmony, work, the necessity to labor, becomes de-emphasized or disappears altogether. Labor, at least labor in order to maintain and advance one's living standards, does not ring true with very many people as a feature of utopia. Thus, in the vision of Joachim of Fior, perhaps the first medieval millennialist, no work would be required to disturb the endless round of celebration and prayer, because mankind would have achieved the status of immaterial objects. If man were pure spirit, it is true that the economic problem, the problem of production and living standards, would necessarily disappear. Unfortunately, however, Marx, being an atheist and materialist, could not exactly fall back on a fior-like communism of pure spirit. How could solidly material human beings solve the problem of production and of maintaining and expanding their living standards? There was method in Marx's refusal to treat the communist stage in any detail. His utopia was shadowy. On the one hand, Marx assumed and asserted that goods in the future communist society would be superabundant. If so, there would, of course, be no need to refer to the universal economic problem of scarcity of means and resources as applied to ends. But by assuming away the problem, Marx bequeathed the puzzle to future generations, and Marxists have been split on the question. Will communism itself bring about this magical state of superabundance, or should we wait until capitalism brings superabundance before we establish communism? 
Generally, Marxist groups have solved this problem, not in theory, but in practice, or praxis, by cleaving to whatever path would allow them either to conquer or to maintain their power. Thus, Marxist vanguards or parties, on seeing an opportunity to seize power, have been invariably willing to skip the stages of history preordained by their master and exercise their revolutionary will. On the other hand, Marxist elites already entrenched in power have prudentially put off the ultimate goal of communism even further into a receding future. And so the Soviets were quick to stress hard work and gradualism in persevering toward the ultimate goal. There are several other probable reasons for Marx's failure to detail the features of ultimate communism, or indeed of the necessary stages to achieve it. First is that Marx had no interest in the economic features of his utopia— a simple question-begging assumption of unlimited abundance was enough. His main interest, as we shall see, was in the philosophic, indeed religious, aspects of communism. Second, communism for Marx was an inverted form of Hegel and his philosophy of history. It was the revolutionary end to Marx's neo-Hegelian version of alienation and of the dialectic process by which the Aufhebung, transcendence, and negation of one historical stage is replaced by another and opposing one. In this case, the negation of the evil condition of private property and the division of labor, and the establishment of communism, in which man's unity with man and nature is achieved. To Marx, as to Hegel, history necessarily proceeds by this magical dialectic, in which one stage gives rise inevitably to a later and opposing stage except that to Marx the dialectic is material rather than spiritual. Marx never published his neo-Hegelian economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844 in which the philosophic basis of Marxism was set forth, and one essay of which, Private Property and Communism, contained Marx's fullest exposition of the communist society. One reason for his refusal to publish was that, in later decades, Hegelian philosophy had gone out of fashion even in Germany, and Marx's followers were interested more in the economic and revolutionary aspects of Marxism. 2. Raw Communism Another important reason for Marx's failure to publish was his candid depiction of the communist society in the essay Private Property and Communism. In addition to its being philosophic and not economic, he portrayed a horrifying but allegedly necessary stage of society immediately after the necessary violent world revolution of the proletariat, and before ultimate communism is to be finally achieved. Marx's post-revolutionary society, that of unthinking or raw communism, was not such as to spur the revolutionary energies of the Marxian faithful. For Marx took to heart two bitter critiques of communism that had become prominent in Europe. One was by the French mutualist anarchist Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, 
who denounced communism as oppression and slavery, and to whom Marx explicitly referred in his essay. The other was a fascinating book by the conservative Hegelian monarchist Lorenz von Stein, 1815-1890, who had been assigned by the Prussian government in 1840 to study the unsettling new doctrines of socialism and communism becoming rampant in France. Not only did Marx show a minute textual familiarity with Stein's subsequent book of 1842, but he actually based his concept of the proletariat as the foundation and the engine of the world revolution on Stein's insights into the new revolutionary doctrines as rationalizations of the class interests of the proletariat. Most remarkably, Marx admittedly agreed with Proudhon's and particularly Stein's portrayal of the first stage of the post-revolutionary society, which he agreed with Stein to call raw communism. Stein forecasts that raw communism would be an attempt to enforce egalitarianism by wildly and ferociously expropriating and destroying property confiscating it, and coercively communizing women as well as material wealth. Indeed, Marx's evaluation of raw communism, the stage of the dictatorship of the proletariat, was even more negative than Stein's. In the same way as woman is to abandon marriage for general, that is, universal, prostitution, so the whole world of wealth, that is, the objective being of man, is to abandon the relation of exclusive marriage with the private property owner for the relation of general prostitution with the community. Not only that, but as Professor Tucker puts it, Marx concedes that raw communism is not the real transcendence of private property, but only the universalizing of it. Not the overcoming of greed, but only the generalizing of it. And not the abolition of labor, but only its extension to all men. It is merely a new form in which the vileness of private property comes to the surface. In short, in the stage of communalization of private property, what Marx himself considers the worst features of private property will be maximized. Not only that, but Marx concedes the truth of the charge of anti-communists, then and now, that communism and communization is but the expression, in Marx's words, of envy and a desire to reduce all to a common level. Far from leading to a flowering of human personality, as Marx is supposed to claim, he admits that communism will negate it totally. Thus Marx, in completely negating the personality of men, this type of communism is really nothing but the logical expression of private property. General envy, constituting itself as power, is the disguise in which greed re-establishes itself and satisfies itself only in another way. In the approach to woman as the spoil and handmaid of communal lust is pressed the infinite degradation in which man exists for himself. 
All in all, Marx's portrayal of raw communism is very like the monstrous regimes imposed by the coercive Anabaptists of the 16th century. Professor Tucker adds, perhaps underlining the obvious, that these vivid indications from the Paris manuscripts of the way in which Marx envisaged and evaluated the immediate post-revolutionary period very probably explain the extreme reticence that he always later showed on this topic in his published writings. But if this communism is admittedly so monstrous, a regime of infinite degradation, why should anyone favor it, much less dedicate one's life and fight a bloody revolution to establish it? Here, as so often in Marx's thought and writings, he falls back on the mystique of the dialectic, that wondrous magic word by which one social system inevitably gives rise to its victorious transcendence and negation, and, in this case, by which total evil, which, interestingly enough, turns out to be the post-revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, and not preceding capitalism, becomes transformed into total good. To say the least, Marx cannot and does not attempt to explain how a system of total greed becomes transformed into total greedlessness. He leaves it all to the wizardry of the dialectic, now a dialectic fatally shorn of the alleged motor of the class struggle, which yet somehow transforms the monstrosity of raw communism into the paradise of communism's higher stage. 3. Higher Communism and the Eradication of the Division of Labor The hell of the first or lower stage of communism has been vividly expressed by Marx. What of the heaven of the higher stage, of the positive humanism of ultimate communism? Unfortunately, heaven's features are vague and murky indeed, perhaps too insubstantial, if Marx had published his manuscripts to overcome the all-too-palpable horrors of raw communism. The key is that man is supposedly freed from the necessity of labor— the elimination of private property frees him from greed, succeeding the orgiastic culmination of greed achieved during raw communism. In particular, man is freed from the division of labor, from specialization, which prevents him from developing all his faculties for the sheer joy of it, and forces him to work for others, either in the market or under the despotic power of feudalism or oriental despotism, or under the dictatorship of the proletariat in the first stage of communism. Without the division of labor, and with the evil of exchange of goods and services at last eliminated, man is now free from the alienation of not consuming his own product, this alienation is not, as many Marxists seem to believe, the result of the capitalists' alleged extraction of the surplus produced by the workers. More deeply, this alienation is the product of the division of labor and of specialization itself. That division eliminated, man, in the neo-Hegelian mystique of Marx, will return to himself, will be united with himself, and alienation will then be ended. 
All this makes a kind of sense only if one realizes that, for Marx as for Hegel, man is a collective and not an individual organic entity. For Hegel and for Marx, the history of man is the history, the ups and downs, of what amounts to a single collective organism. If, for Marx, there is a division of labor, specialization, and exchange, this means that man is tragically split within himself, so that the process of achieving the higher stage of communism, the end of human history, in the same way that the kingdom of God on earth had been an end, is a process by which man is no longer alienated from his collective self, and achieves unity with himself. At the same time, he also achieves unity with nature. For in the Marxian system, the only nature is that which has been created by centuries of man's labor and activity. Thus, as Robert Tucker points out, Friedrich Engels' famous statement about communism has been misinterpreted widely, not least by Marxists unfamiliar with the philosophical nature of their own system. Friedrich Engels, 1820-1895, wrote in his Anti-During, the whole sphere of the conditions of life which environ man and which have hitherto ruled man now comes under the dominion and control of man, who for the first time becomes the real conscious lord of nature, because he has now become master of his own social organization. Man's own social organization, hitherto confronting him as a necessity imposed by nature and history, now becomes the result of his own free action. The extraneous objective forces that have hitherto governed history pass under the control of man himself. It is the ascent of man from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. As Tucker points out, to the reader unfamiliar with Marxian philosophy, this passage might well be construed as referring to man's mastery of nature via technology. However, in actuality it refers to the mastery of technology as man's own nature outside himself. The kingdom of necessity is the alienated world of history, the realm of object bondage. The extraneous objective forces over which man is to become lord in the kingdom of freedom are understood as the externalized forces of the species self. The nature to which man will no longer be subservient is his own nature. In short, as in many other places in Marx, a passage which at least superficially seems to contain at least a modicum of sense, although fallacious, turns out on deeper study to be but a part of the mumbo-jumbo of Marx's neo-Hegelian philosophy. Particularly important for Marx is that communism does away with the division of labor, by being free of specialization, the division of labor and working for others, including the consumers, man as laborer is freed from all limits. Thus liberated, man produces in order to realize his nature as a being with manifold creative capacities requiring free outlet in a totality of human life activities. Or, as Engels put it in his Anti-During, 
the disappearance of the division of labor will mean that productive labor will give each individual the opportunity to develop all his faculties, physical and mental, in all directions, and exercise them to the full. The idea of everyone developing all of their faculties in all directions is mind-boggling, and conjures up the absurd picture of a world of autistic dilettantes, each heedless of social demand for their services or products, and each dabbling whimsically and sporadically in every activity. This image is confirmed by Marx's most famous passage describing the communist system in part one of his The German Ideology, an unpublished essay written in 1845 and 1846. There he writes that communism corresponds to the development of individuals into complete individuals, and the casting off of all natural limitations. How are all natural limitations cast off? A tall order, indeed. Let Marx explain. As soon as the division of labor comes into being, each man has a particular exclusive sphere of activity which is forced upon him. He is a hunter, a fisherman, a shepherd, or a critical critic, and must remain so if he does not want to lose his means of livelihood. While in communist society, where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production, and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, shepherd, or critic. One of the most apt comments on this passage is the witty moe of Alexander Gray. A short weekend on a farm might have convinced Marx that the cattle themselves might have some objection to being reared in this casual manner in the evening. More broadly, Gray remarks that each individual should have the opportunity of developing all his faculties, physical and mental, in all directions, is a dream which will cheer the vision only of the simple-minded, oblivious of the restrictions imposed by the narrow limits of human life. For life, Gray points out, is a series of acts of choice, and each choice is, at the same time, a renunciation. The necessity of choice, Gray perceptively reminds us, will exist even under communism. Even the inhabitant of Engels' future fairyland will have to decide sooner or later whether he wishes to be Archbishop of Canterbury or First Sea Lord, whether he should seek to excel as a violinist or as a pugilist whether he should elect to know all about Chinese literature or about the hidden pages in the life of the mackerel. The abolition of the division of labor meant also that all differences, and hence opposition between town and country, had to be eliminated, with industry somehow equally diffused throughout the country, the world. As a result, all large cities would have to be destroyed, as Engels said in Anti-During, it is true that in the huge towns civilization has bequeathed to us a heritage which it will take much time and trouble to get rid of, 
but it must and will be got rid of, however protracted a process it may be. It is not surprising that the Soviet authorities did not take a very favorable view of Marxian communism. Marxian pieties can go just so far. Thus the Soviet Communist Party's theoretical journal, Communist, referred favorably to the unpublished work of a Soviet economist, V. M. Kriukov, who wrote that, An unintelligent person and Philistine might form his own picture of communism approximately as follows. You rise in the morning and ask yourself, Where shall I go to work today? Shall I be chief engineer at the factory, or go and head the fishing brigade? Or shall I run down to Moscow and hold an urgent meeting of the Presidium of the Academy of Science? Communist adds the warning, It will not be so. No doubt, and quite sensibly. But of course the Soviet authorities did not acknowledge the fact that by repudiating this unintelligent notion, they were renouncing the key to the whole Marxian system, the point and goal of the entire struggle. More importantly, the Soviet authorities jettisoned the basic goal of Marxism by abandoning the idea that communism will eliminate the division of labor. The revision began with Stalin's last work in 1952, shortly before his death, and intensified after that. Evading and sometimes falsifying the writings of the founders, the Soviet revisionists were relatively sound in realism and economics, but weak on the Marxian heritage. Sometimes the Soviet experts simply and sharply stated the facts, a man cannot do literally everything. In the system of communist production relations, the division and specialization of labor will remain essential. And it is absolutely obvious that communist society would be unthinkable without a constantly developing and intensifying division of labor. Substitute the words modern or industrial for communist, and the Soviet economists were right on the mark. But in what sense is this communism any longer? Six years before Antti During, moreover, Engels betrayed the entire Marxian vision in the course of a bitter polemic against the anarchists. In defending the idea of authoritarianism under communism, Engels reminded the self-styled anti-authoritarian anarchists that a revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other part by means of rifles, bayonets, and cannon, authoritarian means. But more importantly, Engels jeered at the idea that there will be no authoritarianism and hence no division of labor in a communist factory. Engels pointed out that factory production requires both, and also demands that the workers subordinate themselves to technological necessity. Thus, keeping the machines going requires an engineer to look after the steam engine, mechanics to make the current repairs, and many other laborers whose business it is to transfer the products. Moreover, he pointed out, technology and the forces of nature subject man to a veritable despotism, independent of all social organization. 
Wanting to abolish authority in large-scale industry, Engels warned, is tantamount to wanting to abolish industry itself, to destroy the power loom in order to return to the spinning wheel. Refreshingly sober words, no doubt, but totally alien to the spirit of Marxism, and certainly to all that Marx said or wrote on the topic, as well as most other writings of Engels. To Marx, all labor in future communism is not economic, but artistic, the free and spontaneous creativity allegedly typical of the artist. For Marx, in his economic magnum opus, Capital, communist man has been transformed from an alienated man into an aesthetic man, who regards everything in artistic terms. Thus, on the factory, industrial production under communism will have no authoritarian direction, but rather unity will be achieved as with musicians in a symphony orchestra. Engels, however, was an interesting case. A bit more of an economist than Marx, and the man who introduced his friend and partner to British classical economics, Engels was capable of alternating the wildest utopian fantasies of communism with a suddenly perceptive insight into its economic difficulties. Thus, even in Anti-During, Engels at one point admits that the task of economic science, as capitalism moves forward rapidly and inexorably to its collapse, is to uncover amid the changes of the economic transition the elements of the future new organization of production and exchange which will remove the previous malfunctioning of the capitalist economy. It was never a task, however, that either Engels or Marx would ever bother to take up. Furthermore, in The Principles of Communism, an essay written in late 1847 that became the first draft for the Communist Manifesto, Engels laid bare one of the crucial, usually implicit, assumptions of the communist society, that superabundance will have eliminated the problem of scarcity. Private property can be abolished only when the economy is capable of producing the volume of goods needed to satisfy everyone's requirements. The new rate of industrial growth will produce enough goods to satisfy all the demands of society. Society will achieve an output sufficient for the needs of all members. This superabundant production somehow will have been achieved by a wondrous technological progress that would eliminate the need for any division of labor. Engels, however, in the midst of this bold assumption, felt compelled to waffle and to admit that this communist millennium could not be achieved immediately or at one blow for it would not be possible immediately to expand the existing forces of production to such an extent that enough goods could be made to satisfy all the needs of the community. During the transition period, at least, says Engels, industry will have to be run by society as a whole for everybody's benefit. It must be operated by all members of society in accordance with a common plan. Private property will also have to be abolished, and it must be replaced by the sharing of all products in accordance with an agreed plan. 
Any believer in the labor theory of value who tried to set forth a scheme of economic calculation under socialism would likely fasten on the idea of setting prices and paying wages in accordance with the labor time expended on production. The issue of labor time tickets was precisely the plan proposed by Robert Owen, by the Ricardian individualist anarchist Josiah Warren, and by the German Ricardian socialist Johann Karl Rodbertus, 1805-1875. One of Friedrich Engels' most penetrating economic insights came in the course of demolishing the labor-ticket-money utopian socialism of Rodbertus, a beloved figure in Germany at that time. Engels denounced the Rodbertus doctrine in a preface to the first German edition of Marx's The Poverty of Philosophy, the year after Marx's death, 1884. Here Engels had the impudence to condemn Rodbertus's labor money as childishly naive, and to press on to scorn Rodbertus for overlooking economic law and the competitive market process. To desire in a society of producers who exchange their commodities to establish the determination of value by labor time, by forbidding competition to establish this determination of value through pressure on prices in the only way in which it can be established, is therefore merely to prove that one has adopted the usual utopian disdain of economic laws. Engels goes on to assert that competition, by bringing into operation the laws of value of commodity production in a society of producers who exchange their commodities, creates the only possible organization of social production in the circumstances. Engels goes on to engage in a scornful and perceptive critique of socialist attempts at calculation, at the very least of the Rodbertus variety. Only through the undervaluation and overvaluation of products is it forcibly brought home to the individual commodity producers what things and what quantity of them society requires or does not require. But it is just this sole regulator that the utopia in which Rodbertus also shares would abolish. And if we have to ask what guarantee we have that the necessary quantity and not more of each product will be produced, that we shall not go hungry in regard to corn and meat while we are choked in beet sugar and drowned in potato spirit, that we shall not lack trousers to cover our nakedness while trouser buttons flood us in millions, Rodbertus triumphantly shows us his famous calculation, according to which the correct certificate has been handed out for every superfluous pound of sugar, for every unsold barrel of spirit, for every unusable trouser button, a calculation which works out exactly and according to which all claims will be satisfied and the liquidation correctly brought about. Engels adds that if now competition is to be forbidden to make the individual producers aware by the rise or fall of prices how the world market stands, then their eyes are completely blinded. 
Professor Hutchison's comment on this performance by Engels is all too apropos. Mises and Hayek could hardly have made the point more forcefully. What is most extraordinary is the combination of penetrating critical insight regarding the vital function of the competitive price mechanism as applied to the utopian notions of Rodbertus, together with the totally uncritical, purblind complacency regarding his own and Marx's utopian assumptions, as he himself had earlier revealed them in his Principles of Communism in such irresponsible vacuities as the joint and planned exploitation of the forces of production by society as a whole, the hordes of infallible Prussian officials and the Prussian state socialism for relying on which Engels so castigates Rodbertus, would inevitably be required and, of course, have been deployed many times over for Engels and Marx's own utopian planning. But such few perceptions on the part of Engels come under the category of what he himself once called howlers, Apart from them, ultimate communism was naively to achieve the transcendence of both work and the division of labor. But that is not all. Along with the transcendence and negation of private property will come the negation of virtually all aspects of modern civilization, which Marx also considered subsidiary modes of production, alienating man from his supposed true nature. Thus, religion, the family, the state, law, morality, science, art, etc., are only particular modes of production and fall under its general law. The positive transcendence of private property as the appropriation of human living is, therefore, the positive transcendence of all alienation, and thus the return of man from religion, the family, the state, etc., to his human, that is, social, existence. But if all these cherished institutions are to be rudely stripped from man— what then remains to this poor, liberated creature? For, make no mistake, these post-Marxian creatures would be deprived of all human interrelations that make up a society. These complete individuals would be deprived of law, family, custom, religion, and, of course, of all exchange of goods and services. That is, they would be complete, hermetically sealed creatures, each isolated from everyone else. Ironically, then, leftists who habitually, though falsely, denounce individualist thinkers for advocating a world of isolated, atomistic, hermetically sealed individuals, themselves worship a theorist whose vision of the ideal future is precisely of such a monstrous world. At the same time, of course, each will have the consolation of knowing that they are all trivial particles in a mighty collective organism, now united with itself, and that any vagueness or inconsistency in this picture will be resolved by the sorcery of the dialectic, in which all contradictions transcend their negations into a higher unity. 
What will allegedly be left to man under communism is a new and bizarre form of art, or aesthetics. Man will be stripped of wealth and possessions, but he will be far richer in another sense, unalienated and fulfilling himself in all directions. He will approach his own creations rich in the appreciation of beauty. He will be, in the words of Marx in Private Property and Communism, a rich man profoundly endowed with all the senses. He will realize his natural tendency to arrange all things according to the laws of beauty. Until communism, man's appreciation of beauty had been sullied by greed and possession. But for Marx, having, possessing, implies the simple alienation of all the physical and spiritual human senses. Professor Tucker, who has done much to explicate Marx's vision of communism, concludes that economic activity will turn into artistic activity, and the planet itself will become the new man's work of art. The alienated world will give way to the aesthetic world. But if ultimate communism abandons and eliminates all sense of having, of ownership, in order to liberate man for purely aesthetic creation and contemplation, then communism itself must be transcended, since even communism implies some form of having or possessing. As Tucker points out, consequently the final condition of man will be beyond all ownership, beyond the property principle, and, in this sense, beyond communism. Hence Marx ends his fullest discussion of communism, in Private Property and Communism, with these faintly ominous sentences. Communism is the position as the negation of the negation, and hence the actual phase necessary for the next stage of historical development in the process of human emancipation and recovery. Communism is the necessary pattern and the dynamic principle of the immediate future, but communism as such is not the goal of human development, the structure of human society. So what is the final stage, even beyond communism, the final, final Aufhebung, the great transcendence, the ultimate negation? It is a world beyond all ownership and all possession, a world fully liberated for the spontaneous flowering of all faculties in all directions, and for the unsullied, totally sensate appreciation of pure beauty. We may be pardoned for concluding that, wittingly or unwittingly, and with Marx it is difficult to know which, the final, final stage is the stage of the graveyard for the human race. After the turmoil and upheaval of all the Aufhebungs will come the peace of a universal cemetery. For no possession, no use of resources, means rapid and universal starvation. Deprived of all labor, for productive goals, and of all possessions, mankind will have precious little time left for the appreciation of pure beauty. Whether or not they saw the full horror of Marx's ultimate positive humanism, there is no doubt that the Soviets were always uneasy at the thought of this abyss. 
the Soviet editor of a Russian translation of Marx's manuscripts published in 1956 on analyzing the above passage, asserts that by communism as such, Marx meant raw communism of the initial stage. But this is almost a willful misinterpretation of Marx's final words on beyond the ultimate stage. The Soviets had trouble enough with the withering away of the state in the highest stage of communism, which to them meant at most a shift from official state ownership of all resources to ownership by social or administrative organizations, officially proclaimed as non-states. The reason that Marx suppressed the publication of this essay in his lifetime seems similar to the Soviets' burying of their allegedly final, final goal. To say that even the Marxist public is not yet ready for it is a rich understatement. One trusts that they never will be. In socialist practice, of course, while communist countries never got to the highest stage, there seemed to be little evidence of either a notable appreciation of beauty or of great spontaneous or artistic creativity. Perhaps even the relative physical deprivation, rather than the rapid and absolute starvation of beyond communism of twentieth-century socialist regimes, was responsible for the gray and grim caste universally acknowledged to pervade these countries. But of course all these problems are neatly buried by the pervasive but implicit premise underlying all of Marx's discussions of communism— the unsupported, unquestioned assumption that throughout all these changes, production remains happily abundant, if not superabundant. Hence, the economic problem is simply and quietly assumed away. Some might protest that in our discussion of communism we have not mentioned the feature that is generally considered the hallmark of that system— the slogan, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. This phrase seems to contradict our view that the essence of the communist society is a secularized religion rather than economics. The locus classicus, however, of Marx's proclamation of this well-known slogan of French socialism was in the course of his vitriolic Critique of the Gotha Program in 1875, in which Marx denounced the Lasallian deviationists who were forming the new German Social Democratic Party. And it is clear from the context of his discussion that this slogan is of minor and peripheral importance to Marx. In point three of his critique, Marx is denouncing the clause of the program calling for communization of property and equitable distribution of the proceeds of labor. In the course of his discussion, Marx states that inequality of labor income is inevitable in the first stage of communist society, when it has just emerged after prolonged birth pangs from capitalist society. Right can never be higher than the economic structure of society, and the cultural development thereby determined. On the other hand, Marx goes on, in a higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving subordination of individuals under division of labor, 
and therewith also the antithesis between mental and physical labor has vanished, after the productive forces have also increased with the all-round development of the individual, and all the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be fully left behind, and society inscribe on its banners, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs." It should be evident from this passage and its context that Marx's final sentence, far from being the point and the culmination of his discussion, was stated briefly only to be dismissed. What Marx is saying is that the key to the communist world is not any such principle of the distribution of goods, but the eradication of the division of labor, the all-round development of individual faculties, and the resulting flow of superabundance. In such a world, the famous slogan becomes of only trivial importance— Indeed, Marx proceeds immediately after this passage to denounce talk among socialists of equal right and equitable distribution as ideological nonsense about right and other trash common among the Democrats and French socialists. He then quickly adds that it was, in general, incorrect to make a fuss about so-called distribution and put the principal stress on it. The absolute misery and horror of the ultimate stage, and a fortiori of the beyond-ultimate stage of communism, should now be all too apparent. The eradication of the division of labor would quickly bring starvation and economic misery to all. The abolition of all structures of human interrelation would bring enormous social and spiritual deprivation to every person. And even the alleged artistic, intellectual, and creative development of all man's faculties in all directions would be totally crippled by the ban on all specialization. How can true intellectual development or creation come without concentrated effort? In short, the terrible economic suffering of mankind under communism would be fully matched by its intellectual and spiritual deprivation. Considering the nature and consequences of communism, to call this horrific dystopia a noble and humanist ideal can at best be considered a grisly joke in questionable taste. The prevalent notion, for example, that Marxian communism is a glorious ideal for man, perverted by the later Engels or by Lenin or Stalin, can now be put into proper perspective. None of the horrors committed by Lenin, Stalin, or other Marxist-Leninist regimes can match the monstrousness of Marx's communist ideal. Perhaps the closest approximation was the short-lived communist regime of Pol Pot in Cambodia, which, in attempting to abolish the division of labor, managed to enforce the outlawry of money so that for their tiny rations the populace was totally dependent upon the niggardly largesse of the communist cadre.
Moreover, they attempted to eliminate the contradictions between town and country by following the Engels' goal of destroying large cities and by coercively depopulating the capital, Phnom Penh, overnight. In a few short years, the Pol Pot group managed to exterminate one-third of the Cambodian population, perhaps a record in genocide. Since under ideal communism everyone could and would have to do everything, it is clear that even before universal starvation set in, very little could get done. To Marx himself, all differences among individuals were contradictions to be eliminated under communism, so that presumably the mass of individuals would have to be uniform and interchangeable. Whereas Marx apparently postulated normal intellectual capabilities even under communism, to later Marxists it seems that difficulties could be alleviated by the emergence of superhuman beings. To Karl Kautsky, 1854-1938, the German Marxist who assumed the mantle of the top leadership of Marxism upon the death of Engels in 1895, under communism a new type of man will arise, a superman, an exalted man. Leon Trotsky waxed even more lyrical. Man will become incomparably stronger, wiser, finer, his body more harmonious, his movements more rhythmical, his voice more musical. The human average will rise to the level of an Aristotle, a Goethe, a Marx. Above these other heights, new peaks will rise. If the beyond-ultimate stage of communism ever lasts long enough to breed a new super-race, we may safely leave it to the communist theoreticians of that future day to resolve the problem of whether the contradiction of permitting a super-Aristotle to tower over an Aristotle may be allowed to exist. Neither should libertarians be taken in by the Marxian goal of the withering away of the state under communism, or, in the use of the phrase, borrowed from the cherished aim of the French free-market libertarians Charles Comte and Charles Dunoyer, a world where the government of persons is replaced by the administration of things. There are two major flaws in this formulation from the laissez-faire libertarian viewpoint. First, of course, as the Russian anarcho-communist Mikhail Bakunin, 1814-1876, insistently pointed out, it is absurd to try to reach statelessness via the absolute maximization of state power in a totalitarian dictatorship of the proletariat, or, more realistically, a select vanguard of the said proletariat. The result can only be maximum statism, and hence maximum slavery. As perhaps the first of the new class theorists, and anticipating the iron law of oligarchy of Michel and Mosca, Bakunin prophetically warned that a minority ruling class will once again, after the Marxian revolution, rule the majority. But the Marxists say this minority will consist of the workers. Yes, no doubt. 
of former workers, who, as soon as they become governors or representatives of the people, cease to be workers, and start looking down on the working masses from the heights of state authority, so that they represent not the people, but themselves, and their own claim to rule over others. Anyone who can doubt this knows nothing of human nature. The terms scientific socialist and scientific socialism, which we meet incessantly in the works and speeches of the Marxists, are sufficient to prove that the so-called people's state will be nothing but a despotism over the masses, exercised by a new and quite small aristocracy of real or bogus scientists. They, the Marxists, claim that only dictatorship, their own, of course, can bring the people freedom. We reply that a dictatorship can have no other aim than to perpetuate itself, and that it can engender and foster nothing but slavery in the people subjected to it. Freedom can be created only by freedom." Indeed, only a believer in the preposterous necromancy of the dialectic could believe otherwise, that is, could believe that a totalitarian state can inevitably and virtually instantly be transformed into its opposite, and that therefore the way to get rid of the state is to work as hard as possible to maximize its power. But the problem of the dialectic is not the only, indeed not even the main problem with Marxian communism. For Marxism shares with the anarchists a grave problem of the higher stage of pure communism, assuming for a moment that it could ever be reached. The crucial point is that both for anarchists and for Marxists, ideal communism is a world without private property, and that all property and resources will be owned and controlled in common. Indeed, the anarcho-communists' major complaint against the state is that it is allegedly the main enforcer and guarantor of private property, and therefore that to abolish private property the state must also be eradicated. The truth, of course, is precisely the opposite. The state, through history, has been the main despoiler and plunderer of private property. With private property mysteriously abolished, then, the elimination of the state under communism, of either the Marxian or anarchist variety, would necessarily be a mere camouflage for a new state that would emerge to control and make decisions for community-owned resources, except that the state would not be called such, but rather renamed something like a People's Statistical Bureau, as has already been done in Qaddafi's Libya, and armed with precisely the same powers. It will be a small consolation to future victims, incarcerated or shot for committing capitalist acts between consenting adults, to cite a phrase made popular by Robert Nozick, that their oppressors will no longer be the state, but only a people's statistical bureau. The state under any other name will smell as acrid. Furthermore, it will be inevitable under the iron law of oligarchy that world communal decisions will have to be undertaken by a specialized elite, 
so that the ruling class will inevitably reappear under Bakuninite as well as any other form of communism. And, as we have indicated in the beyond-communism stage, the stage of universal no-ownership, and therefore of no action and no use of resources, death for the entire human race would swiftly ensue. Marx and his followers have never demonstrated any awareness of the vital importance of the problem of allocation of scarce resources— Their vision of communism is that all such economic problems are trivial, requiring neither entrepreneurship, nor a price system, nor genuine economic calculation, that all problems could be quickly solved by mere accounting or recording. The classic absurdity on this matter was laid down by Lenin, who accurately expressed Marx's view in declaring that the functions of entrepreneurship and of allocation of resources have been simplified by capitalism to the utmost, to mere matters of accounting, and to the extraordinarily simple operations of watching, recording, and issuing receipts within the reach of anybody who can read and write and knows the first four rules of arithmetic. Ludwig von Mises wryly and justly comments that Marxists and other socialists have had no greater perception of the essentials of economic life than the errand boy, whose only idea of the work of the entrepreneur is that he covers pieces of paper with letters and figures. It is perhaps all too fitting that we now find that the idea of communism as a simple problem of bookkeeping and registration was perhaps originated by the French apocalyptic fantast and inspirer of Marx, Théodore des Amis. 4. Arriving at Communism Karl Marx had a crucial problem. He was not interested, as were the scorned utopian socialists, in merely exhorting everyone to adopt the communist path to a perfect society. He did not propose to leave the attainment of communism to the imperfect free wills of mankind. He demanded a certain inevitable path, a law of history that would demonstrate the absolute inevitability of history's reaching its final glory in a communist society. But here he was at a disadvantage relative to the various Christian wings of messianic communism. For unlike them, there was here no inevitable Messiah to arrive and usher in a kingdom of God on earth. As in the case of the post-mills, however, it was up to mankind, rather than the Messiah, to establish the kingdom. Even without a Messiah, a vigilant and growing vanguard could establish the kingdom, and the vanguard could even help in various pre-mill versions of millennialism, so that leadership by a dedicated vanguard was very much in the messianic tradition. As Professor Tucker points out, Marx was not lacking a moral theory. He was definitely a moralist, but a highly curious one. In his mythic vision, the good, the moral, consists of participating in the inevitable triumph of the proletarian revolution, while the bad, or immoral, is trying to obstruct it. 
The answer to the question as to what should be done is given in the mythic vision itself and can be summed up in a single word, participate. So Marx says that it is not a matter of bringing some utopian system or other into being, that is, of defining a social goal and purposefully endeavoring to realize it, but simply of consciously participating in the historical revolutionary process of society, which is taking place before our very eyes. Thus, to be moral means to be progressive to be in tune with the inevitable future workings of the laws of history, whereas the harshest condemnation is reserved for those who are reactionary, who dare to obstruct, even with partial success, such alleged predestined turns of events. Thus Marxists are particularly vehement in denouncing revolutionary moments in which the existing rule of progressives is replaced by reactionaries, and the clock is, miraculously, in the metaphor of historicist inevitability, turned back. For example, the Franco Revolution against the Spanish Republic and Pinochet's overthrow of Allende in Chile. But if a certain change is truly inevitable, why is it important for human agency to lend a hand, indeed to struggle mightily on its behalf? Here we turn to the critical matter of timing. While a change may be inevitable, the intervention of man can and will speed up this most desired of happenings. Man can function, in one of Marx's favorite obstetrical metaphors, as a midwife of history. Man's intervention could give the inevitable a helpful push. Yet Marx's obstetrical analogies are only a feeble attempt to evade the self-contradiction between the idea of inevitability and action to achieve the inevitable. For according to Marx, the timing as well as the nature of events is determined by the material dialectic of history. Socialism is brought about, wrote Marx in Capital, by the operation of the imminent laws of capitalistic production itself. As von Mises points out, to Marx, ideas, political parties, and revolutionary actions are merely superstructural, they can neither delay nor accelerate the march of history. Socialism will come when the material conditions for its appearance will have matured in the womb, obstetrics again, of capitalist society, neither sooner or later. If Marx had been consistent, he would not have embarked upon any political activity, he would have waited quietly for the day on which the knell of private capitalist property sounds. Marx might not have been logical or consistent, but his attitude was squarely in the millennialist tradition. As Professor Tuvison points out, several characteristics of historical communist movements recall millenarian agitations— there is, for one, the well-known fanaticism of millenarian believers, the firm conviction that a sequence of events leading to universal redemption is ordained or determined, would seem to lead to passivity on the part of an individual. But, characteristically, there is a vitally important qualification, 
Although the series of events is prophesied, their timing may be retarded by the failure of mankind. To delay the coming of redemption, then, is a great sin against one's fellow beings, against posterity, against the power that has ordained events. But wholehearted zealous participation in the historically determined duties, doing what the old millenarians would call doing God's will, gives special éclat. In most millenarian groups there is something corresponding to the Communist Party. In Revelation itself there are the hundred and forty-four thousand, the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb, who are without guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Revelation 14, verses 4 through 5. Thus the whole proletariat, like the whole body of the saved, is without damning fault, but the specially distinguished group are chosen from the chosen. But there was still a remaining problem. Whence comes the inevitability in the Marxian schema? The proof that his cherished communist ideal would inevitably, scientifically arrive, would occupy Marx for the rest of his life. Certainly he found the outlines of such proof in the mysterious workings of the Hegelian dialectic, which he bent to his use. 5. Marx's Character and His Path to Communism Karl Marx, as the world knows, was born in Trier, a venerable city in Rhineland, Prussia, in 1818, son of a distinguished jurist and grandson of a rabbi. Indeed, both of Marx's parents were descended from rabbis. Marx's father, Heinrich, was a liberal rationalist who felt no great qualms about his forced conversion to official Lutheranism in 1816. What is little known is that in his early years the baptized Karl was a dedicated Christian. In his graduation essays from the Trier Gymnasium in 1835, the very young Marx prefigured his later development. His essay on an assigned topic, on the union of the faithful with Christ, was Orthodox Evangelical Christian, but it also contained hints of the fundamental alienation theme that he would later find in Hegel. Marx's discussion of the necessity for union with Christ stressed that this union would put an end to the tragedy of God's alleged rejection of man. In a companion essay, Reflections of a Young Man on the Choice of a Profession, Marx expressed a worry about his own demon of ambition, of the great temptation he felt to inveigh against the deity and curse mankind. Going first to the University of Bonn and then off to the prestigious new University of Berlin to study law, Marx soon converted to militant atheism, shifted his major to philosophy, and joined a doctorklub of young or left Hegelians, of which he soon became a leader and general secretary. The shift to atheism quickly gave Marx's demon of ambition full reign. Particularly revelatory of Marx's adult as well as youthful character are volumes of poems, most of them lost until a few were recovered in recent years. 
Historians, when they discuss these poems, tend to dismiss them as inchoate romantic yearnings, but they are too congruent with the adult Marx's social and revolutionary doctrines to be casually dismissed. Surely here seems to be a case where a unified, early plus late Marx is vividly revealed. Thus, in his poem Feelings, dedicated to his childhood sweetheart and later wife, Jenny von Westphalen, Marx expressed both his megalomania and his enormous thirst for destruction. Heaven I would comprehend, I would draw the world to me. Living, hating, I intend that my star shine brilliantly. And Worlds I would destroy forever, since I can create no world, since my call they notice never. Here is a classical expression of Satan's supposed reason for hating and rebelling against God. In another poem, Marx writes of his triumph after he shall have destroyed God's created world. Then I will be able to walk triumphantly like a god through the ruins of their kingdom. Every word of mine is fire and action. My breast is equal to that of the Creator. And in his poem Invocation of One in Despair, Marx writes, I shall build my throne high overhead. Cold, tremendous shall its summit be. For its bulwark, superstitious dread. For its martial, blackest agony. The Satan theme is most explicitly set forth in Marx's The Fiddler, dedicated to his father. See this sword, the Prince of Darkness sold it to me. And with Satan I have struck my deal, he chalks the signs, beats time for me, I play the death march fast and free. Particularly instructive is Marx's lengthy, unfinished, poetic drama of this youthful period, Ulanem, a tragedy. In the course of this drama, his hero, Ulanem, delivers a remarkable soliloquy, pouring out sustained invective, a hatred of the world and of mankind, a hatred of creation, and a threat and vision of total world destruction. Thus Ulanum pours out his vials of wrath. I shall howl gigantic curses on mankind. Ha! Eternity! She is an eternal grief. Ourselves being clockwork, blindly mechanical, made to be the foul calendars of time and space, having no purpose save to happen, to be ruined, so that there shall be something to ruin. If there is a something which devours, I'll leap within it, though I bring the world to ruins. The world which bulks between me and the abyss, I will smash to pieces with my enduring curses. I'll throw my arms around its harsh reality. Embracing me, the world will dumbly pass away, and then sink down to utter nothingness, perished with no existence. That would be really living. And the leaden world holds us fast, and we are chained, shattered, empty, frightened, eternally chained to this marble block of being, and we, we are the apes of a cold god. All this reveals a spirit that often seems to animate militant atheism. 
In contrast to the non-militant variety, which expresses a simple disbelief in God's existence, militant atheism seems to believe implicitly in God's existence, but to hate Him and to wage war for His destruction. Such a spirit was all too clearly revealed in the retort of the militant atheist Bakunin to the famous pro-theist remark of the deist Voltaire. If God did not exist, it would be necessary to create him. To which the demented Bakunin retorted, If God did exist, it would be necessary to destroy him. It was this hatred of God as a creator greater than himself that apparently inspired Karl Marx. Also prefiguring the man was a trait that Marx developed early in his youth and never relinquished, a shameless sponging on friends and relatives. Already in early 1837, Heinrich Marx, castigating his son Karl's wanton spending of the money of others, wrote to him that, on one point you have wisely found fit to observe an aristocratic silence, I am referring to the paltry matter of money. Indeed, Marx took money from any source available, his father, mother, and throughout his adult life, his long-suffering friend and abject disciple Friedrich Engels, all of whom fueled Marx's capacity for spending money like water. An insatiable spender of other people's money, Marx continually complained about a shortage of financial means. While sponging on Engels, Marx perpetually complained to his friend that his largesse was never enough. Thus, in 1868, Marx insisted that he could not make due on an annual income of less than 400 to 500 pounds, a phenomenal sum, considering that the upper tenth of Englishmen in that period were earning an average income of only 72 pounds a year. Indeed, so profligate was Marx that he quickly ran through an inheritance from a German follower of 824 pounds in 1864, as well as a gift of 350 pounds from Engels in the same year. In short, Marx was able to run through the munificent sum of almost 1,200 pounds in two years, and two years later accept another gift of 210 pounds from Engels to pay off his newly accumulated debts. Finally, in 1868, Engels sold his share of the family cotton mill and settled upon Marx an annual pension of 350 pounds from then on. Yet Marx's continual complaints about money did not abate. As in the case of many other spongers and cadgers throughout history, Karl Marx affected a hatred and contempt for the very material resource he was so anxious to cadge and use so recklessly. The difference is that Marx created an entire philosophy around his own corrupt attitudes toward money. Man, he thundered, was in the grip of the fetishism of money. The problem was the existence of this evil thing, not the voluntarily adopted attitudes of some people toward it. Money, Marx reviled as the pander between human life and the means of sustenance, the universal whore. The utopia of communism was a society where this scourge, money, would be abolished.
Karl Marx, the self-proclaimed enemy of the exploitation of man by man, not only exploited his devoted friend Friedrich Engels financially, but also psychologically. Thus, only three months after Marx's wife, Jenny von Westphalen, gave birth to his daughter, Franziska, in March 1851, their live-in maid, Helena Lenken de Moot, whom Marx had inherited from Jenny's aristocratic family, also gave birth to Marx's illegitimate son, Henry Frederick. Desperately anxious to keep up haute bourgeois conventions and to hold his marriage together, Karl never acknowledged his son, and instead persuaded Engels, a notorious womanizer, to proclaim the baby as his own. Both Marx and Engels treated the hapless Freddy extremely badly. Engels presumed resentment at being so used, providing him a rather better excuse. Marx boarded Freddy out continually and never allowed him to visit his mother. As Fritz Raddatz, a biographer of Marx, declared, if Henry Frederick de Moot was Karl Marx's son, the new mankind's preacher lived an almost lifelong lie and scorned, humiliated, and disowned his only surviving son. Engels, of course, picked up the tab for Freddy's education. Freddy was trained, however, to take his place in the working class, far from the lifestyle of his natural father, the quasi-aristocratic leader of the world's downtrodden revolutionary proletariat. Marx's personal taste for the aristocracy was lifelong. As a young man, he attached himself to his neighbor, Jenny's father, Baron Ludwig von Westphalen, and dedicated his doctoral thesis to the Baron. Indeed, the snobbish proletarian communist always insisted that Jenny imprint Ne von Westphalen on her calling card. Chapter 11 Alienation, Unity, and the Dialectic 1. Origins of the Dialectic Creatology Alienation to Marx bears no relation to the fashionable prattle of late-twentieth-century Marxoid intellectuals. It did not mean a psychological feeling of anxiety or estrangement, which could somehow be blamed on capitalism or on cultural or sexual repression. Alienation for Marx was far more fundamental, more cosmic. It meant, at the very least, as we have seen, the institutions of money, specialization, and the division of labor. The eradication of these evils was necessary to unite the collective organism or species man to himself, to heal these splits within himself and between man and himself in the form of man-created nature. But the radical evil of alienation was yet far more cosmic than that. It was metaphysical, a deep part of the philosophy and the worldview that Marx picked up from Hegel, and which, through its allied dialectic, brought to Marx the outlines of the engine that would inevitably bring us communism as a law of history, with the ineluctability of a law of nature. It all started with the third-century philosopher Plotinus, a Platonist philosopher, and his followers, and with a theological discipline seemingly remote from political and economic affairs, creatology, 
The Science of the First Days We have already seen, in fact, that another allied and almost equally remote branch of theology, eschatology, or the science of the last days, can have enormous political and economic consequences and ramifications. The critical question of creatology is, why did God create the universe? The answer of Orthodox Augustinian Christianity, and hence the answer of Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists alike, is that God, a perfect being, created the universe out of benevolence and love for His creatures. Period. And this seems to be the only politically safe answer as well. The answer given by heretics and mystics from early Christians on, however, is quite different. God created the universe not out of perfection and love, but out of felt need and imperfection. In short, God created the universe out of felt uneasiness, loneliness, or whatever. In the beginning, before the creation of the universe, God and man, the collective organic species, of course, not any particular individual, were united in one, so to speak, cosmic blob. How we can even speak of unity between man and God before man was even created is a conundrum that will have to be cleared up by someone more schooled in the divine mysteries than the present author. At any rate, history then becomes a process, indeed a preordained process, by which God develops his potential and man, the collective species, develops its, or his, potential. But even as this development takes place, and both God and man develop and render themselves more perfect in and through history, offsetting this good development, a terrible and tragic thing has also taken place. Man has been separated, cut off, alienated from God, as well as from other men or from nature. Hence the pervasive concept of alienation. Alienation is cosmic, irremediable, and metaphysical, inherent in the very process of creation, or, rather, irremediable until the great day inevitably arrives, when man and God, having both fully developed themselves, finish the process and history itself by re-merging, by uniting once again in the merger of these two great cosmic blobs into one. Note first how this great historical process comes about. It is the inevitable, preordained, dialectical process of history. There are, as usual, three stages. Stage one is the original phase. Man and God are in happy and harmonious unity, a unity of pre-creation. But things, particularly with the human race, are rather undeveloped. Then the magical dialectic does its work. Stage two occurs, and God creates man and the universe, both God and man developing their potentials, with history a record and a process of such development. But creation, as in most dialectics, proves to be a two-edged sword, for man suffers from his cosmic separation and alienation from God. For Plotinus, for example, the good is unity, or the one, 
whereas evil is identified as any sort of diversity or multiplicity. In mankind, evil stems from self-centeredness of individual souls, deserters from the all. But then, finally, at long last, the development process will be completed, and stage two develops its own Aufhebung, its own lifting up, its own transcendence into its opposite or negation, the reunion of God and man into a glorious unity, an ecstasy of union, and end to alienation. In this stage, three, the blobs are reunited on a far higher level than in stage one. History is over, and they shall all live happily ever after. But note the enormous difference between this dialectic of creatology and eschatology and that of the orthodox Christian scenario. In the first place, the alienation, the tragedy of man in the dialectical saga from Plotinus to Hegel, is metaphysical, inescapable from the act of creation itself. Whereas the estrangement of man from God in the Judeo-Christian saga is not metaphysical, but only moral. To Orthodox Christians, creation was purely good and not deeply tainted with evil. Trouble came only with Adam's fall, a moral failure, not a metaphysical one. Then, in the Orthodox Christian view, through the incarnation of Jesus, God provided a route by which this alienation could be eliminated, and the individual could achieve salvation. But note again, Christianity is a deeply individualistic creed, since each individual's salvation is what matters. Salvation, or the lack of it, will be attained by each individual. Each individual's fate is the central concern, not the fate of the alleged collective blob or organism, man with a capital M. In the Orthodox Christian schema, each individual goes to heaven or hell. But in this allegedly optimistic mystical view, nowadays called process theology, the only salvation, the only happy ending, is that of the collective organism, the species, with each individual member of that organism being brusquely annihilated along the way. This dialectical theology, in particular its creatology, began in full flower with the Plotinus-influenced ninth-century Christian mystic John Scotus Erigena, circa 815 to circa 877, an Irish-Scottish philosopher located in France, and continued through a heretical underground of Christian mystics, in particular such as the 14th-century German Meister Johannes Eckhart, approximately 1260 to approximately 1327. The pantheistic outlook of the mystics was similar to the call of the Buddhist-theosophist-socialist Mrs. Annie Besant, as Chesterton perceptively and wittily noted, not to love our neighbor, but to be our neighbor. Pantheist mystics call upon each individual to unite with God, the One, by annihilating his individual, separated, and therefore alienated self. While the means of various mystics may differ from the Joachites or the Brethren of the Free Spirit, 
whether through a process of history or through the inevitable Armageddon, the goal remains the same, obliteration of the individual through reunion with God, the One, and the ending of cosmic alienation, at least on the level of each individual. Particularly influential for G.W.F. Hegel and other thinkers in this tradition was the early 17th-century German cobbler and mystic Jakob Böhme, 1575-1624, who added to this heady pantheistic brew the alleged mechanism, the force that drives this dialectic through its inevitable course in history. How, Burma asked, did the world of pre-creation transcend itself into creation? Before creation, he answered, there was a primal source, an eternal unity, an undifferentiated, indistinct, literal nothing, ungrunt. It was, by the way, typical of Hegel and his idealist followers to think that they add grandeur and explanation to a lofty but unintelligible concept by capitalizing it. Oddly enough, to Burma, this no-thing possessed within itself an inner striving, a nisus, a drive for self-realization. It is this drive which creates a transcending and opposing force, the will, which creates the universe, transforming the nothing into something. 2. Hegel and the Man-God The key step in secularizing dialectic theology, and thus in paving the way for Marxism, was taken by the lion of German philosophy, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, 1770-1831, Born in Stuttgart, Hegel studied theology at the University of Tübingen, and then taught theology and philosophy at the universities of Jena and Heidelberg, before becoming the leading philosopher at the new jewel in the Prussian academic crown, the University of Berlin. Coming to Berlin in 1817, Hegel remained there until his death, ending his days as rector of the university. In the spirit of the Romantic movement in Germany, Hegel pursued the goal of unifying man and God by virtually identifying God as man, and thereby submerging the former into the latter. Goethe had recently popularized the Faust theme, centering on Faust's intense desire for divine or absolute knowledge, as well as divine power. In Orthodox Christianity, of course, the overweening pride of man in trying to achieve godlike knowledge and power is precisely the root cause of sin and man's fall. But, on the contrary, Hegel, a most heretical Lutheran indeed, had the temerity to generalize the Faustian urge into a world philosophy, and into an alleged insight into the inevitable workings of the historical process. In Professor Tucker's words, Hegelianism was a philosophic religion of self in the form of a theory of history. The religion is founded on an identification of the self with God. It should not be necessary to add at this point that the self here is not the individual, but the collective organic species, self. 
In a youthful essay on the positivity of the Christian religion, written at the age of twenty-five, Hegel revealingly objects to Christianity for separating man and God except in one isolated individual, Jesus, and placing God in another and higher world, to which man's activity could contribute nothing. Four years later, in 1799, Hegel resolved this problem by offering his own religion, in his The Spirit of Christianity. In contrast to Orthodox Christianity, in which God became man in Jesus, for Hegel, Jesus' achievement was, as a man, to become God. Tucker sums this up neatly. To Hegel, Jesus is not God become man, but man become God. This is the key idea on which the entire edifice of Hegelianism was to be constructed. There is no absolute difference between the human nature and the divine. They are not two separate things with an impassable gulf between them. The absolute self in man, the homo noumenon, is not mere godlike. It is God. Consequently, insofar as man strives to become like God, he is simply striving to be his own real self, and in deifying himself he is simply recognizing his own true nature. If man is really God, what then is history? Why does man, or rather do men, change and develop? Because the man-god is not perfect, or at least he does not begin in a perfect state. Man-god begins his life in history, totally unconscious of his divine status. History, then, for Hegel, is a process by which the man-god increases his knowledge, until he finally reaches the state of absolute knowledge, that is, the full knowledge and realization that he is God. In that case, man-god finally realizes his potential of an infinite being without bounds, possessed of absolute knowledge. Why, then, did man-god, also termed by Hegel the world-self, Weltgeist, or world-spirit, create the universe? Not, as in the Christian account, from overflowing love and benevolence, but out of a felt need to become conscious of itself as a world self. This process of growing consciousness is achieved through creative activity, by which the world self externalized itself. This externalization occurs first by creating nature, or the original world. But second, and here, of course, is a significant addition to other theologies, there is a continuing self-externalization through human history. The most important is this second process, for by this means man, the collective organism, expands his building of civilization, his creative externalizing, and hence his increasing knowledge of his own divinity, and therefore of the world as his own self-actualization. This latter process, of knowing ever more fully that the world is really man's self, is the process which Hegel terms the gradual putting to an end of man's self-alienation, which, of course, for him, was also the alienation of man from God.
To Hegel, in short, man perceives the world as hostile because it is not himself, because it is alien. All these conflicts are resolved when he realizes at long last that the world really is himself. This process of realization is Hegel's Aufhebung, by which the world becomes de-alienated and assimilated to man's self. But why, one might ask, is Hegel's man so odd, so neurotic, that he regards everything that is not himself as alien and hostile? The answer is crucial to the Hegelian mystique. It is because Hegel, or Hegel's man, cannot stand the idea of himself not being God, and therefore not being of infinite space and without limits. Seeing any other being or any other object exist would mean that he himself is not infinite or divine. In short, Hegel's philosophy is severe and cosmic solipsistic megalomania on a grand and massive scale. Professor Tucker develops the case with characteristic acuity. For Hegel, alienation is finitude, and finitude, in turn, is bondage. The experience of self-estrangement in the presence of an apparent objective world is an experience of enslavement. Spirit, or the world self, when confronted with an object or other, is ipso facto aware of itself as merely finite being, as embracing only so much and no more of reality, as extending only so far and no farther. The object is, therefore, a limit, grenze, and a limit, since it contradicts spirit's notion of itself as absolute being, that is, being without limit, is necessarily apprehended as a barrier, or fetter, schranke. It is a barrier to spirit's awareness of itself as that which it conceives itself truly to be, the whole of reality. In its confrontation with an apparent object, spirit feels imprisoned in limitation. It experiences what Hegel calls the sorrow of finitude. The transcendence of the object through knowing is spirit's way of rebelling against finitude and making the break for freedom. In Hegel's quite unique conception of it, freedom means the consciousness of self as unbounded, it is the absence of a limiting object or non-self. This consciousness of being alone with self is precisely what Hegel means by the consciousness of freedom. Accordingly, the growth of spirit's self-knowledge in history is alternatively describable as a progress of the consciousness of freedom. 3. Hegel and Politics Typically, determinist schema leave convenient implicit escape hatches for their creators and advocates, who are somehow able to rise above the iron determinism that afflicts the rest of us. Hegel was no different, except that his escape hatches were all too explicit. 
While God and the Absolute refer to man as collective organism rather than to its puny and negligible individual members, every once in a while great individuals arise, world-historical men, who are able to embody attributes of the Absolute more than others, and act as significant agents in the next big historical Aufhebung the next great thrust into the man-god or world-soul's advance in its self-knowledge. Thus, during a time when most patriotic Prussians were reacting violently against Napoleon's imperial conquests and mobilizing their forces against him, Hegel reacted very differently. Hegel wrote to a friend in ecstasy about having personally seen Napoleon riding down the city street. The Emperor this world soul riding on horseback through the city to the review of his troops, it is indeed a wonderful feeling to see such a man. Hegel was enthusiastic about Napoleon because of his world historical function of bringing the strong state to Germany and the rest of Europe. Just as Hegel's fundamental eschatology and dialectic prefigured Marxism, so did his more directly political philosophy of history. Thus, following the Romantic writer Friedrich Schiller, Hegel, in an essay in 1795, claimed that the equivalent of early or primitive communism was ancient Greece. Schiller and Hegel lauded Greece for the alleged homogeneity, unity, and harmony of its polis, which both authors gravely misconceived as being free of all division of labor. The consequent Aufhebung disrupted this wonderful unity and fragmented man. But, the good side of the new historical stage, it did lead to the growth of commerce, living standards, and individualism. For Hegel, moreover, the coming stage, heralded by Hegel's philosophy, would bring about a reintegration of man and the state. Before 1796, Hegel, like many other young intellectuals throughout Europe, was enchanted by the French Revolution, individualism, radical democracy, liberty, and the rights of man. Soon, however, again like many European intellectuals, Hegel, disillusioned in the French Revolution, turned toward reactionary state absolutism. In particular, Hegel was greatly influenced by the Scottish statist Sir James Stuart, a Jacobite exile in Germany for a large part of his life, whose inquiry into the principles of political economy, 1767, had been greatly influenced by the ultra-statist German 18th-century mercantilists, the Cameralists. Hegel read the German translation of Stuart's Principles, which had been published from 1769 to 1772, from 1797 to 1799, and took extensive notes. Hegel was influenced in particular by two aspects of Stuart's outlook. One held that history proceeded in stages, deterministically evolving from one stage, nomadic, agricultural, exchange, etc., to the next. The other influential theme was that massive state intervention and control were necessary to maintain an exchange economy. It comes as no surprise that Hegel's main disillusion in the French Revolution came from its individualism and lack of unity under the state. 
Again, foreshadowing Marx, it became particularly important for man, the collective organism, to surmount unconscious blind fate and consciously to take control of his fate via the state. And so Hegel was a great admirer not only of Napoleon the mighty world conqueror, but also Napoleon the detailed regulator of the French economy. Hegel made quite evident that what the new developing strong state really needed was a comprehensive philosophy, contributed by a great philosopher, to give its mighty rule coherence and legitimacy. Otherwise, as Professor Plant explains, such a state, devoid of philosophical comprehension, would appear as a merely arbitrary and oppressive imposition of the freedom of individuals to pursue their own interest. We need make only one guess as to what that philosophy or who that great philosopher was supposed to be. And then, armed with Hegelian philosophy and Hegel himself as its fountainhead and great leader, this alien aspect of the progressive modern state would disappear, and would be seen not as an imposition but a development of self-consciousness. By regulating and codifying many aspects of social practice, it gives to the modern world a rationality and a predictability which it would not otherwise possess. Armed with such a philosophy and with such a philosopher, the modern state would take its divinely appointed stand at the height of history and civilization, as God on earth. Thus, the modern state, proving the reality of political community, when comprehended philosophically, could therefore be seen as the highest articulation of spirit, or God, in the contemporary world. The state, then, is a supreme manifestation of the activity of God in the world, and the state stands above all. It is spirit which knows itself as the universal essence and reality, and the state is the reality of the kingdom of heaven, and, finally, the state is God's will. Of the various forms of state, monarchy is best, since it permits all subjects to be free in the Hegelian sense by submerging their being into the divine substance, which is the authoritarian monarchical state. The people are only free when they are insignificant particles of this unitary divine substance, as Tucker writes, Hegel's conception of freedom is totalitarian in a literal sense of the word. The world self must experience itself as the totality of being, or, in Hegel's own words, must elevate itself to a self-comprehending totality, in order to achieve the consciousness of freedom. Anything short of this spells alienation and the sorrow of finitude. According to Hegel, the final development of the man-god, the final breakthrough into totality and infinity, was at hand. The most highly developed state in the history of the world was now in place, the existing Prussian monarchy under King Friedrich Wilhelm III. It so happened that Hegel's apotheosis of the existing Prussian monarchy neatly coincided with the needs of that monarch.
When King Friedrich Wilhelm III established the new University of Berlin in 1818 to assist in supporting and propagandizing for his absolute power, what better person for the chair of philosophy than Friedrich Hegel, the divinizer of state power? The king and his absolutist party needed an official philosopher to defend the state from the hated revolutionary ideals of the French Revolution, and to justify his purge of the reformers and classical liberals who had helped him defeat Napoleon. As Karl Popper puts it, Hegel was appointed to meet this demand, and he did so by reviving the ideas of the first great enemies of the open society, especially Heraclitus and Plato. Hegel rediscovered the Platonic ideas which lie behind the perennial revolt against freedom and reason. Hegelianism is the renaissance of tribalism. Hegel is the missing link, as it were, between Plato and the modern forms of totalitarianism. Most of the modern totalitarians know of their indebtedness to Hegel, and all of them have been brought up in the close atmosphere of Hegelianism. They have been taught to worship the state, history, and the nation. On Hegel's worship of the state, Popper cites chilling and revealing passages. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. We must therefore worship the state as the manifestation of the divine on earth. The state is the march of God through the world. The state must be comprehended as an organism. To the complete state belongs, essentially, consciousness and thought. The state knows what it wills. The state exists for its own sake. The state is the actually existing, realized, moral life. All this rant is well characterized by Popper as bombastic and hysterical Platonism. Much of this was inspired by Hegel's friends and immediate philosophical predecessors, men like the later Fichte, Schelling, Schlegel, Schiller, Herder, and Schleiermacher, but it was Hegel's particular task to turn his murky doctrines to the job of weaving apologetics for the absolute power of the extant Prussian state. Thus Hegel's admiring disciple, F. J. C. Schwegler, revealed the following in his History of Philosophy. The fullness of his, Hegel's, fame and activity, however, properly dates only from his call to Berlin in 1818. Here there rose up around him a numerous, widely extended, and exceedingly active school. Here, too, he acquired from his connections with the Prussian bureaucracy political recognition of his system as the official philosophy, not always to the advantage of the inner freedom of his philosophy or of its moral worth. With Prussia as the central focus, Hegelianism was able to sweep German philosophy during the 19th century, dominating in all but the Catholic areas of southern Germany and Austria. As Popper put it, having thus become a tremendous success on the continent, Hegelianism could hardly fail to obtain support in Britain from those who felt that such a powerful movement must, after all, have something to offer.
Indeed, the man who first introduced Hegel to English readers, Dr. J. Hutchinson Sterling, admiringly remarked the year after Prussia's lightning victory over Austria, Is it not indeed to Hegel, and especially his philosophy of ethics and politics, that Prussia owes that mighty life and organization she is now rapidly developing? Finally, Hegel's contemporary and acquaintance, Arthur Schopenhauer, denounced the state philosophy alliance that drove Hegelianism into becoming a powerful force in social thought. Philosophy is misused, from the side of the state as a tool, from the other side as a means of gain. Who can really believe that truth also will thereby come to light just as a byproduct? Governments made of philosophy a means of serving their state interests, and scholars made of it a trade. In addition to the political influence, Popper offers a complementary explanation for the otherwise puzzling widespread influence of G.W.F. Hegel. The attraction of philosophers to high-sounding jargon and gibberish almost for its own sake followed by the gullibility of a credulous public. Thus Popper cites a statement by the English Hegelian Sterling. The philosophy of Hegel, then, was a scrutiny of thought so profound that it was, for the most part, unintelligible. Profound for its very unintelligibility. Lack of clarity as virtue and proof of profundity. Popper adds, Philosophers have kept around themselves, even in our day, something of the atmosphere of the magician. Philosophy is considered a strange and abstruse kind of thing, dealing with those things with which religion deals, but not in a way which can be revealed unto babes or to common people. It is considered to be too profound for that, and to be the religion and the theology of the intellectuals, of the learned and wise. Hegelianism fits these views admirably. It is exactly what this popular superstition supposes philosophy to be. 4. Hegel and the Romantic Age G.W.F. Hegel, unfortunately, was not a bizarre aberrant force in European thought. He was only one, if the most influential and the most convoluted and hypertrophic, of what must be considered the dominant paradigm of his age, the celebrated Age of Romanticism. In different variants and in different ways, the Romantic writers of the first half of the nineteenth century, especially in Germany and Great Britain, poets and novelists as well as philosophers, were dominated by a similar creatology and eschatology. It might be termed the alienation and return, or reabsorption myth. God created the universe out of imperfection and felt need, thereby tragically cutting man, the organic species, off from his, its, pre-creation unity with God. While this transcendence, this Aufhebung of creation, has permitted God and man, or God-man, to develop their, its, faculties, and to progress, tragic alienation will continue until that day, inevitable and determined, in which God and man will be fused into one cosmic blob. 
or rather, being pantheists, as was Hegel, until man discovers that he is man-god, and the alienation of man from man, man from nature, and man from God will be ended, as all is fused into one big blob, the discovery of the reality of, and therefore the merger into, cosmic oneness. History, which has been predetermined towards this goal, will then come to an end. In the romantic metaphor, man, the generic organism, of course, not the individual, will at last return home. History is therefore an upward spiral towards man's determined destination, a return home, but on a far higher level than the original unity or home with God in the pre-creation epoch. The domination of the Romantic writers by this paradigm has been expounded brilliantly by the leading literary critic of Romanticism, M. H. Abrams, who points to this leading strain in English literature stretching from Wordsworth to D. H. Lawrence. Wordsworth, Abrams emphasizes, dedicated virtually his entire output to a heroic or high-romantic argument to an attempt to counter and transcend Milton's epical poem of an orthodox Christian view of man and God, to counter Milton's Christian view of heaven and hell as alternatives for individual souls, and of Jesus' second advent as putting an end to history and returning man to paradise, Wordsworth, in his own argument, counterpoises his pantheist vision of the upward spiral of history into cosmic unification and man's consequent return home from alienation. The eventual eschaton, the kingdom of God, is taken from its Christian placement in heaven and brought down to earth. Thereby, as always, when the eschaton is eminentized, creating spectacularly grave ideological, social, and political problems. Or, to use a concept of Abrams, the Romantic vision constituted the secularization of theology. Greek and Roman epics, Wordsworth asserted, sang of arms and the man, hitherto the only argument heroic deemed. In contrast, at the beginning of his great Paradise Lost, Milton declares, that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to man. Wordsworth now proclaimed that his own argument surpassing Milton's was instilled in him by God's holy powers and faculties, enabling him, presaging Marx's yearnings, to create his own world, even though he realized in an unwanted flash of realism that some called it madness. For there passed within him genius, power, creation, and divinity itself— Wordsworth concluded that this is, in truth, heroic argument, an argument not less but more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles. Other Englishmen steeped in the Wordsworthian paradigm were his worshipful follower Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, and even Blake, who, however, tried to blend Christianity and pantheism. All these writers had been steeped in Christian doctrine, from which they could spin off on their own heretical, pantheistic version of millennialism. Wordsworth himself had been trained to become an Anglican priest, 
Coleridge was a philosopher and a lay preacher who had been on the edge of becoming a Unitarian minister and was steeped in Neoplatonism and the works of Jacob Burma. Keats was an explicit disciple of the Wordsworthian program, which he called a means toward secular salvation, and Shelley, though an explicit atheist, idolized the sacred Milton above all other poets and was constantly steeped in study of the Bible. It should also be noted that Wordsworth, like Hegel, was a youthful enthusiast for the French Revolution and its liberal ideals, and later, disillusioned, turned to conservative statism and the pantheist version of inevitable redemption through history. The German Romantics were even more immersed in religion and mysticism than were their English counterparts. Hegel, Friedrich von Schelling, Friedrich von Schiller, Friedrich Hölderin, Johann Gottlieb Fichte were all theology students, most of them with Hegel at the University of Tübingen. All of them tried explicitly to apply religious doctrine to their philosophy. Novalis was immersed in the Bible. Furthermore, Hegel devoted a great deal of favorable attention to Burma in his Lectures on the History of Philosophy, and Schelling called Burma a miraculous phenomenon in the history of mankind. Moreover, it was Friedrich Schiller, Hegel's mentor, who was influenced by the Scot Adam Ferguson to denounce specialization and the division of labor as alienating and fragmenting man, and it was Schiller who influenced Hegel in the 1790s by coining the explicit concept of Aufhebung and the dialectic. In England, several decades later, the tempestuous conservative statist writer Thomas Carlyle paid tribute to Friedrich Schiller by writing a biography of that romantic writer in 1825. From then on, Carlyle's writings were permeated with the Hegelian vision. Unity is good, and diversity or separateness is evil and diseased. Science, as well as individualism, is division and dismemberment. Selfhood, Carlyle ranted, is alienation from nature, from others, and from oneself. But one day there will come the breakthrough, the spiritual rebirth, led by world historical figures, great men, by which man will return home to a friendly world by means of the utter cancellation, the annihilation of self, Selbsttutung. Finally, in Past and Present, 1843, Carlyle applied his profoundly anti-individualist and, one might add, anti-human vision to economic affairs. He denounced egoism, material greed, and laissez-faire, which, by fostering the severance of men from each other, had led to a world which has become a lifeless other, and in severance also from other human beings within a social order in which cash payment is the sole nexus of man with man. In opposition to this metaphysically evil cash nexus lay the familial relation with nature and fellow men, the relation of love. The stage was set for Karl Marx. 5. Marx and Left Revolutionary Hegelianism Hegel's death in 1831 inevitably ushered in a new and very different era in the history of Hegelianism. Hegel was supposed to bring about the end of history, but now Hegel was dead, and history continued to march on. 
So if Hegel himself was not the final culmination of history, then perhaps the Prussian state of Friedrich Wilhelm III was not the final stage of history either. But if it was not the final phase of history, then mightn't the dialectic of history be getting ready for yet another twist? Another Aufhebung? So reasoned groups of radical youth, who, during the late 1830s and 1840s in Germany and elsewhere, formed the movement of young or left Hegelians. Disillusioned in the Prussian state, the young Hegelians proclaimed the inevitable coming apocalyptic revolution to destroy and transcend that state, a revolution that would really bring about the end of history in the form of national or world communism. One of the first and most influential of the left Hegelians was a Pole, Count August Czeskowski, 1814-1894, who wrote in German and published in 1838 his Prolegomena to a Historiosophy. Czeskowski brought to Hegelianism a new dialectic of history, a new variant of the three ages of man— the first age, the age of antiquity, was, for some reason, the age of emotion, the epoch of pure feeling, of no reflective thought, of elemental immediacy and unity with nature. The spirit was in itself, an sich. The second age of mankind, the Christian era, stretching from the birth of Jesus to the death of the great Hegel, was the age of thought, of reflection, in which the spirit moved toward itself, in the direction of abstraction and universality. But Christianity, the age of thought, was also an era of intolerable duality, of man separated from God, of spirit separated from matter, and thought from action. Finally, the third and culminating age, the coming age, heralded by Count Czeskowski, was to be the age of action. In short, the third post-Hegelian age would be an age of practical action, in which the thought of both Christianity and of Hegel would be transcended and embodied into an act of will, a final revolution to overthrow and transcend existing institutions. For the term practical action, Czeskowski borrowed the Greek word praxis to summarize the new age, a term that would soon come to acquire virtually talismanic influence in Marxism. This final age of action would bring about at long last a blessed unity of thought and action, theory and praxis, spirit and matter, God and earth, and total freedom. Along with Hegel and the mystics, Czeskowski stressed that all past events, even those seemingly evil, were necessary to the ultimate and culminating salvation. In a work published in French in Paris in 1844, Czeskowski also heralded the new class destined to become the leaders of the revolutionary society, the intelligentsia, a word that had recently been coined by a German-educated Pole, B.F. Trentovsky, who had published his work in Prussian-occupied Poznan. Czeskowski thus heralded and glorified a development that would at least be implicit in the Marxist movement. After all, the great Marxists, including Marx, Engels, and Lenin, were all bourgeois intellectuals rather than children of the proletariat. 
If not in theory, this dominance of Marxist movements and governments by a new class of intelligentsia has certainly been the history of Marxism in praxis. This dominance by a new class has been noted and attacked from the beginnings of Marxism unto the present day, notably by the anarcho-communist Bakunin and by the Polish revolutionary Jan Vaclav Maczajski, 1866-1926, during and after the 1890s. It was also a similar insight into the German Social Democratic Party that prompted Robert Michels to abandon Marxism and develop his famous Iron Law of Oligarchy, that all organizations, whether private, governmental, or Marxist parties, will inevitably end up being dominated by a power elite. Chieskovsky, however, was not destined to ride the wave of the future of revolutionary socialism, for he took the Christian messianic rather than atheistic path to the new society. In his massive unfinished work of 1848, Our Father, Chieskovsky maintained that the new age of revolutionary communism would be a third age, an age of the Holy Spirit, shades of Joachism, an era that would bring a kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, Thus the final kingdom of God on earth would reintegrate all of organic humanity and would erase all national identities, with the world governed by a central government of all mankind, headed by a universal council of the people. But at the time the path of Christian messianism was not clearly destined to be a loser in the intra-socialist debate. Thus, Alexander Ivanovich Herzen, 1812-1870, a founder of the Russian revolutionary tradition, was entranced by Chieskovsky's brand of left Hegelianism, writing that the future society is to be the work not of the heart, but of the concrete. Hegel is the new Christ, bringing the word of truth to men. And soon Bruno Bauer, friend and mentor of Karl Marx, and the leader of the Doktorklub of young Hegelians at the University of Berlin, hailed the new philosophy of action in late 1841 as the trumpet call of the Last Judgment. But the winning strand in the European socialist movement, as we have indicated, was eventually to be Karl Marx's atheism. If Hegel had pantheized and elaborated the dialectic of Christian messianics, Marx now stood Hegel on his head by atheizing the dialectic and resting it not on mysticism or religion or spirit or the absolute idea or the world mind, but on the supposedly solid and scientific foundation of philosophical materialism. Marx adopted his materialism from the left Hegelian Ludwig Feuerbach, particularly his work on The Essence of Christianity, 1843. In contrast to the Hegelian emphasis on spirit, Marx would study the allegedly scientific laws of matter in some way operating through history. Marx, in short, took the dialectic and made it what we can call a materialist dialectic of history. A lot of unnecessary pother has been made about terminology here. Many Marxist apologists have fiercely maintained that Marx himself never used the term dialectical materialism, as if mere non-use of the terms lets Marx off the hook. 
and also that the concept only appeared in such later works of Engels as the Antidurung. But the Antidurung, published before Marx's death, was, like all other such writings of Engels, cleared with Marx first, and so we have to assume that Marx approved. The fuss stems from the fact that the term dialectical materialism was widely stressed by the Marxist-Leninist movement of the 1930s and 1940s, these days generally discredited. The concept was applied by Engels, who of the two founders was particularly interested in the natural sciences, to biology. Applied to biology, as Engels did in the Antidurung, Dialectical materialism has an unmistakably crazy air. In an ultra-Hegelian manner, logic and logical contradictions or negations are hopelessly confused with the processes of reality. Thus, butterflies come into existence from the egg through negation or transcendence of the egg. They are negated again as they die. And the barley corn is negated and is supplanted by the barley plant, the negation of the corn. The plant grows, is fructified, and produces again barley corns, and as soon as these are ripe, the ear withers away, is negated. As a result of this negation of the negation, we have gained the original barley corn, in a quantity ten, twenty, or thirty times larger. Furthermore, Marx himself, and not only Engels, was also very interested in Darwin and in biological science. Marx wrote to Engels that Darwin's work serves me as a basis in natural science for the class struggle in history, and that this is the book which contains the basis in natural history for our view. By recasting the dialectic in materialist and atheist terms, however, Marx gave up the powerful motor of the dialectic as it operated throughout history. Either Christian messianism, or providence, or the growing self-consciousness of the world spirit. How could Marx find a scientific materialist replacement, newly grounded in the ineluctable laws of history, that would explain the inevitability of the imminent apocalyptic transformation of the world into communism? It is one thing to base the prediction of a forthcoming Armageddon upon the Bible. It is quite another to deduce this event from allegedly scientific laws— Setting forth the specifics of this engine of history was to occupy Karl Marx for the rest of his life. Although Marx found Feuerbach indispensable for adopting a thoroughgoing atheist and materialist position, Marx soon found that Feuerbach had not gone nearly far enough. Even though Feuerbach was a philosophical communist, he basically believed that if man forswore religion, then his alienation from his self would be over. To Marx, religion was only one of the problems. The entire world of man, the Menschenwelt, was alienating and had to be radically overthrown root and branch. Only apocalyptic destruction of this world of man would permit true human nature to be realized. Only then would the existing unman, unmensch, truly become man, mensch. As Marx thundered in the fourth of his Theses on Feuerbach, 
one must proceed to destroy the earthly family as it is, both in theory and in practice. In particular, declared Marx, true man, as Feuerbach had argued, is a communal being, Gemeinwesen, or species being, Gattungswesen. Although the state as it exists must be negated or transcended, man's participation in the state operates as such a communal being. The main problem comes in the private sphere, the market, or civil society, in which unman acts as an egoist, as a private person, treating others as means, and not collectively as masters of their fate. And in existing society, unfortunately, civil society is primary, while the state or political community is secondary. What must be done to realize the full nature of mankind is to transcend the state and civil society by politicizing all of life, by making all of man's actions collective. Then, real individual man will become a true and full species being. But only a revolution, an orgy of destruction, can accomplish this task. And here Marx hearkened back to the call for total destruction that had animated his vision of the world in poems of his youth. Indeed, in a speech in London in 1856, Marx was to give graphic and loving expression to this goal of his praxis. He mentioned that in Germany in the Middle Ages there existed a secret tribunal called the Famegericht. He then explained, if a red cross was seen marked on a house, people knew that its owner was doomed by the fame. All the houses of Europe are now marked with the mysterious red cross. History is the judge, its executioner the proletarian. Marx, in fact, was not satisfied with the philosophical communism to which he and Engels had separately been converted by the slightly older left Hegelian Moses Hess, 1812-1875, in the early 1840s. To Hess's communism, Marx, by the end of 1843, added the crucial emphasis on the proletariat, not simply as an economic class, but as destined to become the universal class when communism was achieved. As we have indicated above, Marx actually acquired his vision of the proletariat as the key to the communist revolution from the 1842 work of Lawrence von Stein, an enemy of socialism, who interpreted the socialist and communist movements as rationalizations of the class interests of the proletariat. Marx discovered in Stein's attack the scientific engine for the inevitable coming of the communist revolution. The proletariat, the most alienated and allegedly propertyless class, would be the key. Marx had now worked out the outline of his secular messianic vision, a material dialectic of history with the final apocalyptic revolution to be achieved by the proletariat. But how specifically was this to be accomplished? Vision was not enough. What scientific laws of history could bring about this cherished goal? Fortunately, Marx had a crucial ingredient for his attempted solution close at hand, in the Saint-Simonian concept of human history as driven by an inherent struggle among economic classes. 
The class struggle, along with historical materialism, was to be an essential ingredient for the Marxian material dialectic. 6. Marx as Utopian Despite Marx's claim to be a scientific socialist, scorning all other socialists whom he dismissed as moralistic and utopian, it should be clear that Marx himself was even more in the messianic utopian tradition than were the competing utopians. For Marx not only sought a future society that would put an end to history— he claimed to have found the path towards that utopia inevitably determined by the laws of history. But a utopian, and a fierce one, Marx certainly was. A hallmark of every utopia is a militant desire to put an end to history, to freeze mankind in a static state, to put an end to diversity and man's free will, and to order everyone's life in accordance with the utopian's totalitarian plan. Many early communists and socialists set forth their fixed utopias in great and absurd detail, determining the size of everyone's living quarters, the food they would eat, etc. Marx was not silly enough to do that, but his entire system, as Thomas Molnar points out, is the search of the utopian mind for the definitive stabilization of mankind, or, in Gnostic terms, its reabsorption in the timeless, for Marx, his quest for utopia was, as we have seen, an explicit attack on God's creation and a ferocious desire to destroy it. The idea of crushing the many, the diverse facets of creation, and of returning to an allegedly lost unity with God, began, as we have seen, with Plotinus. As Molnar sums up, in this view, existence itself is a wound on non-being. Philosophers from Plotinus to Fichte and beyond have held that the reabsorption of the polychrome universe in the Eternal One would be preferable to creation. Short of this solution, they propose to arrange a world in which change is brought under control so as to put an end to a disturbingly free will and to society's uncharted moves. They aspire to return from the linear Hebrew-Christian concept to the Greco-Hindu cycle, that is, to a changeless, timeless permanence. The triumph of unity over diversity means that for the utopians, including Marx, civil society, with its disturbing diversity, can be abolished. Molnar then makes the interesting point that where Hayek and Popper rebut Marxism by demonstrating that no mind, not even that of a Politburo equipped with supercomputers, can overview the changes of the marketplace and its myriad components of individuals and their interactions, they miss the mark. Marx agrees with them. But he wants to abolish the marketplace and its economic as well as intellectual, legal, political, philosophical, religious, aesthetic components, so as to restore a simple world, a monochrome landscape. His economics is not economics, but an instrument of total control. All well and good. 
But, as the history of communist countries has shown, there are not many followers of Marx who are willing to settle for a world where no economic calculation is possible, and therefore where production collapses and universal starvation ensues. Substituting in Marx for God's will or the Hegelian dialectic of the world spirit or the absolute idea is monist materialism, in its central assumption, as Molnar puts it, that the universe consists of matter plus some sort of one-dimensional law imminent in matter. In that case, man himself is reduced to a complex but manipulable material aggregate, living in the company of other aggregates, and forming increasingly complex super-aggregates called societies, political bodies, churches. The alleged laws of history, then, are derived by scientific Marxists as supposedly evident and imminent within the matter itself. The Marxian process towards utopia, then, is man acquiring insights into his own true nature, and then rearranging the world to accord with that true nature. Engels, in fact, explicitly proclaimed the Hegelian concept of the man-god. Hitherto the question has always stood, what is God? And German Hegelian philosophy has resolved it as follows, God is man. Man must now arrange the world in a truly human way, according to the demands of his nature. But this process is rife with self-contradictions. For example, and centrally, how can mere matter gain insights into his, its, nature? As Molnar puts it, for how can matter gather insights? And if it has insights, it is not entirely matter, but matter plus. In this allegedly inevitable process of arriving at the proletarian communist utopia after the proletarian class becomes conscious of its true nature, what is supposed to be Karl Marx's own role? In Hegelian theory, Hegel himself is the final and greatest world historical figure, the man-god of man-gods. Similarly, Marx, in his view, stands at a focal point of history as the man who brought to the world the crucial knowledge of man's true nature and of the laws of history, thereby serving as the midwife of the process that would put an end to history. Thus Molnar, like other utopian and Gnostic writers, Marx is much less interested in the stages of history up to the present, the egotistic now of all utopian writers, than in the final stages, when the stuff of time becomes more concentrated, when the drama approaches its denouement. In fact, the utopian writer conceives of history as a process leading to himself, since he, the ultimate comprehensor, stands in the center of history. It is natural that things accelerate during his own lifetime and come to a watershed. He looms large between the before and the after. The achievement of the Marxist utopia is, moreover, dependent upon leadership and rule by the Marxian cadre, the possessors of the special knowledge of the laws of history, who will proceed to transform mankind into the new socialist man by the use of force. 
In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the existence of evil is accounted for by the free will of the individual. In monist, determinist systems, on the other hand, all history is supposed to be determined by fixed laws, and therefore evil can only be apparent, while really acting in a deeper sense as a servant of the higher good. All apparent evil must be truly good, and serve some sort of determined plan, whether it be the unfolding of the God-man or an atheistic version thereof. Coercing people by a cadre in order to create a new socialist man cannot be evil or unacceptable in a just society. On the contrary, it is the duty of the Marxist vanguard, they who are the servants of the next inevitable stage of history, to impose such a regime. This is a duty to history, that alleged entity to which the cadre are in service, and who, which, is destined to judge the actions of the past, to judge them as moral or immoral, as either advancing the birth of the allegedly inevitable historical future, or of thwarting such birth. In short, history or the cadre has the privilege and duty of judging any person or movement as being either progressive, that is, advancing the determined march of history, or reactionary, retarding that inevitable march. Chapter 12. The Marxian System 1. Historical Materialism and the Class Struggle. 1. The Marxian Strategy. Marx desperately sought a materialistic dialectic of history, a dialectic that would account for all basic historical change and would lead inevitably to communist revolution. Lacking a Burmian nisus, or mystical inner drive, to serve as motor of the dialectic, Marx had to fall back on class conflict embedded in historical materialism. But it was characteristic of Marx that this crucial area of the Marxian system, along with other important discussions, was presented not systematically, but in the course of fugitive paragraphs or even passages, here and there throughout the writings of Marx and Engels. The system has to be constructed out of these widely separated passages— as a result, or perhaps from the inherently grave weakness of the argument, Marx's terminology is invariably vague and fuzzy, and his allegedly law-like linkages of the dialectic virtually non-existent. Often they are mere unsupported assertion. As a result, the Marxian system is not only a tissue of fallacies, but of flimsy fallacies and linkages as well. No economic or social theory is obliged to come up with correct predictions in the sense of forecasts of the future. But the Marxian doctrine is different. Like pre-millennial pietists who are forever predicting an imminent Armageddon, Marx claims to come up with laws of history, which, according to him, are scientific rather than mystical. Well, if he knows the laws of history, then Marx had better come up with correct predictions of such allegedly determined laws. Yet all his predictions have proved utterly wrong. At this point, Marxists invariably fall back on changing the prediction, or pointing to some offsetting factor, seen only in hindsight, that temporarily delayed the prediction from coming true. 
Thus, as we shall see further below, one of Marx's predictions, crucial to the inevitable workings of the road to socialism, was that the working class would suffer increasing poverty and immiseration, when the working classes, in contrast, obviously continued to gain spectacularly in living standards in the Western world, Marxian apologists fell back on the assertion that Marx meant only poverty relative to the capitalist class. It is doubtful, however, whether bloody revolution will be waged by a proletariat for having only one yacht, while capitalists have a dozen each. Relative misery is a very different kettle of fish. The Marxists then came up with the view that Western workers' standards of living were rising because of a temporary delay brought about by Western imperialism, enabling Western workers to be capitalists relative to the exploited third world. The fact that Marx and Engels were themselves in favor of Western, particularly German, imperialism as a progressive force is usually passed over in silence by Marxian writers. On theoretical matters, the strategy of Marxists is similar. Increasingly, as crucial Marxian doctrines become evidently too absurd to be held seriously, for example, technological determinism of all life, or the labor theory of value, they are abandoned by the Marxists, who then proceed to maintain stubbornly that they are still Marxists, and that Marxism essentially still holds true. But this is the attitude of a mystical religious adept, rather than of a scientific or even a rational thinker. One crucial weapon wielded often by Marxists and by Marx himself was the dialectic. Since the dialectic allegedly means that the world and human society consist of conflicting or contradictory tendencies side by side or even within the same set of circumstances, any prediction can then be justified as the result of one's deep insight into whichever part of the contradictory dialectic might be prevailing at any given time. In short, since either A or non-A can occur, Marxians can safely hedge their bets so that no prediction of theirs can ever be falsified. It has been said that Jerry Healy, the absolute leader of the left-wing British Trotskyite movement until scandal brought him down in recent years, was able to maintain his power by claiming the power of exclusive insight into the mysterious workings of the dialectic and an outstanding example of hedging one's bets by Marx himself was described in a letter to Engels. Marx writes to Engels that he has just forecast something in his column for the New York Tribune. He adds cynically and revealingly, It is possible that I may be discredited, but in that case it will still be possible to pull through with the help of a bit of dialectic. It goes without saying that I phrased my forecasts in such a way that I would prove to be right also in the opposite case. 2. Historical Materialism There is no place in his system where Marx is fuzzier or shakier than at its base, the concept of historical materialism, the key to the inevitable dialectic of history. At the base of historical materialism and of Marx's view of history is the concept of the material productive forces. 
These forces are the driving power that creates all historical events and changes. So what are these material productive forces? This is never made clear. The best that can be said is that material productive forces mean technological methods. On the other hand, we are also faced with the term mode of production, which seems to be the same thing as material productive forces, or the sum of or systems of technological methods. At any rate, these material productive forces, these technologies and modes of production, uniquely and monocausally create all relations of production or social relations of production, independently of people's wills. These relations of production, also extremely vaguely defined, seem to be essentially legal and property relations. The sum of these relations of production somehow make up the economic structure of society. This economic structure is the base which causally determines the superstructure, which includes natural science, legal doctrines, religion, philosophies, and all other forms of consciousness. In short, at the bottom of the base is technology, which in turn constitutes or determines modes of production, which in turn determines relations of production, or institutions of law or property, and which finally in turn determine ideas, religious values, art, etc. How then do historical changes take place in the Marxian schema? They can only take place in technological methods, since everything else in society is determined by the state of technology at any one time. As Marx put it in the clearest and starkest statement of his technological determinist view of history, in his Poverty of Philosophy, in acquiring new productive forces, men change their mode of production, and in changing their mode of production, their means of gaining a living, they change all their social relations. The hand mill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. The first grave fallacy in this farrago is right at the beginning. Where does this technology come from? And how do technologies change or improve? Who puts them into effect? A key to the tissue of fallacies that constitute the Marxian system is that Marx never attempts to provide an answer. Indeed, he cannot, since if he attributes the state of technology or technological change to the actions of man, of individual men, his whole system falls apart. For human consciousness, and individual consciousness at that, would then be determining material productive forces, rather than the other way round. As von Mises points out, we may summarize the Marxian doctrine in this way. In the beginning there are the material productive forces, that is, the technological equipment of human productive efforts, the tools and machines. No question concerning their origin is permitted. They are, that is all. We must assume that they are dropped from heaven. And we may add, any changes in that technology must therefore be dropped from heaven as well. 
Furthermore, as von Mises also demonstrated, consciousness, rather than matter, is predominant in technology. A technological invention is not something material. It is the product of a mental process of reasoning and conceiving new ideas. The tools and machines may be called material, but the operation of the mind which created them is entirely spiritual. Marxian materialism does not trace back superstructural and ideological phenomena to material roots. It explains these phenomena as caused by an essentially mental process, namely invention. Machines are embodied ideas. In addition, technological processes do not only require inventions. They must be brought forth from the invention stage and be embodied in concrete machines and processes. But that requires savings and capital investment, as well as invention. But granting this fact, then the relations of production, the legal and property rights system in a society, help determine whether or not saving and investment will be encouraged and discouraged. Once again, the proper causal path is from ideas, principles, and the legal and property rights superstructure to the alleged base. Similarly, machines will not be invested in unless there is a division of labor of sufficient extent in a society. Once again, the social relations, the cooperative division of labor and exchange in society, determine the extent and development of technology, and not the other way round. In addition to these logical flaws, the materialist doctrine is factually absurd. Obviously, the hand mill, which ruled in ancient Sumer, did not give you a feudal society there. Furthermore, there were capitalist relations long before the steam mill. His technological determinism led Marx to hail each important new invention as the magical material productive force that would inevitably bring about the socialist revolution. Wilhelm Liebknecht, a leading German Marxist and friend of Marx, reported that Marx once attended an exhibition of electric locomotives in London, and delightedly concluded that electricity would give rise to the inevitable communist revolution. Engels carried technological determinism so far as to declare that it was the invention of fire that separated man from the animals. Presumably, the group of animals to whom fire somehow arrived were thereupon determined to evolve upward. The emergence of man himself was simply a part of the superstructure. Even granting Marx's thesis momentarily for the sake of argument, his theory of historical change still faces insuperable difficulties. For why can't technology, which somehow develops as an automatic given, simply and smoothly change the relations of production and the superstructure above it? Indeed, if the base at each moment of time determines the rest of the superstructure, how can a change in the base not smoothly determine an appropriate change in the rest of the structure? But again, a mysterious element enters the Marxian system. 
Periodically, as technology and the modes of production advance, they come into conflict, or, in the peculiar Hegelian-Marxian jargon, in contradiction to the relations of production, which continue in the conditions appropriate to the past time period and past technology. These relations therefore become fetters, blocking technological development. Since they become fetters on growth, the new technology gives rise to an inevitable social revolution that overthrows the old production relations and the superstructure and creates new ones that have been blocked or fettered. In this way, feudalism gives rise to capitalism, which in turn will give way to socialism. But if technology determines social production relations, what is the mysterious force that delays the change in those relations? It couldn't be human stubbornness or habit or culture, since we have already been informed by Marx that modes of production impel men to enter into social relations apart from their mere wills. As Professor Plaminatz points out, we are merely told that the relations of production become fetters on the productive forces. Marx merely asserts this point, and never even attempts to offer a cause, material or otherwise. As Plaminatz puts the entire problem, then, all of a sudden, without warning and without explanation, he, Marx, tells us that there nevertheless arises inevitably from time to time an incompatibility between them, the productive forces and the relations of production, which only social revolution can resolve. This incompatibility apparently arises because the dependent variable, the relations, begins to impede the free operation of the variable on which it depends, the material productive forces. This is an astounding statement, and yet Marx can make it without even being aware that it requires explanation. Professor Plaminatz has shown that part of the deep confusion is both generated and camouflaged by Marx's failure to define relations of production adequately. This concept apparently includes legal property relations. But if legal property relations were at fault in this dialectical delay and adjustment, thus setting up the fetters, then Marx would be conceding that the problem is really legal or political, rather than economic. But he wanted the determining base to be purely economic. The political and the ideological had to be merely part of the determined superstructure. So social relations of production, allegedly economic, were the fetters. But this can only make sense if this means the property rights or legal system. And so Marx got out of his dilemma by being so fuzzy and ambivalent about the relations of production that these relations could be taken either as including the property structure, as identical with that structure, or else the two might be totally separate entities. In particular, Marx accomplished his obscurantist purpose by asserting that the property rights system was part of the legal expression of the relations of production, 
thus somehow being able to be part of the superstructure and yet of the economic relations of production at the same time. Legal expression, needless to say, was not defined either. As Plamenatz summed up, the entire concept of relations of production, so necessary to the Marxian thesis of material or economic determinism, serves Marx as a ghost battalion closing a vital gap in the front of Marxian theory. Yet in all this there is no way that the concept of relations of production can make economic determinism intelligible and there is no way by which these relations can either be determined by the modes of production or can in themselves determine the property rights system. The only possible coherent chain of causation, in contrast, is the other way round. From ideas to property rights systems to the fostering or crippling the growth of saving and investment and of technological development. Twentieth-century Marxists, from Lucas to Genovese, have often tried to save the day from the embarrassment of the technological determinism of Marx and his immediate followers. They maintain that all sophisticated Marxists know that the causation is not unilinear, that the base and the superstructure really influence each other. Sometimes they try to torture the data to claim that Marx himself took such a sophisticated position. Either way, they are characteristically obfuscating the fact that they have, in reality, abandoned Marxism. Marxism is monocausal technological determinism, along with all the rest of the fallacies we have depicted, or it is nothing and it has demonstrated no inevitable or even likely dialectic mechanism. 3. The Class Struggle Even assuming that the unexplained incompatibility between the productive forces and the relations of production exists, why shouldn't this incompatibility continue forever? Why doesn't the economy simply lapse into permanent stagnation of the technological forces? This contradiction, so to speak, was scarcely enough to generate Marx's goal of the inevitable proletarian communist revolution. The answer that Marx supplies, the motor of the inevitable revolutions in history, is inherent class conflict, inherent struggles between economic classes. For in addition to the property rights system, one of the consequences of the relations of production, as determined by the productive forces, is the class structure of society. For Marx, the fetters are invariably applied by the privileged ruling classes, who somehow serve as surrogates for, or living embodiments of, the social relations of production and the legal property system. In contrast, another, inevitably rising economic class somehow embodies the oppressed or fettered technologies and modes of production. The contradiction between the fettered material productive forces and the fettering social relations of production thus becomes embodied in a determined class struggle between the rising and the ruling classes, which are bound by the inevitable material dialectic of history to result in a triumphant revolution by the rising class. 
The successful revolution at last brings the relations of production and the material productive forces, or technological system, into harmony. All is then peaceful and harmonious until later, when further technological development gives rise to new contradictions, new fetters, and a new class struggle to be won by the rising economic class. In that way, feudalism, determined by the hand mill, gives rise to middle classes when the steam mill develops, and the rising middle classes, the living surrogates of the steam mill, overthrow fetters imposed by the feudal landlord class. Thus the material dialectic takes one socio-economic system, say feudalism, and claims that it gives rise to its opposite, or negation, and its inevitable replacement by capitalism, which thus negates and transcends feudalism. And in the same way, electricity, or whatever, will inevitably give rise to a proletarian revolution which will permit electricity to triumph over the fetters that capitalists place upon it. It is difficult to state this position without rejecting it immediately as drivel. In addition to all the flaws in historical materialism we have seen above, there is no causal chain that links a technology to a class, or that permits economic classes to embody either technology or its production relations fetters. There is no proffered reason why such classes must, or even plausibly might, act as determined puppets for or against new technologies. Why must feudal landlords try to suppress the steam mill? Why can't feudal landlords invest in steam mills? And why can't capitalists cheerfully invest in electricity, as they already have in steam? Indeed, they have, in fact, happily invested in electricity and in all other successful and economical technologies, as well as bringing them about in the first place. Why are capitalists inevitably oppressed under feudalism, and why are the proletariat equally inevitably oppressed under capitalism? On Marx's attempt to answer the latter question, see below. If, finally, class struggle and the material dialectic bring about an inevitable proletarian revolution, why does the dialectic, as Marx, of course, maintains, at that point come to an end? For crucial to Marxism, as to other millennial and apocalyptic creeds, is that the dialectic can by no means roll on forever. On the contrary, the Kiliast, whether pre- or post-millennial, invariably sees the end of the dialectic, or the end of history, as imminent. Very soon, imminently, the Third Age, or the return of Jesus, or the kingdom of God on earth, or the total self-knowledge of the man-god, will effectively put an end to history. Marx's atheist dialectic, too, envisioned the imminent proletarian revolution, which would, after the raw communist stage, bring about a higher communism, or perhaps a beyond-communist stage, which would be a classless society, a society of total equality, of no division of labor, a society without rulers. 
But since history is a history of class struggles for Marx, the ultimate communist stage would be the final one, so that, in effect, history would then come to an end. Critics of Marx, from Bakunin to Majewski to Milovan Gilas, have of course pointed out, both prophetically and in retrospect, that the proletarian revolution, whichever its stage, would not eliminate classes, but on the contrary would set up a new ruling class and a new ruled. There would be no equality, but another inequality of power and inevitably of wealth the oligarchic elite, the vanguard, as rulers, and the rest of society as the ruled. In order to round out his system, Marx was interested in the dialectical workings of the past, the passages from Oriental despotism, or the Asiatic mode of production, to the ancient world, thence to feudalism, and from feudalism to capitalism, but his main interest, understandably, was in demonstrating the precise mechanism by which capitalism was supposed to give way, imminently, to the proletarian revolution. After working out this broad system, the rest of Marx's life was largely devoted to demonstrating and developing these alleged mechanisms. 4. The Marxian Doctrine of Ideology even Marx must dimly recognize that not material productive forces, not even classes, act in the real world, but only individual consciousness and individual choice. Even in the Marxian analysis, each class, or the individuals within it, must become conscious of its true class interests in order to act upon pursuing or achieving them. To Marx, each individual's thinking, his values and theories, are all determined, not by his personal self-interest, but by the interest of the class to which he supposedly belongs. This is the first fatal flaw in the argument. Why in the world should each individual ever hold his class higher than himself? Second, according to Marx, this class interest determines his thoughts and viewpoints, and must do so, because each person is only capable of ideology, or false consciousness, in the interest of his class. He is not capable of a disinterested, objective search for truth, nor of pursuit of his own interest or that of all mankind. But, as von Mises has pointed out, Marx's doctrine pretends to be pure, non-ideological science, and yet written expressly to advance the class interest of the proletariat. But while all bourgeois economics and all other disciplines of thought were interpreted by Marx as false by definition, as ideological rationalizations of bourgeois class interest, the Marxists were not consistent enough to assign to their own doctrines merely ideological character. The Marxian tenets, they implied, are not ideologies. They are a foretaste of the knowledge of the future classless society, which, freed from the fetters of class conflicts, will be in a position to conceive pure knowledge, untainted by ideological blemishes. Dr. David Gordon has aptly summed up this point. 
If all thought about social and economic matters is determined by class position, what about the Marxist system itself? If, as Marx proudly proclaimed, he aimed at providing a science for the working class, why should any of his views be accepted as true? Mises rightly notes that Marx's view is self-refuting. If all social thought is ideological, then this proposition is itself ideological, and the grounds for believing it have been undercut. In his Theories of Surplus Value, Marx cannot contain his sneering at the apologetics of various bourgeois economists. He did not realize that in his constant jibes at the class bias of his fellow economists, he was but digging the grave of his own giant work of propaganda on behalf of the proletariat. Von Mises also raises the point that it is absurd to believe that the interests of any class, including the capitalists, could ever be served better by a false than by a correct doctrine. To Marx, the point of philosophy was only the achievement of some practical goal. But if, as in pragmatism, truth is only what works, then surely the interests of the bourgeoisie would not be served by clinging to a false theory of society. If the Marxian answer holds, as it has, that false theory is necessary to justify the existence of capitalist rule— then, as von Mises points out, from the Marxian point of view itself, the theory should not be necessary. Since each class ruthlessly pursues its own interest, there is no need for the capitalists to justify their rule and their alleged exploitation to themselves. There is also no need to use these false doctrines to keep the proletariat subservient. Since, to Marxists, the rule or the overthrow of a given social system depends on the material productive forces, and there is no way by which consciousness can delay this development or speed it up. Or, if there are such ways, and the Marxists often implicitly concede this fact, then there is a grave and self-defeating flaw in the heart of Marxian theory itself. It is a well-known irony and another deep flaw in the Marxian system that for all the Marxian exaltation of the proletariat and the proletarian mind, all leading Marxists, beginning with Marx and Engels, were emphatically bourgeois themselves. Marx was the son of a wealthy lawyer, his wife was a member of the Prussian nobility, and his brother-in-law Prussian minister of the interior. Friedrich Engels, his lifelong benefactor and collaborator, was the son of a wealthy manufacturer, and himself a manufacturer. Why were not their views and doctrines also determined by bourgeois class interests? What permitted their consciousness to rise above a system so powerful that it determines the views of everyone else? In this way, every determinist system attempts to provide an escape hatch for its own believers, who are somehow able to escape the determinist laws that afflict everyone else. Unwittingly, these systems become in that way self-contradictory and self-refuting. 
In the 20th century, Marxists such as the German sociologist Karl Mannheim attempted to elevate this escape hatch into high theory, that somehow intellectuals are able to float free, to levitate above the laws that determine all other classes. 5. The Inner Contradiction in the Concept of Class A class is a set of entities with one identifiable thing in common. Thus there is a class of bald eagles or of geraniums, and such a class can be widened or narrowed. For example, the class of geraniums growing in New Jersey. A social class is a class of human beings with one thing in common. The number of identifiable social classes is virtually infinite. Thus there is the class of people over six feet four inches in height, the class of people named Smith, the class of people weighing under 160 pounds, etc., ad infinitum. Some of these classes will be useful for certain types of social analysis, for example, the class of people over 65 years of age with diabetes, for medical or insurance or demographic purposes. But from our point of view, in a study of the Marxian theory of class, these classes are all worthless, because there is no inherent conflict between them. In the market economy, in the international division of labor and exchange of products, there is no inherent conflict between short and tall people, people of various weights and names, etc., all classes live in harmony through the voluntary exchange of goods and services that mutually benefits them all. Furthermore, there is no reason for an individual in a free society or in a market economy to act on behalf of the interests of his class, rather than, or even as a surrogate for, his own individual interest. Will a person, when deciding at what job to work or what investment to make, first and foremost consult his class interest as a member of a class over six feet tall? The very idea is absurd. Is there no time, then, when social classes are in inherent conflict? Yes, there are such times but only when some classes are privileged by state coercion, while other classes are restricted or burdened by state coercion. Ludwig von Mises perceptively used the term caste to identify groups either privileged or burdened by the state, as distinguished from classes, which are simply groups of people on the free market in no sense in inherent conflict. The caste system in India was a classic case. The privileged or ruling castes acquired power, income, and status by state coercion. The submerged or ruled castes, for example, were prevented by coercion from leaving the lowly occupations of their ancestors. Other ruling and ruled castes or classes are not as rigid as the Indian caste system, but still they partake of the same coercively determined status. Thus the Brahmin caste, privileged by the state, was in inherent conflict with the untouchables, who were submerged as a class by the state. These castes then have conflicting class or caste interest. 
the Brahmins to maintain their privileges, the untouchable or other submerged castes to break out of their burdens. The point is that by the use of state power, each individual Brahmin has a common or class interest in maintaining his privileges, while each untouchable has a common class interest in freeing himself from oppression. Thus, even in less rigid cases than in an absolute caste system, the class of short and tall people, or the class of people named Smith, normally living in peace and harmony, could become classes in inherent conflict. Suppose, for example, the state decrees a large subsidy for all people over six feet tall, or a special heavy tax on all those under five feet five inches. If special privileges were heaped on people named Smith, then this would be a privileged class at the expense of everyone else, and there would be an economic incentive to try to join the ruling class, people named Smith, as quickly as possible. Even in such situations, as Marx in practice could not deny, there were and are individuals who, for various reasons of ideology or opportunism, fail to follow their own common class interest. There were and are Brahmins who put the demands of justice, that is, ideas or principles, higher than their class interest or untouchables, who, for personal interest, willingly submit to the existing order. There is a grave inner contradiction at the heart of the Marxian system, in Marx's crucial concept of class. In the Marxian dialectic, two mighty social classes face each other in inherent conflict, the ruling and the ruled. In the first two of history's major conflicts, Oriental despotism and feudalism, the social classes are defined by Marx in what we have seen to be the libertarian or Misesian manner, as classes privileged or burdened by the state. Thus, in Oriental despotism, or the Asiatic mode of production, the emperor and his technocratic bureaucracy run the state, and constitute its ruling class. This class acquires privileges from the state, and taxes and controls the ruled classes, that is, everyone else, largely the peasantry, but also craftsmen and merchants. Here Marx adopts the libertarian, as we have seen advanced by James Mill, definition of a two-class system, the ruling few who have gained control of the state, who are governing and exploiting the ruled many. Under feudalism, a similar concept applies. The landlord class has acquired territory through war and conquest, and has settled down to oppress the peasantry and the merchants and craftsmen via coerced rents, taxes, controls, and serfdom. Once again, Marx's class categories are caste categories. The ruling class is such by virtue of its having gained control of the state the main social apparatus of coercion. All well and good. But then, suddenly, when Marx gets to capitalism, the class categories change without acknowledgment. Now the ruling class is not simply defined as the class that runs the state apparatus, 
Now, suddenly, the original act of rule or exploitation is the voluntary market wage contract, the very act of a capitalist hiring a worker, and a worker agreeing to be hired. This in itself, to Marx, establishes a common class interest among capitalists, exploiting a common class of workers. It is true that Marx also believed that this capitalist class runs the state, but only as the executive committee of the ruling class, that is, of a ruling class that previously existed on the free market because of the wage system. So that what Marx, as analyst of oriental despotism or feudalism, would consider ruling class exploitation, still exists under capitalism, but only as an addendum to the pre-existing capitalist exploitation of the workers through the wage system. Ruling class exploitation under capitalism is unique in exercising a double exploitation first on the market as part of the wage contract, and second, the alleged exploitation by the state as executive committee of the ruling class. It should be evident that Marx's analysis of class is by this point a mishmash, in total disarray. Two contradictory definitions of class are jammed together, unfused and unacknowledged. Why should capitalism, of all systems, be able to levy a double exploitation that no other ruling class in Marx's historical schema can ever enjoy? But the crucial point is that Marx's definition of class and class conflict under capitalism is hopelessly muddled and totally wrong. How can capitalists, even in the same industry, let alone in the entire social system, have anything crucial in common? Brahmins and slaves in a caste system certainly enjoy a common class interest in conflict with other castes. But what is the common class interest of the capitalist class? On the contrary, capitalist firms are in continual competition and rivalry with each other. They compete for raw material, for labor, for sales and customers. They compete in price and quality, and in seeking new products and new ways to get ahead of their competitors. Marx, of course, did not deny the reality of this competition— so how can all capitalists, or even the steel industry, be considered a class with common interests? Again, in only one way. The steel industry only enjoys common interests if it can induce the state to create such interests through special privilege. State intervention to impose a steel tariff or a steel cartel with restricted output and higher price would indeed create a privileged ruling class of steel industrialists. But no such class having common interests pre-exists on the market before such intervention comes about. Only the state can create a privileged class, or a subordinate and burdened class, by acts of intervention into the economy or society. There can be no capitalist ruling class on the free market. 
Similarly, there can be no working class with common class interests on the free market. Workers compete with each other just as capitalists or entrepreneurs compete with each other. Once again, if groups of workers can use the state to exclude other groups, they can become a ruling class as against the excluded groups. Thus, if government immigration restrictions keep out new workers, the native workers can benefit, at least in the short run, at the expense of incomes of immigrants. Or if white workers can keep black workers out of skilled jobs by state coercion, as was done in South Africa, the former becomes a privileged or ruling class at the expense of the latter. An important point here is that any group that can manage to control or gain privileges from the state can take its place among the exploiters. This can be specific groups of workers or businessmen or Communist Party members or whatever. There is no reason to assume that only capitalists can acquire such privileges. In his class analysis, Marx constantly had to struggle with the fact that neither capitalists nor workers act in practice as if they are each members of monolithic, conflicting classes. On the contrary, capitalists persist in competing with each other, and workers likewise. Even in their rousing Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels had to admit that the organization of the proletarians into a class, and consequently into a political party, is continually being upset again by the competition among the workers themselves. Indeed. But there are more grave problems. For Marx had his two-class analysis. The essence of each titanic struggle in history is between two great social classes, the ruling versus the ruled. The rising class in tune with the new material productive forces, the declining one out of tune. But it is one thing to employ a two-class ruler versus ruled analysis according to libertarian or million definitions, since there are indeed common caste interests and conflicts. This concept is here a simplification, but an important and workable one. But what are we to do in the complex multi-class world of the capitalist market economy? How can we employ a two-class model there, either for market or political action? And there is no question that Marx is committed to the two-class model, capitalists versus proletarians. All other classes fade away, so that the mighty, exploited, immiserated class can and will rise up as a monolith to overthrow the capitalist class. As Marx and Engels say in the Communist Manifesto, our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. But in practice, in analyzing recent history or current events, Marx and Engels were forced to talk about many classes and groups, and their interactions, 
thereby implicitly but definitely betraying their own absurd two-class model. And so we have the problem that Marx's two classes are far from monoliths, that their members compete with each other constantly and collaborate very rarely, and also that in capitalist society in particular it is impossible to analyze historical action by squeezing all human actors into two classes. In practice, however, Marx and other Marxists happily use a multi-class model in analyzing historical events. Steel capital, textile capital, armament capital, finance capital, etc., but they do not seem to realize that while they are being far more realistic than when prating about capitalists versus workers as two-class monoliths, they are totally betraying the Marxian dialectic itself. No inevitable revolution, for example, will ever follow from multi-class squabbling, certainly not Marx's cherished proletarian one. Marx himself and Marxists generally have devoted many millions of words to the concept and use of the term class. Yet in all his writings, Marx never once defined it. For if he had attempted a definition, the stark inner contradiction in the concept, the slippage between state creation and mere market action, would have become starkly clear, and something would have had to give. Thus, in Marx's theoretical magnum opus, Capital, there is no attempt at a definition of class. Only an incomplete volume one was published in Marx's lifetime, 1867, at which point he had substantially finished working on the book. After Marx's death in 1883, Engels worked up, edited, and published the remaining manuscript in two further volumes, 1885 and 1894. Only in the famous very last chapter of the third volume does Marx finally arrive at an attempt to define what he and Engels had been talking and writing about for four decades. It is an unfinished chapter of startling brevity, five short paragraphs. In this chapter, Classes, Marx begins with the classical Ricardian triad, that the sources of income in the market economy are wages, profits, and rents, and that the receivers of such income constitute the three big classes of modern society, laborers, capitalists, and landlords. So far, so good. But then Marx adds that even England, the most highly and classically developed capitalist country, contains middle and intermediate strata, which even here obliterate lines of demarcation everywhere. But he quickly hastens to assure his readers that this problem is irrelevant, since the concentration and polarization of classes is proceeding apace. Marx then begins the third paragraph of this seemingly climactic chapter. The first question to be answered is this, what constitutes a class? Indeed, he then adds that the reply to this question follows naturally from the reply to a second related question. What makes wage laborers, capitalists, and landlords constitute the three great social classes? 
we are now primed for the answer, first to the latter Ricardian question, and then to the first critical query. What constitutes a class? On the second question, Marx states that, at first glance, the identity of incomes with their sources constitutes the answer. After all, workers earn wages from their labor, capitalists make profits from their capital, and landlords obtain rent from their land. But Marx quickly warns us that this simple answer will not do. For, however, from that standpoint, physicians and officials, for example, would also constitute two classes, for they belong to two distinct social groups, the members of each of these groups receiving their revenues from one and the same source. The same would also be true of the infinite fragmentation of interest and rank into which the division of social labor splits laborers, as well as capitalists and landlords. The latter, for example, into owners of vineyards, farm owners, owners of forests, mine owners, and owners of fisheries. Precisely. Marx has said it very well. His cherished two-class monolith model, or three-class if we throw in the allegedly declining feudal remnant, the landlord class, lies totally in ruins. Thus Marxian class theory, and therefore Marxism, lay destroyed by its creator's own hand. But if it is always darkest before the dawn— if the suffering of the oppressed class is greatest just before the apocalyptic revolutionary moment, we would expect Karl Marx to step in and triumphantly save the day. How does he do it? How does the drama unfold? In one of the great anticlimactic moments in the history of social thought, the manuscript ends with the lines we have just quoted. There is just a cryptic footnote from Engels. Here, the manuscript breaks off. The way Engels puts it implies that the master was struck down, just as his pen was ready to wield the answer that would rescue the crumbling Marxian theory of class and place it on solid foundations. But we know this was not true, for the breaking off occurred sixteen years before Marx's death. Marx had ample time for his dramatic and conclusive answer. Why didn't he pursue it? We can only conclude that he couldn't, that he was stopped, that he realized that there was no answer, and that Marxism would henceforth have to rely on repetition and bluster to carry it through. 6. The Origin of the Concept of Class we have seen that James Mill in the early decades of the 19th century worked out a simple but cogent and effective two-class theory of class. The ruling class that ran the state and the remainder of society who constituted the ruled. At about the same time during the Restoration period in France after the fall of Napoleon in 1814, a group of laissez-faire libertarian theorists were working out a far more sophisticated version of the same model, a model that contained a historical and sociological dimension absent in James Mill. 
This group were the spiritual and physical descendants of the ideologues of the Napoleonic era, and the major link was J.B. Say. Say was the inspirer and elder statesman of this restoration group, which was led by his son-in-law, Charles Comte, François-Charles-Louis Comte, 1782-1837, and Charles Dunoyer, Barthélemy Charles-Pierre-Joseph Dunoyer, 1786-1862. An important follower of Comte and Dunoyer was the young Augustin Thierry, 1795-1856, soon to become the most notable of French historians. At the beginning of the Restoration and until 1820, Comte and Dunoyer founded and edited Le Censeur, followed by Le Censeur Européen, periodicals that became the center for the new laissez-faire movement. Like Mill, Comte and Dunoyer defined conflicting classes as those who gained control of the state apparatus as against those who were controlled by the state but they also pointed out that history had been a history of such class or caste struggles. Under Oriental despotism, the emperor and his bureaucracy constituted the ruling class. In early Europe, conquering tribes settled down among the conquered to constitute a state with a ruling class. Historically, then, another component of such a ruling class is that, at least initially, it was of a different ethnic group from the ruled. In this way, ethnic oppression reinforced political-economic class oppression by the state. But to Comte and Dunoyer, the new element, the factor that would bring about the inevitable emergence and triumph of a classless, in the sense of casteless, society, was what they called industrialism. The emergence of an industrial society required an international free market economy to enable it to work. Hence, Comte and Dunoyer saw it as inevitable that a free market economy would spread throughout Europe, and eventually the world, dissolving the ruling classes and bringing about a libertarian region and world, a world free of the oppression of the state. Thus, the state in this vision would wither away, to be dissolved into the market exchange economy, and in the explicit language of Comte and Dunoyer, the government of men would be replaced by the administration of things. Thus, Comte and Dunoyer saw the world as being split into the productive classes, workers, entrepreneurs, producers of all kinds, crippled and oppressed by the non-productive classes, using the state to levy tribute upon the producers. The non-producers were, in particular, politicians, government officials, and rentiers living off government bonds, as well as subsidized businessmen or receivers of government privilege. The peak of perfection, which Comte and Dunoyer saw as eventually arriving, would be reached if all the world worked and no one governed. In their analysis, Comte and Dunoyer went beyond their mentor, J.B. Say, with his blessing, to add the historical, sociological, and political-philosophic dimensions to the strictly economic. The Comte-Dunoyer movement were firm and militant believers in individual liberty and in property rights, thus Dunoyer's attack on egalitarianism. 
equality would be the reversal of that fundamental law of humanity and of society which provides that the income and the position of each man depends above all on his conduct, and is proportionate to the activity, the intelligence, and the morality and the persistence of his efforts. And on liberty, Dunoyer wrote that for forty years I have defended the same principles, liberty in everything, in religion, in philosophy, in literature, industry, in politics. And by liberty I mean the triumph of individuality. The worm in the apple, the way in which libertarian social class analysis got transmuted into a mixture of itself and its opposite, was provided by a garrulous French aristocrat, Henri, Comte de Saint-Simon. Claude Henri de Rouvrois, Comte de Saint-Simon, 1760-1825. Saint-Simon, a hopelessly muddled thinker, was not aided in his existential confusion by his penchant for picking up ideas orally at salons, instead of by systematic reading. For a while, during the censure period, Saint-Simon, who had picked up the Comte du Noyer ideas at salons, was what could best be described as a fellow traveler of theirs, and pushed their ideas in his own periodical, L'Industrie, 1816-1818. After that, however, Saint-Simon grew increasingly authoritarian and hostile to laissez-faire liberalism. Having imbibed libertarian class analysis from Comte and Dunoyer, he characteristically got the concepts confused, and introduced the fateful and unacknowledged contradiction, between conflicting classes in the sense of those who govern or are governed by the state, versus employers vis-à-vis wage earners on the free market. The Marxian jumble was Saint-Simon's dubious contribution to social thought. After Saint-Simon's death in 1825, his disciple, Olinde Rodriguez, an engineer and son of a bureaucrat, joined by Enfantin and Bazar, founded the Saint-Simonian journal Le Producteur, which, followed by conferences and tracts for the remainder of the 1820s, converted their deceased master's confused social philosophy into a militant proposal for a totalitarian socialist system. This system was to be run by what the Saint-Simonians considered the true class representatives of industrialism, an alliance of engineers and other technocratic intellectuals with investment bankers, coordinated and led by a banker-dominated central bank. In short, in contrast to communist socialism, which was at least ostensibly egalitarian, Saint-Simonianism was frankly elitist, to be run by the good and allegedly modern classes. Thus the Saint-Simonians, who were the first users of the word socialism, repudiated capitalists and entrepreneurs on behalf of their favored bankers and intellectual classes, representing the worker-producers. It is perhaps not coincidental that, of the two maximum co-leaders of Saint-Simonianism, Enfantin and Bazar, Barthélemy Prosper-Enfantin was the son of a banker, was trained as a banker and engineer, and had been a mathematics student of Olinde Rodriguez. 
Nor is it surprising that Saint-Simonianism appealed hugely to the investment bankers, the producteur being financed by the prominent banker Jacques Lafitte. The Saint-Simonian culture reached the peak of its remarkable influence in France from 1830 to 1832, after which the dual popes of this political-religious cult, Enfantin and Saint-Amand-Bazard, 1791-1832, had a fiery split on the free love question on which every disciple was required to take immediate sides. Unfortunately, the destructive split between the two popes came too late, and the Saint-Simonian socialist movement had already become astoundingly influential throughout Europe. In France, artists and writers became Saint-Simonians, including Georges Sand, Balzac, Hugo, and Eugène Sue. While in music, Berlioz attempted to apply Saint-Simonian principles by composing A Song on the Installation of Railroads, and Franz Liszt played the piano at Saint-Simonian meetings. In England, the reactionary romantic pantheist Thomas Carlyle took to Saint-Simonian socialism immediately and became its leading spokesman in England, going so far as to translate and attempting to publish the master's final work, The New Christianity, in which he foreshadowed the development of his movement into the cult of a new religion. Of more lasting importance was the deep influence that Saint-Simonianism had on John Stuart Mill, for it was the Saint-Simonians who were initially and largely responsible for Mill's quasi-conversion from his father's hardcore free-market views to semi-socialism. In his autobiography, Mill explains that he read every Saint-Simonian tract and how it was partly by their writings that his eyes were open to the very limited and temporary value of the old political economy, which assumes private property and inheritance as indefeasible facts and freedom of production and exchange as the dernier mot of social improvement. Indeed, in a letter to a leading French Saint-Simonian, Gustave Dictal, a friend of Rodriguez, Mill went so far as to concede that some form of Saint-Simonian socialism is likely to be the final and permanent condition of our race, although he differed with them in believing that it would take a long time for mankind to become capable of achieving that happy state. There is no country, however, that took to Saint-Simonianism with more gusto than Germany. In the early 1830s, Saint-Simonianism went like wildfire through the German literary world. Its enthusiastic adepts included the eminent political writer Friedrich Buchholz and the famous poet Heinrich Heine, while the young German school of poets became Saint-Simonian adepts. But the most important influence of Saint-Simonianism in Germany was on the young Hegelians. Young German poets such as T. Munt and G. Kühne were Hegelian university lecturers on philosophy. More directly, Saint-Simonianism exercised a formative influence on Marx. In the first place, Marx's hometown of Trier had been part of the German Rhineland, occupied by France for two decades of the French Revolutionary Wars. Hence the town had become greatly susceptible to French intellectual influences. 
As a result, Trier was rife with Sansimonian agitation when Marx was a young adolescent, so much so that the archbishop felt obliged to condemn Sansimonian doctrines from the pulpit. Ludwig Gall, former secretary to the Trier City Council, was a prominent and prolific Sansimonian writer. There is little doubt that Marx read Gall's writings. Another powerful influence on Marx was one of his favorite teachers at the University of Berlin, Eduard Ganz, one of Hegel's favorite disciples, who taught criminal law. Ganz was both a Hegelian and a Saint-Simonian, and the interpenetration of the two doctrines in Germany deeply shaped the views of the young Hegelians, of whom Marx became a leader. As Billington notes, the entire phenomenon of left Hegelianism has indeed been described as nothing more than a Hegelianized Saint-Simonianism, or a Saint-Simonianized Hegelianism. Steeped in Saint-Simon as well as Hegel, Marx found the concept of class struggle as strained through the defective lenses of the Saint-Simonians ready to hand, and suited for incorporation into his own grand design. In addition to the class struggle between proletarians and capitalists, Marx also adopted the Saint-Simonian version of industry and its embodiment, among the Saint-Simonians and in Marx the workers, as inevitably victorious, along with the future goal of history as the withering away of the state and the replacement of the government of men by the administration of things. There was, of course, a crucial difference between this abortive concept and its original. Among Comte and Dunoyer, the utopian state was to be a purely free society of individual property holders and free market exchangers. For Marx, it was to be a communal collective self-ownership of all goods by man, with no extant division of labor, specialization, money, or exchange. Marx himself has testified to a particularly powerful Sansimonian influence over him, as conveyed by his beloved mentor, surrogate father, and future father-in-law, Baron Ludwig von Westphalen. Towards the end of his life, Marx told his close friend and admirer, the Russian liberal aristocrat Maxim Kovalevsky, that he had imbibed Saint-Simonianism from von Westphalen, who was apparently an ardent admirer of Saint-Simonian doctrine. We have already seen that in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels slipped into the original libertarian rather than the Saint-Simonian Marxian theory of class, confusing the state privileged with capitalists who hire workers on the market. In a penetrating discussion, Professor Ralph Rako has pointed out that the term bourgeois as used on the continent provided the basis for that confusion. As Rako notes, when Marx says that the bourgeoisie is the main exploiting and parasitic class in modern society, bourgeoisie may be understood in two different ways. In England and the United States, it has tended to suggest the class of capitalists and entrepreneurs who make their living by buying and selling on the more or less free market. On the continent, however, the term bourgeoisie has no such necessary connection with the market. 
It can just as easily mean the class of civil servants and rentiers off the public debt as the class of businessmen involved in the process of social production. Rako goes on to state that the systematic exploitation of other classes by bureaucrats and public debt holders was a commonplace of 19th century social thought. Tocqueville, for example, denounces the middle-class rule under the bourgeois monarchy of Louis-Philippe, 1830-1848, as follows. It settled into every office, prodigiously increased the number of offices, and made a habit of living off the public treasury almost as much as from its own industry. But this is far from all. Professor Rako shows that in analyzing specific historical events, particularly in contemporary French history, Marx and Engels kept slipping into the state-bound, two-class, libertarian-type analysis. Thus, consider Marx's 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, 1852, analyzing the events leading up to Bonaparte's coup of 2 December 1851, which Marx himself portrayed as a demonstration how the class struggle in France created circumstances and relationships that made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part. In the 18th Brumaire, Marx writes indignantly of this executive power, with its enormous bureaucracy and military organization, with its ingenious state machinery embracing wide strata, with a host of officials numbering half a million, this appalling parasitic body which enmeshes the body of French society like a net and chokes all its pores, sprang up in the days of the absolute monarchy. Every common interest was straightway severed from society, counterpoised to it as a higher general interest, snatched from the activity of society's members themselves, and made an object of government activity, from a bridge, a schoolhouse, and the communal property of a village community, to the railways, the national wealth, and the National University of France. All revolutions perfected this machine instead of smashing it. The parties that contended in turn regarded the possession of this huge state edifice as the principal spoils of the victor. Under the second Bonaparte, the state seems to have made itself completely independent. As against civil society, the state machine has consolidated its position. Not only is Marx using here a two-class, state-bound analysis of class conflict, but he foreshadows the libertarian development of the idea of the state as an anti-social instrument, as in Herbert Spencer and in Franz Oppenheimer and even Albert J. Knox advanced 20th-century libertarian analysis of state power as being an interest inherently opposed to and exploitative of social power. Fine, but where in all of this are the capitalists and their use of the state as their executive committee to redouble their exploitation of the proletariat? Where, in fact, are capitalists and proletariat at all? As Rako points out, there is a delicious irony here. 
For sophisticated libertarian analysts speak not only of state power, but also of various groups in history, Asiatic bureaucratic despotism, feudal landlords, communist parties, or whatever, who have managed to gain control of the state and use its coercive apparatus of exploitative rule over the rest of society. Thus, as Reiko notes, the Marxian analysis here completely ignores the massive use of state power by segments of the capitalist class, and limits itself to the exploitative activities of those directly in control of the state apparatus. Why Marx and Engels should care to whitewash the capitalists in this way, Reiko concludes ironically, I cannot say. Marx repeated a similar analysis twenty years later in his The Civil War in France, 1871, on the rise and fall of the Paris Commune. That commune, he wrote, aimed at restoring to the social body all the forces hitherto absorbed by the state parasite feeding upon and clogging the free movement of society. In particular, the commune was able to succeed, at least for a while, by destroying the two greatest sources of government expenditure, the standing army and state functionarism. Finally, Engels, in his 1891 preface to the Civil War in France, applied this same libertarian and very un-Marxian analysis to the existing political situation in the United States. Nowhere do politicians form a more separate and powerful section, class, of the nation than precisely in North America. There, each of the two major parties which alternately succeed each other in power is itself in turn controlled by people who make a business of politics. It is in America that we see best how there takes place this process of the state power making itself independent in relation to society. We find two great gangs of political speculators who alternately take possession of the state power and exploit it by the most corrupt means and for the most corrupt ends. The nation is powerless against these two great cartels of politicians who are ostensibly its servants, but in reality dominate and plunder it. Professor Reiko concludes his analysis as follows. It seems, therefore, that there are two theories of the state, as well as, correspondingly, two theories of exploitation within Marxism. There is the customarily discussed and very familiar one, and the one which Marx himself proclaimed, of the state as the instrument of the ruling class, and the concomitant theory which locates exploitation within the production process. And there is the theory of the state which pits it against society and nation, two surprising and significant terms to find in this context. Moreover, it would seem suggestive that it is this second theory that predominates in those writings of Marx which, because of their nuanced and sophisticated treatment of concrete and immediate political reality, many commentators have found to be the best expositions of the Marxian historical analysis. 7. The Legacy of Ricardo 
As Karl Marx plunged into the economics of capitalism that would occupy the rest of his life, he found ready at hand a marvelous weapon, Ricardian economics. In contrast to J.B. Say and the French tradition, Ricardo concentrated not on market exchange and its inevitable focus on individual actors and exchangers benefiting from exchange, but on production followed by distribution of income as a distinct and separate process. Ricardo's main focus was on how this social income from production is distributed. Whereas Say or Turgot looked at individual factors of production and how their income emerges from production and exchange, Ricardo focused only on entire, allegedly homogeneous classes of producers, workers earning wages, capitalists earning profits, and landlords acquiring rent. As von Mises pointed out, on the market there are always only single individuals. Even Marx had to make a point of explaining that as purchases and sales are made only between single individuals, it is not admissible to look to them for relations between social classes. For Ricardo, then, tautologically, given total production, which was mysteriously there and not explained, more of the fixed total pie obtained by one class must mean less for other classes. There are, as we remember, no entrepreneurs in Ricardo, because the Ricardians had their eyes firmly fixed on long-run equilibrium, which is supposed to describe living reality, and in such equilibrium, devoid of change or uncertainty, there is no room for entrepreneurship. Thus, for Ricardo, the conditions were already there for a class struggle theory of the capitalist economy. Not only that, for the delighted Marx found the Ricardian doctrine was, in effect, a quantity of labor theory of value. Utility dropped out, and since only reproducible goods and not non-reproducible goods, such as Rembrandt paintings, were considered explainable, only the cost of production was considered a determinant of the embodied value of goods. And since Ricardo finessed rent as allegedly not a part of cost, the only possible cost except labor hours was profit, interest, or cost of capital, and this was so small as to be readily neglected. Besides, profits are allegedly only a declining residual after the payment of wages, which are doomed to keep rising in money, but not in real terms, as population continues to press upon the food supply. In the gloomy Ricardian perspective, there are two logical paths toward a call for change in the status quo. For Marx, the labor theory of value, the view that labor is the sole producer of value, meant that the capitalist's return, profit, constituted the exploitative extraction of surplus value from the workers. The workers produce all value, but the capitalists are able somehow to coerce the workers into accepting wages that are below the full product. 
In fact, adopting the Malthusian-Ricardian view of population, the workers are paid a subsistence wage, while the capitalists extract the remainder of the workers' product as their surplus value or profit. To the old Malthusian problem, wouldn't the same problem of overpopulation foil a socialist economy? The Marxian answer was that such an iron law of wages, to adopt the term of La Salle, would not apply under socialism. Oddly, neither Marx nor his critics ever realized that there is one place in the economy where the Marxian theory of exploitation and surplus value does apply. Not to the capitalist-worker relation in the market, but to the relation of master and slave under slavery. Since the masters own the slaves, they indeed only pay them their subsistence wage, enough to live on and reproduce, while the masters pocket the surplus of the slaves' marginal product over their cost of subsistence. This surplus value extracted from the slave constitutes the profits of the masters from slave ownership. In the free society, in contrast, the workers, owning their own bodies and their own labor, pocket their full marginal product, discounted, as an Austrian would add, by the interest return the laborers freely and willingly pay to the capitalists for advancing them the value of their production now, rather than wait until after the product is produced and sold. Yet such is the process of capitalization in the market that in a system of slavery in the midst of a general market economy, as in the American South, the surplus value will be capitalized by bidding up the value and therefore the selling or buying price of the slaves. The long-run tendency will be for the business of slavery to yield a return equal to that of any other industry. The surplus profits will be bid away into the general rate of return on capital. To return to Marx, he also found very handy the Smithian concept, not to the latter's credit, much employed by Ricardo, that only material commodities and not immaterial services constitute production or value. Material goods are frozen labor, whereas immaterial labor services are, in Marxian terms, non-productive. In this area, Marx took a giant step backwards from Ricardo to Adam Smith. All this, however, fitted neatly into Marxian philosophical materialism. Marx also found that Ricardo had already treated all labor as homogeneous, with any differences in quality simply weighted by some sort of index to reduce them to quantity of labor hours. One logical path for a radical Ricardian, clearly, was to call for the expropriation of surplus value and the establishment of a system in which the laborers earn the full value of their product. As we shall see shortly, this was the path taken by the Ricardian socialist writers in Britain. But there was another, more logical path. After all, the Ricardians could and did say that capital earned profits from their supplying workers with capital goods, with frozen labor. Such a service is clear. Otherwise, the workers would not have had to rely on capitalists for money while working on the product. 
Marx's reply that capital goods, being frozen labor, should be owned by the workers, misses the point that something, some service, must have been added by the capitalists, which, as we have already seen, was essentially savings, and, if we may put it that way, who were advancing the workers' frozen time. A very different radical path, much more Ricardian and indeed already trod by James Mill, was to concentrate on the other possible bugbear class in the Ricardian system, the landlords, they who simply extract a return for no service, for simply sitting on the original and indestructible powers of the soil. Furthermore, in their own vision of historical laws, the orthodox Ricardians saw the capitalists losing profit, the workers static at subsistence level, and the social product increasingly eaten up by the parasitic landlord class. The nationalization of land rent, then, the pre-Henry Georgist route, was taken by other disciples, including the last of the consistent radical Ricardians, Henry George. But how has Marx managed to dispose of the land question that so agitated Ricardo and Mill? First of all, Marx was the great prophet of man as laborer. In his version of Hegelianism, man created nature, indeed, the entire universe. Since land is man's creature, there is no room for worry about land or land-created value. Labor is all. Second, land as the basis for technology, the economy, and the social system was the key to the feudal system, but feudalism was part of the dying pre-capitalist, pre-industrial order, a reactionary remnant unworthy of attention. Basically, then, Marx simply assimilated land into capital and returns on land into profits. Thus land, the annoying, superfluous third class of factors, can drop out and make way for the mighty two-class polarization and final struggle between the capitalists and the proletariat. 8. Ricardian Socialism Marx was hardly the first person to arrive at radical proletarian conclusions from the Ricardian system and the labor theory of value. Mediating between Ricardo and Marx were the Ricardian socialists, who greatly influenced Marx, but whose influence has been depreciated by Marxists, including Marx himself, who liked to think that the master's unique genius in arriving at neo-Ricardian socialism had no predecessors. The first Ricardian socialist was William Thompson, 1775 to 1833, a well-to-do Irish landlord from County Cork. Thompson's prolix and repetitious work, An Inquiry into the Principles of the Distribution of Wealth, published in 1824, went into three editions in the next half-century. An extreme Benthamite utilitarian, Thompson, in his inquiry, also simply declared that labor is the sole parent of wealth. Neither utility, pleasure, or scarcity had anything to do with it. From this flat assertion, the labor theory of value swiftly followed. 
As Alexander Gray puts it with his characteristic wit, it should be obvious that if the definition selected gives in advance an assurance labor is the sole parent of wealth, this ought to be a considerable aid towards proving that wealth may be attributed entirely to labor. Thompson advocated a world of free and voluntary exchanges as a way of ensuring that workers will earn their product. But what of the existing system of exchange? Anticipating Marx, these exchanges were, according to Thompson, coerced, the capitalists seizing the products of their labor, of the laborers, by force. But here, on the edge of Marxism, Thompson retreated into a libertarian class analysis. For what constitutes such coercion? An entire spectrum of bounties, protestations, apprenticeships, guilds, corporations, monopolies, which sounds very much like Comte du Noyer or James Mill. But Thompson presses on. Rent and profit are, in particular, surplus value, in Thompson's original phrase, extracted from the exploited workers. But then Thompson retreats again from his full vision, conceding that the laborer must pay for the use of these capital goods when so unfortunate as not to possess them. So even though Thompson is full of invective against the greedy and rapacious capitalists, he concedes that they perform a necessary function. How much, then, should they be paid? It is not surprising that Thompson floundered in trying to discover such a principle. Thompson wound up, then, far from a revolutionary. Instead, his mild, pre-John Stuart Mill-like solution was to encourage cooperatives as a means of arriving at interclass harmony. In his Labor Rewarded, 1827. But this scarcely exhausted Thompson's heresies as a pre-Marxian. For, being dedicated to free exchange, Thompson sensibly had to admit that from exchange often emerges accumulation, and from accumulation there arises the dread capitalist class. Thus, you cannot abridge the exchanges and consequent accumulations of the capitalist without at the same time abridging all barter. And, further, admitting the serpent of wages and rent back into Eden— why not permit the laborer to exchange for the use of a house, a horse, a machine, as well as for its possession? The other founding father of Ricardian socialism in the 1820s, John Gray, 1799-1883, was possessed, like Thompson, of a most unmarxian spirit of moderation. As a young Scottish clerk in a wholesale house in London, Gray published his socialistic Lectures on Human Happiness in 1825. An arch-utilitarian and expounder of the Ricardian labor theory of value, Gray fulminated against capitalists as exploiters of the working class, and, like Marx, saw the seeds of such exploitation in trade or barter. If William Thompson's innovation was the phrase surplus value, John Gray's particular contribution to the Marxian brew was to bring back in a heavy way the physiocratic Adam Smith notion of productive versus unproductive labor, and thus rescue this flawed concept from Ricardian neglect. 
Not only that, but Gray narrowed the Smithian standard of productive labor considerably. As Gray put it, they only are productive members of society who apply their own hands either to the cultivation of the earth itself or to the preparing and appropriating the produce of the earth to the uses of life. Having narrowed the definition of productive, Gray then began to make curious concessions, admitting, for example, that some occupations may be to some extent useful, although unproductive. John Gray then proceeded happily to run through the list of British occupations and to allocate in an obviously purely arbitrary way the percentages of productivity or usefulness in each occupation. Thus Gray contends that merchants, manufacturers, and others who are mere distributors of wealth could still be useful, but only in a sufficient number. Gray concluded that the productive classes were far short of half the total population. Harking back, perhaps unconsciously, to the ancient Greeks, Gray reserved some of his choicest venom for the retailers, whom he savaged as productive only of deception and falsehood, folly and extravagance, slavery of the corporeal, and prostitution of the intellectual faculties of man. It turns out that for Gray, the main sin, the crucial evil, is competition. The competition of labor pushes the wages of labor down to a minimum, standard Marxian fare, no doubt. But in addition, even though labor is supposedly the sole creator of value, Gray also worries that competition, with equal perniciousness, also keeps to a minimum the amount of profits and rent. John Gray concludes with the general principle that every individual in society, except those living on fixed incomes, finds their incomes limited and ground down by competition. It turns out that the exploitation of labor, indeed of everyone, is engineered by competition itself, which limits production. Put an end to competition, then, and not only will the ideal world arrive where the laborer earns his full product, but also wealth will then be multiplied without any known limits. The world is only impoverished because of competition. Eliminate it, and wealth will be abundant for all. Even though Gray maintained that competition could be abolished immediately and with only good effects, he was distressingly vague on how to accomplish this feat. He seemed to favor some sort of all-embracing cooperative, thereby bringing him close to Thompsonian reform. Soon, however, Gray shifted his attention to the limitations on production allegedly imposed by hard money, and so he turned increasingly to a call for accelerating amounts of cheap and easy money. Thus, in 1831, Gray's book, The Social System, called for cheap and abundant credit to fuel and finance increased production, guided by a governmental national bank. Gray, of course, also advocated irredeemable paper money and the abolition of the gold standard. This analysis was further developed in John Gray's last work, Lectures on the Nature and Use of Money, 1848.
After 1848, John Gray's social protests ceased completely, and so until recently it was assumed by historians that he had died around 1850. It turns out, however, that Gray, shortly after the publication of his Lecture of Human Happiness, founded with his brother James the famous publishing firm of J. and J. Gray of Edinburgh. As the firm flourished, especially after 1850, Gray settled down to a comfortable existence and died at a ripe old age of 84 in 1883. A decade and a half after Thompson and Gray, the third leading Ricardian socialist made his appearance. John Francis Bray, 1809-1897, in his major work, much quoted by Marx, Labor's Wrongs and Labor's Remedy, 1839. Bray was born in Washington, D.C., the child of English actors, and when his mother died, his ailing father brought John Francis back to Leeds in England in 1822. In Leeds, Bray became a compositor and plunged into the trade union movement, becoming treasurer of the Leeds Working Men's Association in 1837. Like the others, an extreme utilitarian, Bray, in Labor's Wrongs, asserts that God had meant men to be happy, but that unhappiness was injected into the world by the institution of private property, which destroyed the just institution of communal property, particularly in the land. From private property arose the odious division of labor and class conflict, exploitation of laborers, and extraction of their surplus value by the capitalist class. Moreover, Bray averred that the root problem is the alleged fact of unequal exchange. Although understanding that in market exchanges each party benefits, Bray asserts that, especially in a labor contract, this is not enough, that the exchange and its benefits must be equal. Not realizing that there is no point in any exchange unless the value for each man of each of the two exchanged goods is unequal, Bray, in a notable pre-Marxian passage, asserts, Men have only two things which they can exchange with each other, namely labor and the product of labor. Therefore let them exchange as they will. They merely give, as it were, labor for labor. If a system of exchanges were acted upon, the value of all others would be determined by the entire cost of production, and equal values would always exchange for equal values. Here we have packed into one short compass a number of crucial Marxian fallacies, that only commodities are produced or important, in contrast to allegedly non-productive services. The ancient Aristotelian fallacy that exchange implies equality of value, the labor theory of value, and the idea that in a just world prices will be equal to their costs of production, basically the quantity of labor hours expended in production. To John Bray, as to Marx after him, the remedy for all this systemic evil is communism, the most perfect form of society man can institute. 
But in contrast to Marx, Bray saw no inevitable mechanism or law of history to yield that great event. To the contrary, and in contrast to the other communists of his day, John Bray perceived that communism required a new communist man to work, but that the advent of this new man was definitely not on the horizon. Any communism would come up against the foul and loathsome selfishness which now more or less accompanies every action, clings to every thought, and pollutes every aspiration. Instead, Bray focused his vision not on the impractical and remote ultimate goal, but on his allegedly practical transition or intermediate social goal. That happened to be a hypertrophied version of the cooperative schemes that had proved so alluring to Thompson and Gray. Bray proposed that the world be organized into one vast cartelized network of cooperative corporations, that is, cooperatives organized on the principle of one stockholder, one vote. The cartelized network would be achieved by the workers and cooperators buying out all existing capitalists. Bray did not seem to see that acquiring the capital to finance this most massive buyout of all time might be even more impractical than organizing Marx's violent proletarian revolution. Scratch a socialist of this epoch and one will find a money crank. Sure enough, Bray envisioned that the cooperative cartel, once established, would eliminate existing money and substitute a national bank that would issue notes to each worker based on the quantity of labor time he had expended in production. The goods the laborer would buy would in their turn be priced at the amount of labor time embodied within them. Perhaps if Marx had ever been interested in charting his future communist economy, labor-time notes might have been part of his package. Strictly, there would be no reason for Marxian labor-time notes to increase, but John Bray, as an inflationist, did not, of course, see it that way. The function of his national bank would be to keep money issued and flowing like blood within the living body, equably through society at large, and infuse universal health and vigor. The note issue would, of course, always be kept within the limits of the actual effective capital existent a form of needs-of-trade argument at least as absurd as the usual variant for the nominal value of existing capital would, of course, increase, as the money supply kept rising. A few years after the publication of Labor's Wrongs in 1842, Bray returned to the United States. A second book, A Voyage from Utopia, was finished in manuscript, but remained unpublished until the 1950s. For the rest of his life in the United States, Bray wrote sporadically, contributing many letters to labor and socialist periodicals, as well as chapters in the mid-1850s for an unfinished book, The Coming Age. Bray's life was as sporadic as his output. He found making a living precarious, working for brief jobs as a printer for newspapers, and complaining, rather inconsistently with his doctrines, that American employers were far more exploitative than British. 
The Yankees, as Professor Dorfman paraphrased Bray, appearing more like gamblers and sharpers than honest businessmen. Eventually, Bray went west to Michigan, where he had inherited some land and eked out a living as a newspaper man and small farmer. During the 1870s and 1880s, Bray became vice president of the American Labor Reform League and was a member of the Socialistic Knights of Labor. His later writings, some of which denounced spiritualism, emphasized attacks on the gold standard and a call for an abundance of state paper money that would allegedly drive interest rates down to zero. His communist ideal was now abandoned as utopian. Two of Bray's later writings are worthy of note. Even though he was opposed to slavery in labor's wrongs, his opposition to the Civil War in his anonymous anti-war pamphlet, American Destiny, What Shall It Be, Republican or Cossack, 1864, led him onward to judge slavery as really no worse than countries cursed by a huge public debt. Moreover, the natural state of the black man to Bray is nakedness and indolence, so that a South that freed its slaves would decay irremediably, with capital disappearing and plantations returning to the wilderness. In his final book, God and Man, A Unity and All Mankind, A Unity, 1879, John Bray added to his money-crankism the idea of a non-theological religion in which establishing the right social institutions would bring about a this-worldly kind of immortality. A striking anomaly is a writer of the 1820s and later who is invariably listed by historians as a leading Ricardian socialist, but who was most emphatically neither a Ricardian nor a socialist. Thomas Hodgskin, 1787-1869, was a brilliant, innovative, and self-educated political theorist who, far from being a socialist, was a laissez-faire libertarian to the point of being an individualist anarchist. Hodgskin's father was a storekeeper at the naval dockyard, who sent his son to sea at the age of twelve. Eventually, Hodgskin's individualist instincts and principles rubbed against naval discipline, and one day, he writes, I complained of the injury done me by a commander-in-chief to himself in the language that I thought it merited. He had unjustly deprived me of every chance of promotion from my own exertions, and that was robbing me of every hope. As one might expect, Hodgskin's naval commander did not take kindly to his outburst of righteous indignation, and Hodgskin was forcibly retired from the Navy at half pay at the comparatively young retirement age of twenty-five. Embittered, Hodgskin promptly took revenge on the Navy by publishing his first book, An Essay on Naval Discipline, 1813, A Blistering Attack on Military Tyranny. Eloquently, Hodgskin began his work by setting down the main lesson he had learned, patiently submitting to oppression because it comes from a superior is a vice. To surmount your fears of that superior and resist it is a virtue. Hodgskin's experience left him a bitter enemy of government and government intervention in all its forms, and several years of traveling around Europe and reading and meeting people strengthened and deepened these convictions. 
Returning to Great Britain, Hodgkin published a two-volume travel book, Travels in the North of Germany, Edinburgh, 1820, in which, as Alexander Gray puts it, innocent Reisebilder are interlarded with anarchistic digressions, doubtless to the amazement and perturbation of many of his readers. Settled in London, Hodgkin was, for the rest of his life, to work as a lecturer and a journalist. He worked for a while with people who seemed to be his natural allies for laissez-faire, Francis Place, James Mill, and the philosophic radicals. But very shortly it became clear that there were severe philosophical differences between them. In the first place, Hodgkin abandoned his early Benthamite utilitarianism for a trenchant and militant natural law and natural rights position. In his brilliant and logical work, The Natural and Artificial Right of Property Contrasted, 1832, Hodgkin presented a radicalized Lockean view of property rights, an ardent defense of the right of private property, including a homesteading defense of private property in land, Hodgkin corrected Locke's various slippages from a consistent Lockean position. To Hodgkin it was crystal clear that natural private property rights were sound and just, such as each man in his own person, or in property that he creates, or land that he homesteads, or in property which he acquires in an exchange of just property titles. On the other hand, great mischief was performed by artificial property rights, that is, rights created by government artificially, in defiance of natural law and natural rights. Hodgkin's work remains today as one of the best expositions of natural property rights doctrine. Another difference with the Benthamites was that, unfortunately and anomalously, Hodgkin imbibed the labor theory of value from another influential Ricardian socialist of the day, the pseudonymous Piercy Ravenstone. Ravenstone denounced private ownership of land and capital for creating stolen or artificial property, Whereas, since labor is the sole creator of production, by rights, or naturally, all income should redound to labor. Rent and profit, asserted Ravenstone, are extracted from the product of labor. This fund for the maintenance of the idle is the surplus produce of the labor of the industrious. Furthermore, Ravenstone put forth a truly bizarre theory of capital, in which capital is a non-existent concept designed to cloak the theft of labor's surplus. Capital, Ravenstone absurdly declared, may be increased to any imaginable amount without adding to the real riches of a nation. From then on, Hodgkin was afflicted by an anomalous combination of laissez-faire anarchism and a Ravenstonian labor theory of value. How square the two! At first, Hodgkin tried to do so by attributing the exploitation, the surplus value of labor, solely to such government intervention as the combination laws, which restricted the right to form labor unions. Hence, Hodgkin helped found the Mechanics Magazine, and then its affiliate, the London Mechanics Institute, an institution for lectures to the working classes. 
During the course of the successful Ricardian-Benthamite agitation for repeal of the combination laws in 1824, Hodgkin wrote his Ravenstonian booklet, Labor Defended Against the Claims of Capital, 1825, followed by Mechanics Institute Lectures, published as Popular Political Economy, 1827. Particularly bizarre was Hodgkin's development of the Ravenstonian view that capital is unimportant and non-existent. Hodgkin denies that any savings are involved in capital, any advances from foregone consumption. Circulating capital, he says sophistically, are not produced in advance. The bread the worker buys is baked each day, rather than being stored in advance by the capitalist. In fact, of course, no one claims that the capitalist actually stores the worker's food and other means of subsistence in advance, but his saved money is advanced ahead of production and sale to the worker, which enables the worker to buy his subsistence now, instead of having to wait for years. As for fixed capital, not only is it stored-up labor, a general Ricardian socialist argument, but these machines are only inert, decaying, and dead matter, unless guided, directed, and applied by skillful hands. Hodgkin concludes that fixed capital does not derive its utility from previous, but present, labor grotesquely ignoring the fact that just because capital and labor need each other does not make labor the sole factor of production. In the crowning absurdity, Hodgkin declares that it is a miserable delusion to call capital something saved. There is no question that Hodgkin's ultra-laborism influenced Karl Marx, but his extreme labor theory of value does not make him a Ricardian, much less a socialist. In fact, Hodgkin was highly critical of Ricardo and the Ricardian system, denounced Ricardo's abstract methodology and his theory of rent, and considered himself a Smithian rather than a Ricardian. Smith's natural law and harmony of interest free market doctrine was also far more congenial to Hodgkin. Although continuing to be a laborist, Hodgkin became increasingly repelled by the English labor movement and its growing interest in state intervention. Labor unions he no longer saw as much of a remedy, let alone a panacea. Increasingly, he saw that the only way to reconcile laborism and laissez-faire was to press for the repeal of all government intervention indeed, of all positive law that was not simply a restatement of natural law and natural rights, for all such law was an invasion of rights of property. In contrast to the Ricardian socialists who extolled cartel-like cooperatives, Hodgkin called for removal of all government restrictions on free and unlimited competition. He enthusiastically joined Cobden and Bright in agitation for repeal of the Corn Laws, and in repealing feudalistic laws restricting and entailing land from free sale outside the family. From 1846 to 1855, Hodgkin served as an editor of The Economist, the journalistic champion of laissez-faire, with as yet no important incompatibility of views with editor-in-chief James Wilson. 
There, he became a friend and mentor of the young Herbert Spencer, hailing Spencer's anarchistic work, Social Statics, with the exception of denouncing the early Spencer's pre-Georgist land socialism on behalf of Lockean individualism. Furthermore, even at his most laborist in the 1820s, Thomas Hodgskin, in contrast to John Gray, widened rather than narrowed the definition of labor. Mental activity is as much labor, he pointed out, as muscular exertion, so he warned against limiting the term labor to the operations of the hands. Not only that, Hodgskin also pointed out cogently that the capitalist is also very often a manager, and therefore also a laborer. So whereas capitalists may be oppressors, businessmen in their capacity as managers or masters are laborers as well as their journeymen, and there is nothing wrong with the wages of management. In addition, the Hodgskin of the 1820s hailed retailers as indispensable agents and praised wholesalers and merchants in Smithian terms as conferring blessings on society by pursuing their own interests. Even bankers are still very important and have long been very useful laborers. Banking, let us never forget, is altogether a private business and no more needs to be regulated by meddling statesmen than the business of paper-making. Finally, in his popular political economy, Hodgskin eulogized the market price system, which, in a deep sense, is the finger of heaven, indicating to all men how they may employ their time and talents most profitably for themselves, and most beneficially for the whole society. After his retirement from the Economist editorial board, Hodgskin continued to write articles for that journal. There he praised commerce. We are all merchants, and trade is only mutual service by mutual dealing. Speculation. Without speculation we should have no railroads, no docks, no great companies. And competition. The soul of excellence, and gives to every man his fair reward. In his final publication of Lectures on Criminal Law, delivered in 1857, Thomas Hodgskin summed up his economic and political philosophy. The people's wants for higher standards of living, he declared, can only be satisfied by more freedom and less taxation. The free trade principles of the 1840s must be only a stepping stone towards ever purer and more consistent laissez-faire. Ultimately, all government services must be privatized and subjected to the requirements of the free market. The unrestricted competition which nature establishes must be the rule for all our transactions, and by the higgling of the market, which is mutual and free action, the salaries of government officials and the payments of the priesthood must be regulated as well as the profit of the shopkeeper and the wages of the laborer. In printing his lectures, Hodgskin announced his intention of completing and publishing a masterwork, The Absurdity of Legislation Demonstrated, which would show in a connected didactic form that all legislation, which of course includes government, is founded on false assumptions. Unfortunately, Hodgskin never completed the work or published anything further. 
and when he died in 1869 at the age of 82, this man, once so widely influential, received not a single obituary notice in the London papers. But at any rate, enough is surely known to dismiss the view that this individualist, despite the laborism that influenced Marx, was in any sense a socialist or even a Ricardian.